one. Whoa. Here we go. I've already turned. Oh, look at that. The song ended right on time. I got to learn how to oh, do great. that. That was that couldn't have been better. And we're, I got to learn how to end the song and do the air horn right on the top of the hour. So we can go right to the top of the news. And at this very second, the top story across the interwebs is from The Verge. And the headline is YouTube trials what they call premium light subscription for seven euros per month. So about eight dollars a month ish offering ad free viewing across all major platforms, meaning Android iOS, uh, Apple, smartphone, you know, your iPhone, your laptop, and what have you. Uh, currently available in Europe, currently being piloted in parts of Europe, Google's piloting a more affordable premium subscription tier for YouTube, which is essentially just removing all the ads for about $8 a month. And do me a favor, if you're on stage and flash your mics, if you currently have a YouTube subscription of some kind, Okay, Jason and Cam. What do you have, Cam? Um, I have the YouTube, um, the one that you could actually save your video. Yeah. I think they call it premium, YouTube premium. Yes. Yeah, I have the same. And the the question then is, like, very few people have YouTube uh, subscription. Now, how many of you would pay about $8 a month to remove all the ads? It's called market research, everybody. It looks like nobody's interested. So uh, I, let's uh, let's not get so excited about this particular headline, <laughs> just based on our very unscientific uh, survey here. I will say this: I, it, Cam, you also don't have ads with the with that version, which is the same one that I have, where you can download the videos, and you also get YouTube Music as part of that, which is, and then you get uh, no ads. And then the, the really compelling part that keeps you subscribed to it is the updates that you get telling you how many minutes of ads you potentially skipped, uh, which is quite remarkable. It's an incredible amount of ads that you skip because <laughs> uh, they put them at the front of every video now. So, um, yeah. Hey, Tyler, I should point out, as I mentioned to you before, there's like a lot of people, millions in the United States, that have YouTube TV, but yeah. that's not ad free. So, but they pay, but they pay for that. But they get they're getting TV channels. It's just different. So, in this, it, thanks for that, Ken. It says Google's piloting a more affordable premium subscription tier of YouTube that offers ad-free viewing without YouTube Premium's other features like offline downloads and background playback. The new premium light plan was spotted by a user, uh, and YouTube subsequently confirmed the test offering. In a statement given to The Verge, the premium light is currently being tested in Belgium, Denmark, Finland, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Norway, and Sweden. So Scandinavia, basically, and um, Benelux. There it is. Yeah, specifically those two, or technically Nordics and Benelux. In Oh, and the next paragraph says, in Nordics and Benelux, except for Iceland, we're testing a new offering to give users even more choice. Premium light costs uh, 7 euros per month. And it includes ad-free versions of YouTube. A YouTube spokesperson said in a statement, in comparison, YouTube's existing premium plan costs around 12 euros per month in Europe. Premium Lite includes ad-free viewing across YouTube's main app on the web. 
uh, iOS, Android, smart TVs, and game consoles, as well as in the YouTube Kids app. However, it doesn't include any YouTube music benefits like the ad-free listening uh, and doesn't include premiums. Other features like background playback for when you want to switch to another app while continuing to listen to audio. Oh, that's my favorite feature, by the way. So, yeah, you can turn off the video and still listen to the audio as you, you know, go about your chores like Clubhouse. My God, is that like, that's the best ever. And you can be on Twitter and still listen to the YouTube video. I love that. Speaking as someone who hates the amount of ads on YouTube, but who cares? Okay. So that's the top article. There you go. Second biggest article at this very moment is the, which was the number one article when we met five hours ago that Square says it's buying Australia-based buy now, pay later service called Afterpay for $29 billion in stock. Uh, paying a 30% premium on Afterpay's last closing because Afterpay was publicly traded. I'm not sure on which market, but uh, it went for, it previously had a market valuation of $20 billion. So whatever that price comes out to on the on each share, I'm not sure. But they're now paying $30 billion in all stock of Square stock, which I think is smart because I think Square has a very bright future. Um, and... The U.S. fintech company Square said on Monday it had agreed to purchase Australian buy now, pay later giant Afterpay. And Jack tweeted out uh, Afterpay plus Square exclamation mark as if he's personally excited. Square tweeted out today we announced our plans to acquire Afterpay uh, to advance our shared mission of economic empowerment. Together we're aiming to build financial products that are inclusive for all and other interesting tweets. Here's one saying, brilliant move by Square. 25% dilution baller move. Cross cuts across both merchant and consumer ecosystems. Not to mention the global footprint, which was huge. Achilles heel telling telling to see statement from both Alyssa and Brian in the press release. And I agree. I think how popular was Afterpay in the UK, Cal? Or does anyone know? Uh, it's uh, it's gaining traction, uh, yeah. But it's it's not. It's had a bit of a. There's a little bit of a history from that whole payday loan thing. So it's got a it's got a pretty bad with Wonga. So, but it's it's gaining traction now. Yeah. So Square is doing quite well in the U.S. and they need to they can and should start growing into other markets. And one way to accelerate that is to ride on top of an existing solution that's already got some adoption and traction, right? So because they're going to have their the, Square is going to have a real difficult time in the Nordics because of iZettle it has been there for a very long time. And that's my friend Jacob's company. Hey, Jacob. And Jacob sold iZettle to PayPal mm, about three years ago for two billion. And um, they're deeply entrenched anyway. Um, so congrats to the young gentleman from. Australia's Afterpay, 30 years old, selling it for $30 billion in Square stock, which I think will likely double in the next five years. But anywho, um, and by the way, it's gone up. Jesus, when did I get it? At, at $12 a share and it's at like 240 now. It's gone up 20x in the last four years. So doubling is kind of trivial when it's gone up 20x in the last four years. So uh, going up 2x is, you know, not a stretch. So anyway, he's even at 
even if he liquidates all of his shares that he just got, and we can assume he got at least 5% of that 30 million, probably 10%, that would be three, at least, so he's got at least 1.5 billion in, in Square stock today, probably closer to 3 billion. And he's 30 years old doing a buy now, pay later company. And it occurred to me, I'm not aware of a buy now, pay later startup that has failed. <laughs> That's not to say that buy now, that startups don't fail. They do all the time. And, and in fact, the vast majority of them fail. Uh, but not the buy now, pay laters don't seem to be failing quite notably. <laughs> so it's too early. It's, it's, yeah, but it's also uh, a solution that is a win-win for everyone involved. So I don't I don't see any vulnerability other than uh, I see consolidation. I, I don't yeah, think there is consolidation. They'll, they'll you got fail, that, right? You so got that. Is they'll get acquired. Yeah, you know, worst yeah. case, worst case, you'll get acquired. Yeah, which is a great worst case. Yeah, the consolidation's happening, and that itself is really interesting to watch because I, uh, as I was telling Boris in in another room earlier today, the consolidation is happening. And we got some friends in the audience who want to chime in here. So bring Tom and Suzanne up here. And um, the cons- it's interesting to see how the acquirers of these buy now, pay laters are not banks themselves, but neobanks like Square, who got their banking license and the likes of like Revolut, who got their banking license. And these, you know, fintechs are becoming actual banks in terms legally speaking, and they're acquiring all kinds of smaller fintech startups to build out a Swiss army knife of all the products and features that will then put them more head on uh, in direct um, competition with the traditional banks, which themselves are Swiss army knives of financial products and services like loans and checking accounts and um, remittances and, you know, on all the whole suite of everything, mortgages and what have you. So, um, and even stock trading. Yeah, they're adding all that. I think I think Revolut added stock trading and they even adding in crypto and all that. It's like they're really starting to build up um, more and more of they're becoming more and more like traditional banks. But they have a global footprint and they're cloud based first. And then possibly they will eventually if the ones who end up through what Cal just said, this consolidation it will, you know, all it'll the the number of horses will eventually drop out of the race, and it'll become a three horse race as it always does in every industry at the end, like the music business is now, or, you know, and um, when it gets to that point, it'll be interesting to see if they start acquiring the brick and mortar banks as they start going out of business, so that they can have physical presences on the ground or whatnot. We might not even need it. I don't know that we'll end up needing physical banks on the ground. Anna Marie, you had a comment. Uh, just gonna say, um, in Hong Kong, we use this fintech, um, it, and it is very much like a bank called Neat. I don't yes. Know if you've heard, yeah. Well, I'm familiar. Some yeah. of this is is new to me, but we it was just like getting when we first were establishing all of our business operations there, working with the traditional banks, which was, um, you know, our sort of first path we went down it was just incredibly cumbersome and time consuming and you know you got to be on the ground for this piece and if you're not on the ground then we have to wait three weeks and and neat just kind of filled that gap for for us as a tech startup and you know now i have like a neat visa credit card so when i need to buy an ultrasound transducer or something then you know i just i mean they are really supplanting everything that a traditional hsbc would have done for a business like ours 
Yeah. And then Renjant in the audience just sent in an article from the Sydney Morning Herald, which is the marquee publication in, in down in Australia. And the headline there is Farewell Afterpay. Australia loses its homegrown tech giant to the U.S. with a market share of 70 percent in Australia and many merchants already on board. There just isn't uh, room for significant growth domestically. And boy, that's precisely speaks to the point of why Jack Dorsey would want to buy it. Square probably doesn't have much market penetration into Australia. And so that's a perfect piggyback opportunity because he gets to save a year of developing a buy now, pay later on himself and gets to ride on the momentum that Afterpay had in Australia and which whatever other markets they're in, <clears throat> like the UK or whatever. So, because... Uh, hey, yeah. I just add on to what you did, because you asked the question, what does Afterpay trade? It has ADRs trading in the United States. I'm assuming that the, the, uh, the actual underlying shares are in Australia. And I should also point out that... Um, um, Square stock is actually up over 8% right now, which is unusual for the acquiring company to have a, its, its share price go up as well. Yeah. Usually that's a sign that people really like the, you know, the, the acquisition. Yeah, thank you for that, Ken. And you're right about that, that point. Um, so anyway, in a good or some... Okay, so that's the second biggest story at this very moment. Now let's get into the third which is, well, it's actually, let's go two and a half, uh, which is Square does their quarterly report, which also might be why it's up, actually. And actually, it's more likely. So the Square quarterly report came out, I guess, over the weekend, um, because now the markets are opening Monday morning in, in, in America right now. And that's if the stock's up, it's largely due to that, because they had a quite a fantastic quarterly Q2 report, revenue of nearly $5 billion, up. 143% year over year. Uh, and the Cash App's Bitcoin yearly revenue was almost $3 billion, up 200% as Square's Bitcoin holdings had a $45 million impairment loss. Cash App's Bitcoin gross profits rose $55 million. So I think it's more a bit more to do with that than the acquisition. But um, it's a significant acquisition. It's like thirty billion on a one hundred twenty-two billion dollar company. So yeah. if they didn't like the acquisition, no, the earnings right. wouldn't. I'm not, I'm, yeah, I'm. I'm just pointing out that we. It's hard to. It's, it's hard to isolate out how much of. Each, That's true. Which headline is related? So, um, yeah, but another another good quarter, nonetheless, and and it seems like a good acquisition, and I think they've got. They've just been doing good, man. Man, they just know how to execute and they make good deals and they're making progress and they're getting copied left and right. And they got PayPal shitting themselves trying to copy Square by buying iZettle, which is more directly competitive with Square in Europe. And it's it's interesting to watch, but they're the real innovators. They got the pace. They got the vision. They're acquired title. That's going to get really interesting. It's going to be it's going to be real interesting and there is going to be consolidation and it already looks pretty clear to me that square is going to be one of the last few standing when things when that whole consolidation game shakes out you know what i mean and that cal's exactly right and that's where you kind of want to get your head at, at this moment is start thinking like which of these players is going to be around in 10 years when everything else starts consolidating and it's looking like square maybe revolute 
uh, Stripe has a chance to make huge waves in this space if they if they so. This choose. is I think this is Square's game to lose. You know, I, I, I agree. Yeah, I embarrassingly shared that like you know I did uh, POS and web based point of sales you know to compete against yeah. Aloha back 20 years ago, way before people had internet, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I kind of kicked myself saying, oh man, I had the square, but you know, I didn't. The real key was that they did that stupid little um, magnetic uh, stripe reader that went in through the earphone. You know, that was, that was a huge deal. And they, they took the world's like ancient technology. It's a cassette head yep. and a, a, a headphone jack and turned it into something so useful, you know? Um, yep. So kudos to them for sure. I remember. Well, I think there. I think somebody is going to replace credit cards, and that that means owning more and more of the fintech stack. And I think Square, now that it's it's made this this purchase, is well on the way to doing that. I agree, Doctor Francine. And for those who don't know, Francine has seen the whole game from. The, from the whistleblow at the beginning, from the coin toss. And when you have that perspective, as she does, it allows you to kind of see how these things tend to shape and shake out over time. I completely concur as usual, Francine. Um, and I, I'm curious, but at the same time, it's interesting that now Visa is acquiring fintechs. Like, like I don't know if you've noticed, we've been reading the headlines here. It's it's at least one per week. It's it's like two per week, and not not small startups either. They tried to acquire Plaid for five billion, and that was it was ruled that they couldn't in the end. Yeah, but they have a brand problem. You know, they have a really big brand problem in that they are associated with credit cards and high interest rates. And I, I have a, sort of an inside scoop on this because my daughter tried to do a rebrand for them, was hired to do a rebrand for them last year. And they discarded all the important new ideas and went back to something like Meet Visa. And as long as they do that, they're not going to win with Gen Z. Ah, so you're you're point you're painting the picture, which I love, which is when companies get so old and out of touch that they can't even create a decent campaign to save them. It's kind of like this: they start to realize, ah, we need to reinvent ourselves. They realize they're in trouble, but they can't even bring themselves to make a decent um, campaign to do that. Right. Right. And, you know, and, 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 you know, like younger people always like the new things. Right. Except me, me, I like them too. And so, you know, (laughs) (laughs) she's a kid at heart. I am using my Apple card to make purchases Uh because it's an installment plan. I am using, you know, I, I am using all kinds of fintech things, and I just want to get away from Visa because the one Visa card that I have that I do use, which is the Amazon Visa, which I use because it gives me Amazon points, the interest rate is 22%. That is freaking highway robbery, you know, and th- there's no reason credit cards should get to charge that that's just a rant it's not a you know not a fact 
No, but you great you raise a great point. And but I think the thing that they are doing smart is acquiring lots of fintechs that have already got you know market fit because then there's low risk of them falling apart and they can leverage visas uh and ridiculous audience size to promote them right so they can double their valuations relatively quickly so they can they should just acquire any decent fintech they can because if they're if they're acquired and bury the visa and bury right. the visa brand completely well just just make Good it point. just make it an umbrella brand like just like right. L- LVMH you know owns all of right. the fashion luxury brands or just like you know some hotel groups own so many hotels and yeah the visa brand just becomes an ownership brand and then if because if they acquire kind of uh fintechs with a little bit of market fit and, and a little bit of traction and they can vastly accelerate their you know growth and adoption and, and traction themselves then buy them for x and you know within two years they're at 2x you, you almost can't fail it's almost fish in a barrel and just buy up as many as you can as fast as you can and do that for as long as you can and hopefully some of those don't go 2x and 10x but 100x and you get the next you know uh, somewhere buried, and there's the next stripe that's worth a hundred billion, and that's even worth more than Visa itself. So, um, you know, if they if they yeah, well, by, by the point I want to make is if they they are and Cal and Cheryl and the regulars can confirm, we're reading at least one per week that they're acquiring at the moment, which means they are meeting with at least ten a week and offering, I don't know, five a week. Uh, so because not everyone's accepting, you know, the offer to sell out. So. Um, that means they're on just an absolute binge to acquire fintechs. And I think that's smart. I, that, I can't fault them for that. I would do no, this. That's, that's, that's brilliant. Yeah, I would do the same in their shoes. So, because it's hard, like you said, it's, yeah, how do you reinvent yourself at this point? It's, you're, yeah, it's tricky. So, the next big headline number, what do we got? that we did oh here comes number that was number one and number two and two and a half here comes number three number three is from nbc and it says female journalists and activists share how they were targeted and harassed by authoritarian regimes through hack and leak attacks using the pegasus spyware good times so the head the article reads i will not be silenced women targeted in uh, speak out about the spyware and female journalists and activists say they had their private photos shared on social media by governments seeking to intimidate and silence them. And let me tweet this out. This is from NBC News. So um, NBC News, uh, for those not in the U.S., it's one of the U.S.'s biggest legacy media and fairly down the middle, actually. It's not kind of left or right. And they, they have a huge reputation. They generally check the facts. And so it tells the story of a Lebanese broadcast journalist at Al Jazeera who was eating dinner at home with her husband last June when she received a message from a colleague telling her to check Twitter. Uh Uh-oh, that's a call you never want to get. And then she opened opened up her Twitter account and was horrified. A private photo taken when she was wearing a bikini in a jacuzzi was being circulated by a network of accounts accompanied by false claims that the photos were taken at her boss's house. Oh, lovely. 
Over the next few days, she was barraged with thousands of tweets and direct messages attacking her credibility as a journalist, describing her as a prostitute or telling her she was ugly and old. Many of the messages came from accounts that appeared to support Saudi Crown Prince uh, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman al-Saud, known as MBS, including some verified accounts belonging to government officials. Oh, good times. (laughs) Um, I immediately knew that my phone had been hacked, uh, she said, who believed she was targeted in an effort to silence her critical reporting of the Saudi regime. Um, those photos are not published anywhere. They were only on my phone. I am used to being harassed online, but this was different, she added. It was as if someone had entered my home, my bedroom, my bathroom. I felt so unsafe and traumatized. And she's one of several high-profile female journalists and activists who have allegedly been targeted and harassed by the authoritarian regimes in the Middle East through hack and leak attacks using the Pegasus spyware created by Israeli surveillance technology group NSO, the spyware transforms a phone into a surveillance device, accounting, activating microphones and cameras and exporting files without a user knowing. For the journalists and several other women whose phones were already targeted, a key part of the harassment and intimidation is the use of private photos. While these photos may seem tame by Western standards, they're considered scandalous in conservative societies like Saudi Arabia and were seemingly used to publicly shame these women and smear their reputations. I'm an independent liberal woman, and that provokes a misogynistic regime, she says. And um, in recent days, she has been revealing the trauma of uh, reliving the trauma of the hack uh, in light of the investigation into the leak of the 50,000 phone numbers of potential surveillance targets identifying by many NSO groups, government agencies. And let's Let me skip a forward. She says, I lived again and again, the pictures and the harassment, the comments and the talking about my body, accusing me of prostitution, she said. But at least now the world knows how ugly those programs are and how vicious and evil it is when tools that were supposed to protect people from terrorists or criminals are used against good people. I'm happy that the people who didn't take me seriously when I said I was being spied on are now taking it seriously. I'm happy I'm not alone. They wanted to destroy the image of... Uh, the the uh, journalist and um, interesting, very interesting story. And of course, it, it needs to be said that MBS uh, from Saudi Arabia, um, Saudi Arabia, it, it was also found to have hacked the phones of Kasoji, the Saudi journalist who um, went to the uh, embassy, Saudi embassy in Istanbul to get his wedding documents and then never was never left. So, um, so there's a strong precedence that, uh, the Saudi team was using Pegasus on journalists. And this is just a new example of that, which is going to be a bit hard for them to deny. I think given, uh, the, I think her statements are going to be very easy to corroborate. So, very concerning indeed. Um, and the next big article is, uh, and but by the way, as predicted, there will be con- these, these kinds of stories of the that are going to come out of the wake of Pegasus will continue for weeks, no doubt. Um, and we will uh, look, to, you know, look at them and try and see if there's interesting dots to connect between them. 
Uh, but that one makes all the sense in the world, given the information we have had previously. The next one is, the headline reads, A now-deleted tweet by an Intel executive suggests that Thunderbolt 5 could double the bandwidth of existing Thunderbolt 4 and USB 4 connections up to 80 gigabytes per second. And most iPhones only hold about 128 gigabytes. So that, that's, a, that's about one one second to fill up your iPhone there. Mabana? I think I did. He didn't know that he has a hot mic. That's okay. Well, he came off a mute somehow. There he goes. Okay. So looks like double the speed for Thunderbolt 5. Uh, interesting that the tweet by the Intel executive is now deleted, <laughs> which means uh, he accidentally shared something he shouldn't have shared and then realized that. So the next headline is that Zoom, the video uh, conference platform, agrees to pay $85 million um, to settle a class action lawsuit over alleged user privacy violations. And that's a very simple story. They were being sued for uh, not having proper privacy protections, and now they've settled that suit for $85 million in sort of a class action. Mabwana, you're back? Yeah, he's there, but I think his mic was just uh, that's right. off earlier. I think that's okay. well, yeah. right. Let's mute him. Hey, Vinay, what's up? Hey, No, the Zoom is really interesting. You remember last year, all of the Zoom bombing that used to happen, sure. people jumping in on different sessions. Do I remember and... it. I was busy doing that stuff. What are you talking about, Vinay? Go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, I think I saw that, Tyler. I yeah, saw you in one of you, the sessions. You, let me yeah. let me show you my my abdomen. You'll recognize my six pack, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this is a bunch of uh, folks that got together and filed a, uh, a lawsuit against Zoom that saying that they didn't have enough security practices, and also that they ended up sharing personal data with Google, Facebook. Oh boy. Uh, as well. Uh oh. So. You mean that sweet, sweet, juicy, juicy data? Juicy, juicy data. Yes, yeah. and they're paying a huge fine now. <laughs> well, uh, interest. It'll be interesting to see how much they made off of that juicy data. Yeah, yeah. Is is it I, painful enough for them to learn the lesson? Yeah. Well, I think it's more the case that they needed to fix that if they wanted to continue to grow, anyways. So, <laughs> I mean, they were properly incentivized to fix it anyway. Well, so so basically, what was happening is they were storing unencrypted, unencrypted meeting data on its servers for 60 days before moving it to secure cloud. So it was hackable by anybody for 60 days. If you knew it, everything was available. Mm. Okay. So the next big headline, thank you for that, Vinay, is from the Wall Street Journal. Non-VC funds invested in a record 42% of tech startup funding deals in Q2, so in the last three months. And the first half, uh, so for the past six months, U.S. startup funding was $150 billion with uh, the fiscal year of 2021 on pace. So they're projecting out now for the next six months. And they say for the whole year, we're on pace to double 2020's total. So tw that's, that's unbelievable, by the way. That is tremendous for the U.S. startup market to be double. 2020 was a record year. And... For 2021 to be double, normally we gain 10%, 20%, 10, between 10, normally we're gaining 10% per year. That's nice growth. To grow 100% a year is unbelievable. So again, just to highlight, startups are absolutely booming in 2021, like just out of this, 
un like holy cow um and we've been booming in we've been following this intimately in stockholm the the actual amount of the main metric we've been tracking is the number of dollars or yeah yeah we do it in dollars of investment into swedish startups each year and we started out really tracking that around 2012 and we got the we were able to look at the previous two years we go back to about 2009 and 10 where it started off at like 100 million and then it went to 200 300 400 500 600 700 yeah and we got we had a billion a couple of years back and then we went to two billion it looked like this year we'll hit four billion and it's uh it's just the party has not stopped. And every year we're like, who knows if we can beat, you know, next year. And I'm saying the same now. I've, I've said this every year for six years now. Like, it's good while it's going. The party's still bumping. The bar's still open. And who knows if we'll beat it next year. And we just keep booming. It's wild. Ken? Hey, Tyler, another good, uh, important part in that article is that they're talking about traditional investment firms like Fidelity, you know, investing, you know, directly in startups. So they're bypassing the VCs. So the VCs are essentially getting somewhat dis disintermediated. Yeah, you're, you're right about that. There's all kinds of new ways for startups to get money. Um, Aaron, maybe you, you want to jump in on that comment? Well, Fidelity, by the way, has several investment arms. In Europe, they have eight roads, which is a VC. And they've got other ones that are, you know, real, which is quite early stage. And they have later stage ones, et cetera. Aaron? Yeah, absolutely, Tyler. So um, Avon, Devonshire, FISV, Eight Roads. Uh, there's all these different vehicles where we invest. And in fact, we even invested in uh, Primary Bid, which is a company that allows you to get access to the primary market pre-IPO to diversify um people's portfolios as well. Hey, Tyler. Is, next year, the numbers are going to go through the roof in Stockholm. Remember, all the money that was going to China has to go somewhere. Yeah. It's, it's going to go up even higher. I think, I, I think India, more than anywhere, will benefit from that. Uh, and Southeast Asia, because it's, it's nice that, um, for example, Southeast Asia is just, I, I've been here for, you know, off and on for many, many years, full time now for six years. And my investor friends often ask me, you know, what's the climate like there in Thailand? And I used to just say, don't bother. Post COVID, I'm now saying bother, check it out. Like, I'm really surprised. Like, you know, just like uh, the US made the transition to Zoom calls for meetings, um, you know, Thailand's made it through the transition from cash to cashless. And so it really opens up that that transition is a super important transition. The the financial layer go, getting into place really enables other layers to build on top of it. So I think you, we might see a bunch of that Chinese money going into Vietnam. And in fact, it, we know it is because I have a headline coming up soon. Some Vietnam's now claiming their first unicorn now in the past few hours. So we'll, we'll get to that headline shortly. And um, that's a really and by the way, Thailand just had their first unicorn in the in the past couple of months. So, you know, things are ready to pop down here as well. Uh, I just tweeted, uh, yeah, I just tweeted uh, 12 hot, hottest fintech startups in uh, Southeast Asia fintechs 
uh, to you and look at the countries is indonesia it, it's the mix is amazing that's what i mean I south have, southeast asia is ready to pop indonesia is a huge market by the way yes the, it's like uh, the fourth, an... fourth largest market in the world something like that it's actually a, a, a lot of untapped areas. Uh, if they are not that corrupted, they should have been very big by now. So SoftBank Group is stepping up investment in startups in like what Tyler said, Southeast Asia again. And uh, many of these startups are unicorns, a company mm. valued over, of course, one million uh, or soon to be unicorns. Uh, they are actually looking for the next grab. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> That's a great example. Grab's just a, a no-brainer smash success down there and what shane what are you doing hiding in the audience i'm gonna get get you on stage here evan what are you doing in the audience dude get up on stage up here so um next one is researchers say a collection of nine vulnerabilities impact pneumatic tube systems installed in 80 percent of all major u.s hospitals details have been published today about a collection of nine vulnerabilities known as pwned piper that impact common uh, a type of medical equipment that's installed um, in roughly 80% of all major hospitals. The Translogic Pneumatic Tube System, PTS, is a complex system that uses compressed air to move medical supplies using tubes that connect different departments inside of large hospitals. Uh, ins installed in more than 3,000 hospitals, the system effectively work as the blood vessels of modern hospitals as they allow the movement of sensitive material uh, while keeping nurses free to provide patient care. And Pwned Piper uh, vulnerabilities. In oh, so there's a new kind of hack, so to speak, called Pwned Piper. Details about the new Pwned Piper vulnerabilities are listed below. And... I guess this is uh, how hackers could cause a lot of headache and troubles, logistical nightmares for hospitals. And the vulnerabilities impact 80% of major hospitals. But it, the article's poorly written, so I can't tell if this has already happened or they're just projecting that this is a, something that we need to be careful about. Uh, they're just sharing the nine vulnerabilities known as Pone Piper that impact on... So. I don't think there's been an outage yet, but somebody's just pointing out the potential vulnerabilities. Okay. So the next one um, that, yeah, some other outlets are reporting a headline like popular technology that hospitals use to send lab samples is vulnerable. Researchers found. There you go. Pwned Piper vulnerabilities have potential to turn. Just those, it's just the bank tubes, Tyler. Yeah. The, Security researchers warn of vulnerabilities in hospital pneumatic tube systems. There you go. So the next big article is from CNBC, which is the U.S.'s largest financial kind of news outlet. And it says that Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the two founders of Google, have sold a combined $1 billion in Google stock since May, uh, the most they've ever sold since 2017, and Google share price has since tripled since May uh, 2021. Google founders and the majority shareholders like Larry Page and Sergey Brin have more than $1 billion worth of stock combined since May. The next headline from Politico, pro-Trump social network getter, which we announced uh, when it was uh, just, when the rumors were just starting, 
so the headline today is pro-Trump social network getter is awash with Islamic State propaganda, including graphic videos of beheadings and memes of a militant militant executing Trump. So it's like a deep, a deep fake, I imagine, of Trump being beheaded. Getter, a new platform started by members of the former president's inner circle, is awash with beheading videos and extremist content. And my buddy Mark Scott at Politico, who wrote the piece, who I should ping in, actually, um, says the that this is an exclusive and that Trump supporters turned to Getter, a MAGA social network, to avoid big tech censorship. They weren't alone. ISIS supporters have been flooding the platform with jihadi hate speech, including beheading videos, because the whole point of that platform is people won't be silenced and well. Um, if there's one thing um, that uh, ISIS has in common with uh, Trump fans is that they don't like being silenced by so- traditional social networks, so they they can hang out with each other on Getter. And <laughs> I, I got to say, I didn't see that one coming. Um, so quite interesting. The next big article is from the Economic Times about Fashinza, a B two B marketplace for apparel manufacturing. Raises $20 million from Excel, uh, which is a, a, a top-tier VC, and Elevation Capital, which was uh, Bono, if I remember correctly, uh, and others. B2B manufacturing marketplace fashionese Fanshinza on Monday said it had raised $20 million in funding. Yep. And the next big one's from the Financial Times saying that SPACs are being forced to fund deals with more expansive financing like issuing convertible bonds due to cash from institutional investors drying up. Target companies are raising debt rather than equity to push transactions over the line. And that's a fair point, that people are turning to debt more more frequently now than they used to. The next big one is from TechCrunch, Bangalore-based online learning startup Unacademy raises $440 million at a $3.4 billion valuation. And like Vinay and I were discussing uh, with the Chinese edtechs uh, kind of no longer in the race, a lot of money is now uh, pointed directly at the Indian edtech, of which Unacademy certainly is a horse in that uh, Indian edtech space, and they just raised $440 million. Days after all the investors are likely to be pulling their money out of... Uh, out of China. And I imagine if you are an ed tech in India and you have any kind of market fit, you're going to get all the money you could possibly need. So um, good good time to be an ed tech in India or anywhere in Southeast Asia, I imagine. Um, so next big headline is Italy's Lazio region, which surrounds Rome, says hackers have shut down its IT system used to manage its COVID-19 vaccinations. Oh, Lovely. Uh, Targeting hospitals during a pandemic is truly despicable act. Crypto payments are the singular reason for this kind of attack is even viable. We saw this in the UK, US, Ireland, and now Italy, and it's going to get worse if it's left unchecked. Reuters broke the story yesterday, and apparently all of the vaccination program across the entire region has come to a halt. It's unclear at this time whether the government will pay the ransom. Our friends in Italy got hit by a massive ransomware attack that took down the entire healthcare system. And the hackers are now 
extorting the COVID vaccination program program in Bitcoin using crypto locker ransomware. So let me tweet that one out for everybody who wants to uh, check that out. And just as always, we tweet every link to the Tech News Twitter account in real time. And that's at T-N-A-T-W for tech news around the world. The next article from the Wall Street Journal says Robinhood says 300,000-ish users participated in its IPO, representing about 1.3% of its 22.5 million funded accounts as of June 30th. Mixlab, which lets veterinarians prescribe and oh, deliver... Can I, uh, can yes. I on, the, on, on the Robinhood one, can I just uh, quickly... Uh, is, is Ken, are you there? Yeah, I was just yes, wondering, like, what do you think, Ken, the price, the, just uh, the... The kind of price they would have got the the the, the you know the the customers that that got the shares, but that and with that that they would have got a, a reasonable price, right? Coming no, in, I because they, they went just, down. My, my understanding. Well, go ahead, Tyler, if you want. No, no, no. I would assume that basically what they got was the ability to participate, which normally retail investors don't get an allocation. But it would have not been at a discounted price, and not, not they're not insiders, you know. They're, they're just getting it out. They're just getting the ability to get shares, which is unusual for retail investors, because you know, as you know, because in, in most cases, you know, for most of history, it's only institutional investors. Like I used to work for, like Trust Company of the West or something, that got allocations, not retail investors. Right, but would they have? Would they have lost ten percent on the first day, or would they have got it at a rate that was? you know, lower than that 10% that it went down? Because I'm curious, because that would create a, a little bit of a... No, I think I think they, I think they, I think they, they lost money. I mean, if, 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 if that, that would, that would be, yeah. I mean, because they got it at an IPO price and if it's trading below. I think he's asking, he's asking the question on what kind of price they would have gotten, whether it was, was the IPO oversubscribed, undersubscribed or what? And then based on that, what kind of price they would have gotten? I think that's what the... Oh, I didn't understand that as a question. Unless I'm incorrect. Yeah, no, you're right for us. Yeah. And, and the only reason I'm asking this is because we talk about retail investors and the, and the appetite that they've got. And, and when, they, when they jump in on this, and I think Wise is doing the same, right? Wise, is, as a customer, I, I've seen them offer me uh, some shares. And I'm just trying to figure out at what rate do these guys generally get. And I know behind the scenes, as they're, as they're doing the placements, you know, there are various rates based on what Faraz is saying, oversubscribe, undersubscribe. So I'm just <laughs> curious if they've got hurt. If they've got hurt, no, but, yeah. but for us, generally, yeah. when something's over oversubscribed, I mean, you know, the, we're talking about the same thing. It just means, you know, you know, usually the price would almost go up because there's more buyers than sellers. But you know, there, 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 there's a there's a price that every unless you do like a Dutch auction, some of these things like uh, or a modified Dutch auction like Google and Spotify did or something. Unless you do that, there's there's a there's a single price that the actual buyers who get the allocation pay in the IPO. It's the same price. And it just the depends current, where it trades. Yeah. yeah, the current price is 36.47 now, so it's almost at IPO price. Uh, Ken, I have to disagree with you. Uh, I have to disagree with you on that one, brother. It depends on what market you're trading in. If it's oversubscribed, depends on the share volume, depends on the lot size that you've placed, depends on the block size that you've placed, depends on who you've gone in with. And I, I think the question here is, how did they place the retail trade? How, how did they place the retail investors? Did they place them all together as a single lot or did they just throw them in the market um, at the mercy of the larger investors? Because on the oversub- if it was an oversubscribed IPO, 
then it's kind of like a first come first serve sort of hit, in my humble opinion. Unless I'm yeah, completely not, not, wrong. Yeah, not to but... take it into a rabbit hole. I just want to. The bigger issue is how much of a bad taste would or good taste would it have left with this with these retail investors who are key to Robinhood and key to this kind of movement of retail investors getting in on things. And if they got hurt on this, um, that's going to impact their their kind of. Uh, I guess their mood towards uh, doing doing more of these these uh, uh, Wall Street bets plays in the future, or maybe not, I don't know. But that was no, kind of- it, it's, a good, yeah. it's, it's a good rabbit hole, Cal, because what happens is, if, and uh, I didn't even think about this, and Ken, maybe you can educate us further, because if, if the retail investors participated in it, and the whole, whole premise of Robinhood is retail investors, and they all got screwed on, on the price they got, because it was, I'm, I'm assuming from what Ken said, it was an oversubscribed IPO, then, Essentially, they're not going to like Robinhood anymore, regardless of what Robinhood was doing before. So I don't know. It was, quite frankly, I don't even no, know. No, it was, it was actually. I just the, the people, I, I, I'm just going to tell you that oversubscribe or not, secure, there's security regulations, okay? Unless they structure for deal, which would have to be disclosed in advance, that there's some sort of uh, you know, auction mechanism, and very few companies have gone public like that. Google did that. I think Spotify did that. It's it's very rare, okay. Everybody gets the same price who gets the original allocation, okay. That's the, there's there's a, there's, a, there's an SEC you know it's an SEC rule. You can't give people different prices, you know, like behind the scenes unless it's all disclosed. And and, and I haven't gone through in detail the the Robin Hood thing because I didn't participate in it. I know someone who did. I'll ask them. But I think it was a traditional IPO other than they they made shares available. Okay, because the company decides who gets the shares. Okay, and the only and the only securities rule is that it has to be a legitimate distribution. You just can't give. You can't claim it's an IPO and give all the shares to three entities. That, so you have that, to have something. Thing. Different. That, that's the what? thing, Ken. It's not. A, it's not a traditional. It's not a traditional. In no way is it a traditional, other than the fact that it's a it's a reg s. No, no, but for us, so don't, you, don't you think what they did with Robinhood? I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but isn't well? I thought all they did with the Robinhood share uh, uh, customers is gave them basically a larger segment of what we used to call friends and family, which is, but just and friends and family didn't mean they got a better price. It just means they got an allegation. John, you, I think John wanted to say something as well in the middle, but John's gone. Um, yeah, there, John, there, you want to yeah, there's there's an article in Fortune about Robin Hood has long championed small investors, but its IPO pounded them. I, I believe it was undersubscribed, and they actually delayed the listing uh, for a bit for, because it was underprescribed. Okay, and, and, and an undersubscribed uh, IPO, and, and Tyler, maybe you can educate us because I know you trade all the time. I wasn't in an undersubscribed IPO, from what I understand. The, the everyone got screwed, but the bigger guy was able to absorb the, uh, the the mess up a lot better than the smaller guy, and that's what we're getting at here. Sorry, I, I, wa I wasn't paying attention to the conversation. My apologies. Uh, or can we go on to the next one? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, can go on. we can go on. Okay, yeah, go right ahead. Next one. So we did Robinhood Mixlab, which lets veterinarians prescribe and deliver medications to pet owners, raises twenty million. And Snoop, which uses banking and analytics to help customers manage their money, raises $15 million. And Nozomi Networks, which aims to shield critical infrastructure from cyber attacks, raises $100 million. And I bet you can guess why. Yeah, that's right, because hacks are happening fast and furious. And boy, is it a good time to be a cybersecurity startup. 
Um, Estonian ride-hailing app Bolt uh, raises $713 million at a $4.75 billion valuation led by Sequoia, which tells you that the micro-mobility thing is still a thing because Sequoia are about the best in the biz at doing the, you know, kind of uh, business case number crunching bean counting on these things and um uh interesting that they're backing bolt out of estonia um london-based cuda which offers mobile mobile first banking services in nigeria raises 55 million so there's an at a half a billion valuation and so congrats to yet another uh um well, it's London-based, but they offer mobile-first banking services in Nigeria. Oh. Analysis, Nigeria is second only to the U.S. in Bitcoin trading volume, hitting $2.4 billion in May and, and trending upwards. And then there's an article from the Wall Street Journal that says a look at technology's role in professional surfing as machine learning-based wave forecasting and biomechanics data helps improve rider performance and prevent injuries. As somebody who grew up surfing... Uh, I, I'm not going to put much into that. Um, what else do we got? Uh, Indian online insurance aggregator policy bazaar files for an IPO and a profile of Netflix's head of movies, Scott Stuber, who has grown original film output from 21 films in 2016 to more than 70 films in 2021 as it makes deals with Steven Spielberg and others as uh, the platform Netflix absolutely cutting into the traditional game of uh, being a movie studio and financing films directly with the producers uh, of those films for their platform for exclusive content, which all of their competitors are going to have to do. And you better believe they're all hanging out at the uh, film festivals and uh, they're with their checkbooks and the filmmakers know um, if you're a filmmaker and you're at a film festival I think you're probably looking to meet with Netflix and Disney Plus and the streaming platforms more so than the movie studios who don't have a, their own platforms. Uh, you know, like um, they have only, only a lot of them do, Tyler. I mean, a lot, I mean, you have HBO, which is Warner Brothers. Um, you have Paramount that has a streaming platform. Um, you know, Disney, of course, has a streaming platform. I mean, that's so and. Um, and quite frankly, it was it's kind of hybrid, but you know, Universal through through uh, NBC and Peacock has a streaming platform, but Universal is um, doing still multiple output deals. Okay, so the next big headline is Starlink has secured a license to build a satellite ground station on the Isle of Man, aiming to provide blanket coverage across Great Britain, and they still are projecting to be on track to have glo global coverage by next month. Fantastic. The, the, this continues Starlink's and SpaceX's efforts to promote broadband for the whole country, or sorry, for the whole world by September 2020. No, 2020. Well, this, the article says 2020, but uh, we're obviously a year late for that one. I think they mean 2021. A uh, little typo there for you, Business Insider. And... Um, what else does it say in this article about Starlink? I know a lot of people are super excited about Starlink, myself included, because that unlocks the ability for lots of new lifestyle changes that have never been possible before. Uh, 
And it brings up yet my uh, an opportunity for me to bring up one of my favorite kind of social anthropological um, um, points around people can really only live in areas where there's connectivity. <clears throat> so it's called the dry, tribal drum theory, where tribes only lived in areas where they could hear the, the local village drum until radio came about. And then the, that enabled the size of cities to flourish to the size of the radio tower. And then the internet came in and that enabled people to live wherever they could get uh, connectivity. And now with the internet going truly global, you now can live truly globally, uh, deep into you know, the Amazon, live on a boat in the ocean, it just became a very real thing. And, um, you know, van life becomes a real thing. Living on, buying your own tropical islands just became a very real thing. And uh, I imagine it will have down the road uh, a notable impact on the value, the perceived value of remote islands, actually, with the combination of vertical takeoff and landing vehicles and Starlink and the price of um, uh, uh, solar panels and, and batteries dropping as they are, and desalinization systems. Although you can, on most islands, you can build a deep well, but if it's a really flat island, you might need to do desal. But um, I mean, why, if living on your own island is becoming a very real thing now due to Starlink and all the other supporting technologies. So anyway, uh, the about SpaceX and Starlink, they're looking to provide Starlink satellite internet globally by this September and connecting in-flight internet service for airplanes. The company has been working on launching 42,000 Starlink satellites into orbit by 2027 to support its global broadband signal. Global coverage of Starlink service could allow more and more rural and underserved communities to get fast broadband. And they just launched a UK limited test service earlier this year, charging 89 pounds or $123 a month, plus the the cost for the satellite dish, according to the Telegraph, more than 500,000 people have placed an order for Starlink Internet, Musk said in May. Ofcom, the UK's communications regulator, said last week it was, it is updating the terms and process for obtaining licenses for low-orbit satellites like the ones Starlink uses, and we're halting any current or new applications. However, the regulator said they were in the final stage of issuing one license that was developed with their proposed guideline. Ofcom did not comment on who filed the application. Starlink could not be reached uh, for comment, but uh, making a lot of progress. So n let me tweet that out for those who want to uh, retweet it potentially from the Tech News Twitter account. There we go. Next headline is um, a report that uh, has that says that Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube and TikTok failed to act on 84% of posts spreading anti-Semitism reported via their own complaint systems. And so now you've got the, the Guardian and the BBC and all kinds of publications covering this one around the world. So let me just give you a quick little peek at the BBC one where it says, Major social media platforms failed to take down 80% of anti-Semitic posts. And the Center for Counterfeiting Digital Hatred said uh, it reported more than 700 posts containing anti-Jewish hatred, which had collectively been viewed 7.3 million times. The research covered Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. Facebook was the worst performer, failing to act on 
89% of posts in the report called Failure to Act. The CCDH accused several of the tech giants of being safe places to spread racism and propaganda against Jews, which begs the question, uh, why why go to that Getter app, uh, the, the, the Trump the Trump supporter app, when you can do it all on Facebook, I guess. So one in... Tyler, I got a quick question. Yes. Uh, if you were finished with your thought, because sometimes I have trouble making out if you're done. I'm just going to read a little bit more of this article here where it says it gives a breakdown of the stats of... Um, it talks about using the tools offered by each platform. The researchers collected 714 posts, examples it claimed were clearly violation of the social media firm's firm's own policies. For example, Holocaust denial. um, And they were reported through ordinary user accounts. And so what they're doing is they're flagging and saying, hey, this is against your own policies of, you know, Holocaust denial. You've even said yourself is a violation of your platform. Here's Holocaust denial post. Please do something about it. And then they measure the response from each platform and each social network had a different sample size of the 714 posts as follows. Facebook acted on 14 out of 129 posts that were reported, which is 10%. Twitter removed 15 out of 137, which is fairly better at 11%. TikTok removed 22 out of 119, which is 18%. Instagram acted on 52 out of 277, which is also 18%. YouTube had the best result, which took down 11 out of 52, which is 21%. On average, uh, 84% of reported posts were not acted upon. So um, looks like they got some work to do, even when stuff is reported. And they make the comment that generally the accounts aren't banned uh, or even suspended. And in most cases, they just put a pop-up on on the content saying this may be, you know, um, offensive content. So mm, go ahead, Frost. Yeah, I was just wondering, um, since you mentioned uh, Facebook, in one of the headlines earlier about Zoom from um, Bloomberg, what was the issue between Facebook and Zoom? I never understood that, nor had I ever heard of it. I'm not. I'm not aware. Okay, because there was in in the in the Bloomberg article that I had tweeted out, it had said, um, it had said that Facebook that there was leaks of data from Zoom to Facebook as well. They're selling data to them. Okay. Uh, I'll have to find that. When are we we'll get to there. There. There were lots of proprietary discussions on Zoom meetings that ended up in Facebook's lab. Okay. We will... Regarding anti-Semitism concept, I'm actually kind of curious if someone knows the technology. So Instagram has this uh, technology that they everything every time you post something related to vaccination or COVID, it gives you the reference, right? We see it like down the screen. We see it right, either down the post, or down the story screen and so on. And I don't understand what's the problem of making something similar about anti-Semitism or Asian hate or, you know, like uh, any sort of racism on social media. Does anybody know what's the problem with that? To implement Sorry, the exact Stella, same technology? Is that related to the question I asked, Stella? No, no, it's related to the topic that we touched before you asked your question. 
Okay. She's talking about. If you, like you have anything to talk or... about, yeah. Uh, Faraz, yeah, we were, t- were talking about anti-Semitism, and then you kind of put new one. No, I'd ask so the question. I decided to come in. I was. I, I'd asked the question before you came back with that, and then I stopped because he was commenting further. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Tyler, I, you want to take the yeah, question, or would you like? To I can't answer the question because I haven't seen the article. So I got to. Once we get to it, we'll okay. jump back into that. Sorry, Sarah. Let's get back to anti-Semitism. Okay. So the what? What was your point, real quickly, again, Stella? Uh, I'm just curious. What like why Instagram and probably the whole group like of Facebook and Twitter cannot install the same technology that they use for COVID. So every time you post something related to vaccination or COVID, Instagram uh, notifies and makes this sort of link like COVID information, look at the COVID information centers, centers of vaccination or whatever. And I'm just curious, why cannot they use the exact same technology that allows them to instantly identify that you're talking about vaccination or COVID, same, same technology that will instantly identify that People are talking about, uh, I don't know, Asian hate or anti-Semitism or like something like this, some some aggression, some, some form of aggression. Yeah, <clears throat> um, I think what you mean is why don't they? Uh, of course they can. Uh, it's not a technical. Yeah, exactly. Why don't they? Yeah, it's not a technical issue. So yeah, why don't they is a good question that I don't think anyone has the answer to, uh, other than Michelle, uh, who I don't think is on stage at the moment. Oh, just checking. No, she's not. So we would only be guessing. So the um, but what I think it does speak to is in both cases, um, it does is another example of why we're likely to see identity verification uh, required for these platforms um, in in the not so distant future, which there was another headline about when we met um, eight hours ago. And I'm, I'm Cal, do you happen to remember what the 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 headline we read in the last meeting related to identity verification um it escapes me at the moment no i'm yeah. just i'm just i'll check through yeah there was another interesting headline about ident- oh it was a profile in the new york times is what it was um let me let me get shh, let me see if i can find it Tyler, while you're looking for that, I've noticed in the past week or two that, you know, friends and social media contacts have become verified. I mean, so they're semi, semi public figures, but not like not A-listers. And it's just been really interesting to see people, you know, convert from being just a regular account on Facebook or Twitter to having the little blue check. Um, so, so I don't know if there's some sort of experiment or pilot that's launching, but I don't ever remember seeing just, you know, semi-random, somewhat public people, um, getting verified in such a short period of time. On Twitter? On Twitter? Yeah. In particular. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I told you they they were going to start doing that and it's Twitter even announced their, after a 10 year hibernation, they're bringing back their blue check verification system. And um, you have to apply for it. And they're specific about, about what categories qualify for it because they don't want there, there's no point in doing everybody. It's like verifying my mom isn't so relevant that she's my mom. <laughs> it's like, they, you know, what exactly are we verifying that, you know, if they're they're trying to verify that you are uh, a journalist for this publication or you are somebody of note, they say, like you need a Wikipedia page or something. 
And that, which is a little bit different than just your name is correct. Like the, that we know your name and it matches with a state ID and a face, you know, matching the photo in your state ID, which is kind of a separate issue. Um, but um, the, it looks like they're going to happen anyways, because uh, Australia is going to require it anyways. Canada also is taking step, and the UK are all taking steps uh, in this direction anyways. And there's so much for these countries to gain by doing it. And they have very they have nothing to lose by forcing it. The governments and once once the governments realize that it's technically possible, oh, they're going to make it a requirement, you know, immediately. So as soon as one country forces the issue, which Australia is doing um, and the other countries wake up and realize, ah, shit, we didn't realize we could force the platforms to do that. And they can and then they will. And that'll be that. But um, so and I remember now the article that we talked about was that the head of Facebook's security was talking about how he's seeing a new trend whereby uh, Russia, who used to create large bot armies of fake accounts and China as well, notoriously, those two do more than anybody else. And they um, have shifted strategies because the platforms, namely Facebook and Twitter, have done, have kind of got a, a grip on um, these bot account armies, you know, uh, created by China and Russia. And so now they're noticing that PR agencies are being utilized as sort of uh, intermediaries to do the dirty work and not only agencies, but even users where they're kind of reaching out to users, encouraging them to reach out to journalists to create, write stories and uh, sort of, um, yeah, in influencing journalism and using agencies who then, and then they even say they track it down to the agency and then the agency isn't willing to admit who, which of their clients is pushing them, you know, to do this kind of PR work. So, that was uh, the interesting headline today. So there's been an evolution in the cat and mouse game. So the next article is from The Verge about uh, a new trend coming out of Korea that's worth paying attention to if you're interested in how tech evolves globally. Because um, the, uh, the essence of this headline is about how uh, the K-pop stars... Uh, which is Korean pop music, which is tr the biggest on the planet at the moment. Um, K-pop stars are bypassing Twitter and Facebook to create platforms for fans um, where they have a much more direct ownership of the relationship with their fans and where they're able to directly monetize it uh, and feature AI-generated voice calls with their fans and et cetera. And to just really simplify the article, it, it goes into... Um, yeah, the platform basically allows them to charge for access. There's a free level, of course, and then there's a paid level. But even at the paid level, it's, uh, you know, these acts have tens of millions of fans, in some cases, hundreds of millions. And it creates a AI generated voice call between the artist and the fans. And the fans feel like they're talking to the celebrity when in reality, they're not. But it's quite believable at this point because the technologies have gotten so advanced that it feels like you're having a phone call with, you know, the celebrity and they do the same with SMS. And we've highlighted these technologies in their raw form where you can import 
um, the text of we, the headlines that we've seen related to this technology, for example, is somebody, what company were they at? Facebook had Im made a chat bot based on their ex uh, partners chat logs so that they can continue talking with, you know, their, their deceased loved ones. And in Korea, they're using that to um, monetize. I mean, why not make a real business out of it? And then the question is, well, in what use case can we actually monetize that technology? And Korea seems to be onto it, which is let the big pop acts who have tons of fans create their own version of their ability to talk with their version of Justin Bieber through synthetic SMS conversations and uh, and synthetic phone calls, because you can also do as we've discussed, the the voice printing where you record enough of somebody's voice, it sounds like you can have a phone call with them. And this is a essentially AI generated voice call with your fans. And why not charge them, you know, to do that? And then you can sell that platform to celebrities everywhere. Well, they're they're created it and they're selling it to the big K-pop music acts and celebrities. And it looks like it's booming. So it's very likely to spread throughout the region and then through it'll go as as social commerce did before it, where it social commerce started a few years ago and it's now passing through Southeast Asia and, and India and going into the Europe and the US uh as we speak. This technology of using voice prints and, and AI to do you know voice generated phone calls and SMSs, um if it really sticks there and it seems like it's sticking something to be noted notable of because if you're a an entrepreneur looking for the next hot thing that could be one of them so what else profile of uh some nft thing and that's just it, uh, i don't even want to get into the nfts again can i just tie up a couple of one or two cents if you don't mind yeah go ahead Okay, so uh, I tweeted out to Tech News Around the World the, the relevant Wall Street Journal article on the Robinhood IPO, so it, it should be self-explanatory, and uh, or, and, and if um, until you know you get around to retweeting it, you know you know my thing is uh, at kifcap.com or kif that actually it's not that com that's my email at kifcap is the Twitter handle, um, so you can take a look at it. Um, the other thing I just wanted to touch base on the thing you said about the convertible bonds. Um, I actually worked um, when I was doing institutional investing, but we were the largest player in the convertible bond space in, in, in the United States. So I know I know the area well, and I worked on it. And, and I actually went to look at the article that you, you spoke about because I was curious because convertible bond financing is not always more expensive than equity financing. It is, though, in the, what's going on with the SPACs. Apparently, according to the article, they're paying like about 7% interest rates and a lot of convertible bonds now are being priced under 2%. You know, typically if it was a normal convert for a normal operating company. So that's what makes it expensive. They're paying 500, 600 basis points above what a convertible otherwise is going for in the market. But, you know, so, but sometimes convertibles can effectively be cheaper because you're selling equity at a premium, you know. I mean, I could. I don't want to get too far in the weeds explaining how a convertible works unless you were you were interested in it. So I'm going to stop there. Okay. So the next big article. Is, let me move a couple of tabs around here, because we've actually gone through now the the all of the kind of 
relatively boring articles that all of your cousins and coworkers are talking about. And now we get into the sweet, sweet, juicy articles going on all over the planet at the moment. Just, just do a quick refresh. Yep. Yep. Okay. Let's do this. Okay. There's, there's a couple of new ones that just came in. Um, and a, a, this is brand new an investigation, although it's the most, the, now it's the sixth most tweeted article on the internet at the moment, even though it's brand new investigation in the last five years, six EU academic institutions received tens of millions of pounds of funding from Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Microsoft. The search giant has provided tens of millions of pounds of funding to academic investigating issues closely related to its business model. What's this about? It says, Google and Facebook love you and want what's best for you. That's why they censor to help you and keep you safe. <laughs> so someone being a little sarcastic there, but this article uh, that I'm tweeting out now says how Google quietly funds Europe's leading tech policy institutes. The search giant has provided tens of millions of pounds to funding the, to academics investigating issues closely related to its business model because they know that's who's whispering in the ear of politicians and uh, that or that's where politicians go to kind of hash out their plans for future uh, policies. So they certainly want to have these influential thought leaders on their on their side or even worse in their pocket. A recent scientific paper proposed that big tobacco in the 70s, big that's like big tobacco in the 70s. Big tech thrives on creating uncertainty around impacts of its products and business models. One of the ways it does this is by cultivating pockets of friendly academics who can be relied on to echo big tech's talking points, giving them added gravitas in the eyes of lawmakers. Google highlighted working with favorable academics as a key aim in its strategy leaked in October 2020 for lobbying the EU's Digital Markets Act, sweeping legislation that could seriously undermine the tech giant's market dominance if it goes through. Now, a new investigation can reveal that over the last five years, six leading academic institutes in the EU have taken tens of millions of pounds of funding from Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Microsoft to research issues linked to the tech firm's business models from privacy and data protection to AI ethics and competition in digital markets. While this funding tends to come with guarantees of academic independence, this creates an ethical quandary where the subject of research is also often the primary funder of it. Although, yeah. Oil industry does it. Tobacco industry does it. Tech industry is a little slow to the game. But the thing is, they are, they do something also very unique on this. Google, um, when it funds open source projects, it's not always in good faith. Something that's really interesting, if you look at the, the, the history of the projects that they funded historically, um, they typically are the ones that basically accumulate a large amount of technical people but they're just to the side of all the business cases that Google can sweep the money from. Uh, look at Android as an example, just as a, as a spot check on this. They basically open sourced every part of the, the stack except for the radios and the camera, which is the one they basically use to lock down the rest of the platform with. And then which APIs actually get open sourced and which ones don't. If we ever get like some tech savvy journalists that actually dig into the technical parts on this, the reason why this is relevant is the open source movement was basically presented to government and regulators saying, look, we basically are a community, we're neutral, we're going to basically be this, you know, we're entirely free of any sort of corporate business interest. It, it, essentially, to frankly put, I spent a lot of time in the open source community, I think we got used to, to, to be entirely frank. It's been weird essentially looking at the long-term impacts of acting as sort of like a little vanguard unit going tech will make the world a better place and then going oh shit we're just making some people really filthy rich on this oh well well 
give it another shot next time. The Institute for Ethics in Artificial Intelligence at the Technical University of Munich, for example, received $7.5 million grant from Facebook in 2019 to fund five years of research, while the Humboldt Institute of Internet and Society in Berlin has accepted almost $14 million from Google since it was founded in 2012, with the tech giant accounts for a third of the Institute's third-party funding. Some senior academics have failed to disclose their industry funding. Other academics have warned that the growing dependence on funding from the industry raises questions about how tech firms influence the debate around the ethics of the markets that they've created. Researchers at big tech-funded institutions told uh, the New Statesman that they did not feel any outward pressure to be less critical of their university's benefactors in their research, but one who wished to remain anonymous said big tech wielded a subtle influence through such institutions. They said that the they the companies typically appeared to identify uncritical academics, preferably those with political connections, who helped already espoused beliefs aligned with big tech. Companies then cultivate relationships with them, sometimes incentivizing academics by granting access to sought-after data. Companies such as Google and Facebook sponsor universities for outreach and what I would call industrial presence, says Michael Bernard, a former Google academic outreach officer for France. Oh, well, <laughs> well done to the publication for going right to the source there. They actually got the former Google academic outreach officer for France who just shot, uh, shot his previous company right in the face. Um, industrial presence. He worked on developing relationships with universities on technical subjects such as AI and internet and cloud computing, but said he was aware of policy aligned topics gaining importance towards the end of his tenure in 2017. He said that the company would contact a professor or faculty, invite them to make a speech at Google and then explore some partnerships. Um, then we would, of course, have many researchers attending and participating in conferences and events. Kind of some um, looks like big... one of the more fan things is because while, while there are criticisms of Google with things, one thing they did have they have done. I think they still keep this tradition with stuff. Those those when they invite the researchers to speak at their place, many of those are actually online. They're typically kind of extra interesting because they'll typically only have like you know thirty people in the room and like a thousand views on on YouTube or whatever. But like Google Tech Talks are fascinating, especially looking in hindsight of looking at when they launch certain initiatives. <laughs> You can actually retrace a lot of these sort of, some of the more interesting things he's referencing right there. They're actually fascinating talks. Yeah. Yes. Like you said, it's kind of their in-house version of TED Talks. And what else do we got? Let's get into... I'm highly critical of Google, but I, I, I do want to basically acknowledge they do that something... I really wish more companies did that particular tradition of things. I think it's really a cool mm. way of spreading information, but also... I think it puts some accountability in place of going, here's who we're talking to, here's who we're influencing, and you can actually trace it pretty pretty nicely there. A new one from the Wall Street Journal just coming out that New York City Council passes five bills aimed at reducing the power of food delivery platforms, including extending a cap on restaurant commissions to February 2022. New bills in New York could curb some appeal of companies such as Grubhub, DoorDash, and Uber Eats. Um, and I'll get into the article here where it talks about top U.S. cities by total gross food sales. Oh, this gives us a chance to play our very favorite game called Tech News Jeopardy. So what are the one, two, three, four, top 10 U.S. cities by total gross 
food sales uh, of... Is that just going to fall population? Not adjusted for population. That. Well, I would just say New York and Los Angeles' population would matter. That's one and three. San Francisco. Houston. San Francisco is number five. Houston, not on the Chicago. list. Chicago. Chicago, number five. Uh, San Francisco, Seattle. six. Seattle, not on the list. The order Philadelphia. The the order from top to bottom is New Miami, New York, Washington, L.A., Philadelphia, Chicago, San Francisco, San Antonio, Baltimore, Pittsburgh, and Dallas. What what is the uh, competition? The question is top U.S. cities by total gross gross food sales for food <laughs> delivery. Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh's a strange one because its population is not that big. If you started looking at you know big you know the cities by population, so that's that's very interesting. That that means that Pittsburgh per capita is is very high. Yeah, but they've, does got, this... they've got all the robotics universities nearby. Yeah. Does this also mean that people in New York don't like to cook themselves? Correct. That's why they move there generally. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of the reasons people move to New York is because you don't need to cook anything. You have a, a million restaurants out your doorstep. They're one of the best food too, right, New York? You, you, you used to have all those restaurants before COVID. Arguably. Oh, yeah, that's right. So um, the about this new bill, though, um, and so New York, the point of saying that uh, is that New York is double Washington in second place and like triple L.A. in third place for all of the other 10. So New York is way out in front on the food delivery game. And so this bill, which is aimed right at the head of these food delivery companies, is the fact that this bill is happening in New York is very meaningful to their businesses. And uh, the New York City Council has a, has long had a bone to pick with food delivery platform Grubhub during the pandemic. That um, animus or uh, seems to extend to reach the sector more broadly as market share has leveled home to about 10% of the U.S. market and possible harbinger of local measures elsewhere. The city's attitude matters a great deal. The conflict heated up last week on Thursday. The council said it passed five bills meant to shift some of the balance of power away from the food delivery platforms towards struggling mom-and-pop shops. The bills include some straightforward legislation, such as providing a restaurant direct telephone number to eaters and prohibiting platforms from charging restaurants for phone orders that don't result in transactions but they also include more controversial and likely more consequential rules. One, if put into effect as anticipated, would extend temporary caps placed on the commission's food delivery platforms can charge restaurants at least until mid-February 2022. Beyond that uh, was decided last week. The city council says it also scheduled a review of permanent commission cap billed this month and um, forcing them to reveal the phone numbers of the of the mom and pop shops, kind of an interesting move um, because then on the second order, you might order directly from the mom and pop shop. Although maybe not if they, especially if they don't have their own means of delivering it to you, I wouldn't really do you that much good, would it? So, but it does, this whole point speaks to what I've said now kind of multiple times, depending on which time zone you join us in, which is the power 
is in the hands of the app who receives your order and gets your money because they ultimately uh, can replace the mom and pop shop with a cloud kitchen of their own once they realize you know they want to lower margins and they inevitably will do so it's just an inevitable part of the business and they will inevitably grow into doing grocery delivery and every not just groceries but everything delivery and they eventually will evolve into you know there'll be this eventual huge battle between three huge companies to deliver everything to your house in 10 minutes and Amazon absolutely will be in that race. And the question is, which of these delivery apps can grow fast enough to maintain the lead to acquire all of the others during the consolidation phase that's inevitable? And, um, you know, will it be Grubhub or Uber Eats or what have you? So um, it'll likely be also be related to, well, the 10-minute delivery is a little different. It doesn't need to be an autonomous robot, does it? Hmm. It's interesting. But the point that they want to limit the power of these ordering apps tells you where the power really is because they can really start to dictate stuff where they don't really care about any one particular mom and pop shop anymore. Um, and eventually you won't have mom and pop shops at all. They'll just be cloud kitchens making stuff on on the outside of town. There was a hilarious little, it was a bit of an artificial kerfluffle, but it was kind of entertaining for, uh, like, uh, there's a startup that got white combinator funding for disrupting the bodega or whatever, and then New York went just declared war in Silicon Valley for the weekend, but all the, all the tweeters were just going, it's like, no, I love my bodega, screw you, tech, with everything. It was, it was very entertaining to watch. Um, following the UK's CMA European Commission launching an investigation into Facebook's acquisition of customers, spelled with a K, EU sets a December 22nd deadline to examine customer service software. EU will also examine Facebook's ad targeting data advantage. And so this turns us to our fun headlines here, and we've got... We talked about the K-pop platforms. And then here we go from CNBC. A huge movie studio is set to build uh, in the UK. A huge movie studio is set to be built in the UK for the likes of Amazon and Netflix. A vast movie studio is set to be built just outside of London as part of an effort to tempt the likes of Amazon and Netflix to make more blockbusters in the UK. There you go. Just tweeted it out to the Tech News Twitter account at TNATW. And then, Ken, what's your point here about big movie studios are all deciding or have decided whether... Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I said that to you privately, but it's fine. Um, yeah, I was just going back to what you you had said earlier about the, the streamers and what the big movie studios having to compete with Netflix. Most of the studios have decided to start their own streaming services, right. which is, you know, which is... Okay, so that was my point. Yeah. Except it's a bit the late. big ones would... And they need to... They need to gank. There's the other element, which is to have enough content, you need to get a handful of the studios to cooperate and merge together to do that. And by the way, we'll we'll check it out. And that's why Warner Brothers just merged with Discovery. Yes, and AT&T. But why didn't the record labels do this in competing with Spotify rather than partnering with Spotify? And and Well, Sony did by EMI, right? Tried. No, I think they own EMI, don't they? Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, they merged, but they didn't make a streaming platform to compete with Spotify, is my point. 
they got equity in Spotify. Correct. So you know. That was a very clever move by Spotify to disincentivize them from making a potential competitor. But I don't think it was very po- knowing what we know now. I think Spotify would have been like these clowns are never going to figure out how to make a streaming platform. That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> so, and you know what? We, Disney on the we know that because these streaming, these movie studios, a decade later, still haven't figured out how to make a streaming platform for the most part, with the exception of, you know, Disney. Uh, no, Disney and HBO and Paramount, but you're right, Paramount's way behind. But the other point I made in that note I sent to you, but that, but Sony... It's, it's, it's still a decade later, meaning the Hollywood... They sued. Yeah. They sued everyone with the technical chops to do it out of existence. Correct. They basically built... The pirates built the streaming platforms for the movie Correct. studios. Literally, all they had to do, it was like the easiest thing ever, is they just, instead of sending over a lawyer, they just send over one of the biz dev guys and say, hey, can we put branding on this? Could we put ads or a pre-roll? And can we just basically put your service with a little, you know, like a little, uh, uh, with, with some nice design, a little uh, little credit card thing for essentially for a subscription? That's all they had to do. It would have taken like 12 dudes going, <laughs> to if, roll the entire if they thing. Could go back, for if they could go back in time, they would have bought Napster rather than try and sue it out of existence. Well, of course. Or send them the lawsuit, tell them you're going to sue them out of existence, and once they realize that they're up against the wall, then say, you know what? How about we just, you know, uh, buy you for a pennies on the dollar because you're going to go out, you know, you're going to get sued out of existence. But it was I, it was actually Cal at, here on stage who ended up buying Napster, ironically from Best Buy rather than the movie studios. And what would the world look like today had the movie, you know, if the record labels had got together and bought Napster and kept Sean Parker there, holy cow, that could have been Spotify. Uh, a whole different game. Oh, my God. The world. Game. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, so for me, you know, kind of growing up in that era, for me, what got me to stop downloading music was Apple having a store. Right. And them making it so cheap. It was 99 cents a song. It's right. like, you know. I'm not going to get a $500 fine for a 99 cent song. I'm paying for the, for the song. And I think as we evolved into the, you know, the Spotify model, that's what really opened the door to the streaming, you know, cause th- there was still some deterrence to buying a song for 99 cents. But when you get told 10 bucks, all you can eat, that becomes a no brainer. And that also matters for the movie because the studios, cause actually the critical uh, mistake that the studios made re- regarding Netflix was in at least in, in the United States for people who remember it, you, you know, pay per view movies used to be thirteen, fourteen, fifteen dollars per movie on pay per view through cable Ooh. or satellite. If they would have repriced that, they would have reworked their deals, and they would have come up with an all you can eat product, or well, you get a movie for a buck or two rather than thirteen dollars. Netflix never would have been able to get traction. But they couldn't because essentially every single executive is skimming off of a different part of those deals with steering essentially, oh, you're doing the title sequences. Well, I've got a you know friend with it. essentially he does the title studio with it. And by the way, I'm going to basically collect like 5% of this part. And then, oh, you're working with this actor. I'm collecting off of there. So like the entire politics behind it locked them into a really inefficient model. Netflix that, that's just correct. Goes, the windows. Yes, you're correct. Yeah, yeah, Netflix just comes in and goes, screw it. We'll take a $10 billion loan from Wall Street. Here's the terms. We get to give you a script approval in 24, 48 hours with things. Here's how much the algorithm says you're going to get for your budget. Here's the server where you upload it with technical standards. Have fun. Let's know essentially. Make these two changes and we're done. And that's, that's, that's the limit of their involvement in some of them. Some of them go really depth on the things. But, I mean, they have an entirely different set of incentives 
And the key part about it is that their pricing contracts and the things that they have for where it is, they're not locked into the same system. Now they kind of are right now, but they get to they get to set the terms on that. When you see like where right now, essentially with like you know, there's a Black Widow thing, and, and uh, is is one of the things happening where they're like, oh, she's getting paid out of the box office revenue. Wait, well, streaming's totally different about that because you do it on the internet. It's 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 a make believe concept. It doesn't it doesn't connect. And so then we're not paying her out of those. And so they're having you know lawsuits over this. And the fact is, is that they haven't had that in the contracts like over the past 15 years. I mean, I, I've literally been like with some, some people that have been like more tech savvy and, and Hollywood with stuff. And they were trying to, the one I was working with was in the video editor guild, right? And they were trying to say, look, you need to basically price out aggressively negotiating terms for essentially what artificial intelligence is going to mean for the sector, what deep fakes are going to do, what other things are going to happen with essentially for streaming other parts. And the union basically was like, this seems like really sci-fi. Do we really want to basically sacrifice any political points? Let's punt it down the, and we'll maybe renegotiate this in five years. And it's like, no, you fools. <laughs> You're missing your opportunity to completely set the industry terms and the norms. By the time that someone else does it for you, it won't be to your favor. But by the time these groups figure it out, it's already gone. I mean, so many executives were basically offered the, the same terms that Netflix has with stuff on silver platters, and they just throw it away. So, like, it's less about they failed to build it as it is, like, they just failed to literally take the thing handed to them. So now that they're playing catch-up, it's like I have very little pity for them because it's really sad because they're doing the same thing with all the other sectors that come after. It's just it's a very slow-to-adapt industry. Okay. Next up, we've got the owner of a $875 Bitcoin mining rig uses free electricity at Starbucks, <laughs> where he kept this little <laughs> micro rig hidden under a table <laughs> at a Starbucks. And he's very proud of it. He's posing with his little device. Uh, the owner of this tiny $875 rig mines Bitcoin uh his name's Eden Abada. His rig looks different from the rows of whirling ASIC uh, processors that have become synonymous with crypto mining. But at today's prices, um, yeah, he, he's <laughs> he's one step ahead. Uh, energy piracy is the hot new thing. Our, our kind of micro energy, uh, my, you know, hacking. Very, very interesting thought around that one, as we might start seeing. Uh, yeah, cafes plugging up. <laughs> uh, as long as he buys more coffee while he's there, right? We're probably getting more electricity value. I, I wonder how much electricity he's getting out of. And uh, and in college, I knew people that never bought toilet paper. So maybe this was the same type of person, <laughs> meaning they were taking it out of the uh, student bathrooms and stuff. Oh. Chinese augmented reality glass maker Enreal looks to go public within five years. And they're legit. <laughs> like, for, no, seriously, for people like in the industry with things like they have, um, it, it, here's the embarrassing part of this. So magically they, they spend what, like $3 billion or they raise more than that with things. Like, so they keep, I think they raised another like eight or something from Saudi list stuff. They keep setting money on fire. And they make this impression like you need to have hundreds of employees, maybe even a thousand of them with things, engineers working around the clock and working on all this advanced technology. And they're saying, we're going to own the market. We're the only ones that can do this. And they're like, oh, we're really struggling with some slam algorithms. So they get like essentially this one professor guy, right? And um, uh, he does this thing. So they're like, okay. And it's like, well, so my contract's up. I'm going to go do my thing now. 
And so he goes and says, you know what? I like to watch augmented reality glasses. He does it with a team of 20 people <laughs> with less than like what like was like three or four million dollars creates a superior product to the magic leap. And it's basically like sunglasses form factor that everyone's aiming for. It actually works. Um, and it, and the, also even better than that, because he's got partnerships with the Chinese manufacturers, they're actually able to actually hit the price point targets and like, like at like the 10th of the magic leap price and for uh, closer to a fifth and essentially hit market essentially like months ahead of them with things like almost years in some of the cases. And it, the platform's pretty stinking good with stuff. Um, but the Magic League gets furious at them. And they're, they're where Sue you have existence because you're stealing your intellectual property. Except when you actually look at the who who took from who kind of thing, it gets very embarrassing. And yeah, there's a lot of drama around that. But anyways, in real, they're great. If you check them out with things, um, they're, they're, it's a very decent product. If you want to build a platform with stuff, have some Chinese branding on it, it's, it's, it's a very decent product. I've, I've gotten to play with them. They're very pretty. Okay, here we go. You ready for this? Uh, some fun ones here. So that was the Chinese one. Uh, VR, there's an un unemployment cliff coming. More than 7.5 million may fall off. According to CNBC, uh, programs paying expanded unemployment benefits are ending nationally on September 6th. It doesn't appear lawmakers will extend the deadline again. And we have uh, 3.9 million people, the are now being evicted, or we should say more specifically that the the uh, land uh, landowners or apartment owners are now um, the expiration of the non-evict clause has happened as of August first. So, uh, ostensibly, three point nine million people can now be evicted, and another total of about forty million now claim that they don't have uh, the earnings to pay for next month's rent by next month. So we could see as many as 40 million people become homeless because there's now no longer a law that people cannot evict people who can't pay. I, I, I don't think the 40 million thing is, I think the 40 million might refer to the, the, the kind of the number of people who can uh, afford in, a, you know, afford an apartment in a big city or something. I mean, I think the, the 4 million number is, is the, is, is the correct number, you know, in terms of the people who um, are behind on their, right. you know, rent. And there's also about a million to two million homeowners who've uh, been able to get forbearance on paying their mortgages. Um, and, and that also ends on the same date. Yeah. And this is also, I think it's important to note that it's also pre-Delta variant. Um, I mean, it's starting to rear its head, but unfortunately, I anticipate that there are going to be some economic um, implications of this variant sweeping through the U.S., just as there have been in Asia. Okay. It's also a good point to note that less than 5% of the money set aside to help support people who were in need of that money, less than 5% of that money was given to people to help them in that situation. Okay, next up, we've got uh, this one. Oh, we just did that one. Google's time from Mahogany sent this in from Yahoo. Google's time crystal discovery is so big, we can't fully comprehend it. And we tried to read this article <laughs> uh, <laughs> yesterday, and it is indeed a little too difficult to comprehend. Um, time crystals will be an essential building block in quantum computers, the kind of computers that can solve complex, pro 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 complex problems with incredible speed and power technologies that aren't even invented. Forget Google search and 
researchers from Google, Stanford, Princeton, and other universities might have made a computer discovery so big that we can't even comprehend it, basically. And even Google researchers aren't entirely sure that their time crystal discovery is valid. But if it turns out to be accurate, then Google might be one of the first companies to have the world to give the world a crucial technology advancement for the future. Time crystals will be an essential building block in quantum computers, the kind of computers that blah. Um, and then it goes into what is a quantum computer and Google's time crystals, which were theorized in 2012. The time crystal concept is a new phase of matter. And the, the next web explains that the time crystals contradict one of Sir, Nine, Sir Isaac Newton's famous laws. The first law of motion says that uh, an object at rest tends to stay at rest, an object in motion tends to stay at motion. And so what does this mean to you and me? Google's time crystals do not belong to Google. Even the Google team doesn't know for sure that it has created them. The research is only available in a preprint version as it awaits validation from peers. But if Google did find a way to make them, then next-gen quantum computers might come with time crystals inside. Anyone might be able to create these computers, and they'd bring quantum coherence to a place where there's a lot of decoherence, those relentless qubits from before. Even so, we're still in the super early stages of creating quantum computers with time crystals. Google might have proven that time crystals aren't just theoretical, but in certainly hasn't created any. We, may, we might need decades of quantum computing research to create quantum computers with the time crystals and in them to build warp drives or discover universally effective cancer treatments. And we'll undoubtedly need decades to understand quantum computers and time crystals properly. Google's paper is available at this link. And I'm tweeting out this article I just read to the Tech News Twitter account at TNATW. And fingers crossed they, that they do find it because if we do get quantum computers, that will likely help us solve uh, cold fusion, which will likely solve uh, climate change uh, or uh, certainly put us on the path to solving climate change. Fusion isn't that hard. Say again? Fusion isn't that hard. Just drop nukes down a hole. They figured it out in the 1960s. Project Pacer, if anyone wants to basically look it up, it's really easy. It's just it's politically unviable because we don't want to have lots and lots of nuclear devices lying around. But Fusion, we figured it out a long time ago. All the Fusion since then has basically been research paper generators. Uh, there's a, a whole story on it later today if people are interested. It's it's a fascinating topic. It's actually the, the whole history. That's a fascinating field. Okay. Next up, what do we got? Uh, that was the Google one. Sorry, I got to tweet that out. Now it's tweeted out. And there's the article. And now vaccination passport now available on Apple Pay and Google Pay digital wallets. So that's pretty much sums it up. Vaccination passports. Uh, the race to vaccinate is on. And yes, I know it's not a race, but let's be honest. It bloody well is, and uh, is the headline. And um, the next article says he, he, that ongoing Activision Blizzard drama is back, baby. Here's the latest accusations Activision Blizzard employees have leveled at the company. And it says more disturbing allegations of Activision Blizzard's reported culture of sexual harassment and gender-based discrimination have been reported in recent days following a huge lawsuit filed against the company by the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing. Details in, in these stories may be challenging to read, so we are preferencing them with a content warning for descriptions of sexual harassment. On Thursday, the New York Times posted a story of extremely distressing accounts of Activision Blizzard's culture. Here's one from Shay Stein, a former customer service employee. 
where Miss Miss Stein, 28, who worked at Activision from 2014 to 2017, is in a customer service role helping gamers with problems and glitches, said she had consistently been paid less than her ex-boyfriend who joined the company at the same time and it's cheated and performed the same work. Miss Stein said she had once declined drugs that her manager offered at the holiday party, uh, which soured their relationship and hampered her career. In 2016, a manager messaged her on Facebook suggesting she must be into some freaky stuff and asked what type of pornography she watched. She said she had also overheard male colleagues joking that some women had their jobs only because they performed sexual favors for male supervisors. And former Vice President Lisa Welch shared an account on how an exec asked her to have sex with him because she deserved to have some fun after her boyfriend had died weeks earlier. And so it's a bunch of very, uh, you know, similar tales in this article from The Verge. And the question is, how did The Verge get this? Oh, it was from The New York Times. The question is, how did The New York Times get it? Ah, both The New York Times covered the one that I just read about Mrs. Stein. Vice published a disturbing report on Friday about the story of Emily Mitchell, a security researcher who approached Blizzard's booth at the Black Hat Cybersecurity Conference in 2015 and was harassed by Blizzard's representatives, although wasn't an employee. Um, okay, and then IGN posted a big feature on Friday detailing enormous challenges women have faced at Activision Blizzard. One harrowing example, men would walk into breastfeeding rooms because at one point they didn't have locks. IGN's article also added further details and Activism, Activision Blizzard has taken steps to attempt to address the problematic drinking culture at the company, introducing a two-drink maximum at company events. And that's the end of the article, essentially. So multiple publications are doing sleuthing to get uh, interest, interesting accounts of inappropriate activities by employees and even booth attendees. Uh, Activision's Bluth at a cybersecurity conference in uh, in 2015. And indeed, also the Miss Stein examples from 2014, 2015, 2016. So it will be interesting to see how Activision handles these uh, tech journalists now uh, going through these accounts of former employees and Booth visitors. Um so one of the more bizarre outcomes of things for aside from, you know, getting like an election with things, but uh, one of the more bizarre outcomes from Gamergate was there was this emergence of this uh, idea where um, a lot of the uh, journalists, that, that, uh, especially the editor-in-chiefs of a lot of these uh, publications, um, either in gaming or, you know, cover a lot of tech related type kinds of things to it basically have like you know chat rooms where they all just like hang out during the day and they you know, say hey i'm gonna cover this one oh yeah oh yeah i'm gonna cover this one that thing and they just kind of you know just kind of coordinate you know different uh, different industry pushes and so what this results in is like you know a lot of headlines coming around around out around the same time of uh you know around certain topics or whatever because it often is like the spinoffs of some of those conversations and you know that it's it's one of the the things and they're saying well this isn't like unusual just for gaming it's like a, a lot of a lot of uh, publications in a lot of sectors use similar types of things with this it's just what we do during the day it's just how things are run 
but uh, and, you know they were like oh no ethics and gaming journalism and then it became like this whole big old back and forth and well before you know it, it spun out and became the rest of the internet and you know got chaos today but the reason i bring it up is that when we're talking about like why are they pushing this now I'm wondering what some of those conversations have been recently. Are they talking about more unionization push or something? Is there, is there some like other thing kicking in? Because I get some of this part is almost like, yes, there's underlying issues, but it's not just like the women getting harassed. It's a lot of other issues on top, on top of it. I'm kind of wondering if there's some larger issues that are, you know, being kicked around right now. Hmm. So in the UAE, cinema lovers can now decide how a movie's plot unfolds, unique cinematic experience will be launched across the UAE and Saudi Arabia on August 5th. And I imagine it has something to do with voting on your phone. So that tells the projectionist which um, part of the DVD to skip to. And that's just a hunch. The Facebook whistleblower that we talked about two or three days ago um, has just done an interview with Fox Business and... And is talking about big tech breakups. A former Facebook data scientist who became a whistleblower on her way out of the company last September is calling for more transparency and oversight because she was claiming that the company knowingly um, was being used for misinformation campaigns around elections. And um, note that Murdoch and Zuckerberg don't like each other. And if she's going to to, to Fox specifically, there's there's other things going ooh, on there. That's a really interesting point. And this is specifically on misinformation. She's also, the regulators are breathing down their their back their 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 backs for either one. Really interesting. That's a really interesting point. It, indeed, Murdoch is certainly very high on the list of uh, um, haters of Facebook at this point, and he's known to uh, roll up his sleeves. So that, that that's... also look specifically at Australia. There's some politics going on, on the side where YouTube's giving a strike against Murdoch's empire in Australia for uploading things or whatever. There's specifically around misinformation stuff. So there is there's some high stakes negotiations going right now for which 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 tech giant or media empire gets to run different countries right now. Because another aspect a lot of people don't realize is that they, a lot of this is tied into foreign policy aspects. Where essentially because a lot of these have state sponsors in some regards, so this gets really tricky very quickly. And we see the public versions of these things, but you can you can kind of piece together when you put the put of who's paying for these articles uh, behind the scenes. It gets a little more interesting. Yeah, I think Charles, if he was here, could put some <laughs> interesting, interesting light. Yeah. So, how France tamed Google is the headline from Wired UK. France has hit Google with fines totaling about eight hundred eighty-eight million dollars this year. The money is meaningless. But the changes could be profound, although I don't think so, because that type of money means nothing to Google. So um, Argo AI can now offer the public rides in its autonomous vehicles in California uh, in a partnership with Ford uh, and Lyft. So the, the Ford is the car maker. Lyft is the platform. Argo is the technology that enables the autonomous vehicles now permitted to operate in California fully autonomous uh, taxis have now come to California. Florida breaks daily record of COVID cases, becomes epicenter for outbreak. Florida reported uh, almost 22,000 new cases on Friday, breaking a daily record for the entire pandemic, according to data from the U.S. Center of Disease Control. Well done, Florida. You did it. We knew you could do it. We, we, we were counting on you to do it, Florida. 
bunch of dumb Florida fucks. man. Jesus Christ, you fucking idiots. Holy fuck. Hey, Tyler, yeah. if I could bring you back to your Southern California roots, there's an article in the Los Angeles Times today that um, the uh, St. John's Hospital, Providence Hospital, now called Providence in Santa Monica, yep. that you're probably I, familiar I, with. Despite used, 80... I used to pass that house. I used to eat at the Taco Bell across the street almost every day. There you go. Okay. Despite and, Santa Monica and, having 80%. And, okay. and the Donut King, DK's Donuts, was right there across the street as well. Yes, yeah. that's correct. I, I, I know Santa Monica well, so do you. <laughs> so 80, 80 they have an 80% vaccination rate there. 80% in Santa Monica. Nonetheless, the ICU beds in St. John's Hospital are all full. Wow. Fuck. Because there's 18 million of us assholes in Southern California. There's just no getting around it. You know, go to a parking lot anywhere and you're going to be jammed. So the next one is from the Wall Street, oh, from UCAN on the Wall Street Journal. Tech startup financing hits record as giant funds dwarf venture capitalists. The world's largest investment funds are descending on Silicon Valley with unprecedented financial force, rolling the once niche business of tech startups. Unprecedented. You did that earlier, by the yeah. way, if you didn't remember. I, yeah, but did that this yet. is uh, a different twist on it, a different publication. Yeah. But I love the wording yeah. of unprecedented financial force. Uh, very well. It's good writing. Uh, and then look up who the LPs are with things. A lot of them have sovereign funds behind them. There's all sorts of funds that go yeah. down there. So, that was my point. The v, and that was the point of the article. Anyway, the VC funds are somewhat being disintermediated because yep. you've got pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, traditional mutual funds, you know, all sorts of people participating that used to actually be later in the process. Right. But now they want cutting out the middleman. So the next big one here is how uh, a gaming tech can heal your brain, meaning VR. In this new piece about medical VR, Bloomberg explores how VR tech has become a powerful tool for managing pain, anxiety, PTSD. Features work by USC and our VR team at Cedar sinai And it's a YouTube video, basically, but just tweeted that out. And thank you to William who tweeted that in. Abu Dhabi's Mazdar city to sustainably extract water for air. And the carbon-free technology will create access to clean water, a fundamental necessity in building a greener future. And so just tweeted that out from Faraz. And Poppy has this one from New Scientist. The headline is, wearable devices could use your breathing patterns like a password. Interesting. Subtle patterns in the way we breathe can be used to generate a secure password to keep paired smartwatches and smartphones safe from hackers. Very interesting. And next up, we got this one. Uh, How can that be reliable? Why, if you have a running notes? Read the article, find out. I'm pretty sure it's an SNL skin here somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> in from Nikkei Japan, in-depth look at the fall of China's last Bitcoin mining haven. Government crackdown dooms nation lucrative but energy-intensive sector. I love these adjectives. Yeah. Um, and then the next one is also about China. Xiaomi, their smartphone manufacturer, which I'm, no, I'm known to be a fan of, overtakes Apple as the number two smartphone vendor. Huawei's Decline creates opening while Oppo and Vivo catch up. So, ah, yeah, indeed, Huawei is falling behind. And Xiaomi is just, as uh, Maria and I know, it's just I would not want to be competing with Huawei because 
I, they the prices are unbelievable on their devices and uh they've overtaken apple as number two and they will get to number one because they are they're just it's it's just unbelievable uh so the and startup I've never heard of called Yat. Y-A-T. Anybody heard of Yat? Let's see. Nobody's heard of it. No one? Going once. Going twice. No one's heard of Yat. Good. I'm not alone. Yat is a startup that that um, has $20 million in sales, which is a lot more than, you know, don't worry about how much money it raised. But when you sell $20 million of something, you have customers. So Yat thinks emoji identities can be a thing and it has 20 million dollars in sales to back it up is the headline and the journalist amanda silberling says i learned about yat in april when a friend sent our group chat a link to a story about how the key emoji sold as an internet identity for $425,000. um it was shared in her little chat group and she says the universe would be better if people with a spare $425,000 spent it on mutual aid or something. But minutes later, we were trying to figure out what this whole yacht thing was all about. And a few minutes later, I spent $5 to buy uh, an emoji string that I think tells a moving story about my caffeine dependency and sensitive stomach. On the surface, yacht is a platform that lets you buy a URL with emojis in it. Even Kesha, um, Little Wayne... Uh, are using them in their Twitter bios. Ah, funny. This was created by my friend Eric in Hawaii, in Honolulu, where he figured out how to replace text with emojis for URLs. And now this company, five years later, is trying to monetize it. <laughs> and I wonder if they mention Eric in this article, uh, who was a co-founder of I Can Has Cheeseburger, by the way. And let's see if they mention Eric. They don't. They should. So... Yeah, basically, it's possible to create URLs based on emojis. So you can have a poop emoji and a house emoji and a finger emoji, and you kind of register that as a URL that points to whatever you want it to point to. And so when people in your bio on your social media accounts, you can link to your other accounts with these little strings of rainbow emoji, you know, rocket ship emoji, you know, whatever you want them to be. And as I mentioned, Eric from Iconist Cheeseburger was the one who figured this out. And now this company, again, at least, at least five years later, six, seven years later, is now monetizing it, trying to turn it into a startup by selling. Small little differences in technical committees where it's like, all right, we'll go punt that to the next committee to figure out. And if they never got, get beat back again and achieve some sort of technical standards, <laughs> 10, 20 years later, they say, look, we can make a bunch of money from this oversight. It's, it's, it's amazing how much comes from just tiny little, like, you know, th there was actually some early things that you should have Unicode in the actual uh, uh, Unicode strings in the HTML, uh, in the, in the original things. One of the reasons why they went against that for top-level domains was that they were saying um, these are too easy to create phising things for because there's a significant part of the Unicode sector that, uh, uh, that you can basically say you think you're going to one web address, but it's another. Um, the emoji strings are a subset of Unicode that's a little bit more universally recognized, but it's also a little bit harder to type. Um, it's interesting to see how small little decisions, you know, being a Unicode consortium you know, years ago now, like, oh, wait, they're going to build a whole startup around this. Okay, 
Next up, we've got um, Nigeria loses $243 million 51 days after Twitter ban, according to NetBlock's cost of shutdown tools, which uses the classic free digital app. Nigeria has lost at least $243 million as a result of their Twitter ban. I'm not quite sure how they calculate that, but Dubai's Museum of the Future named one of the world's most beautiful museums. And it does look appear to be so in the photo that I'm looking at. The spectacular venue was ranked one of the 14 most beautiful museums on the planet by National Geographic. And thank you for that, Faraz. And then we turn to Poppy from Mashable. And the headline is, The first public human-operated electric vertical takeoff and landing has officially taken off. The electric aerial vehicle company called Opener just made history with its vehicle called Blackfly. And when you look at the tweet I just swatted on Twitter at TNATW, you will understand why it's called Blackfly because it looks it's black and it looks like a huge fly. And it's a vertical takeoff and landing vehicle. This uh, now is the, I don't know, sixth one that uh, we're now tracking. Um, it's a very hot space indeed. And Florina just sent in one. Florina, you want to share it? Are you on stage? If not, I got it right here. Meet the tiny robot that could save your life someday is the headline from Forbes. And taking a little look, it's a really beautifully well done visually article. It says Bill Gates backed Vicarious Surgical, which is set to go public in a SPAC deal, hopes to reach $1 billion in revenue by 2027 as it takes on the Goliath of surgical robots. And it uh, looks like a great article, so I'm tweeting this out to the Tech News account as usual. And um, this little tech company has this incredibly cute little robot that is kind of the size, the, like the end of your pencil. is, And imagine a, a hollowed out tube the size of a pencil and out of the end of the tube pops out this tiny little robot with two little eyes and two little arms inspired by fantastic voyage when vicarious surgical co-founder and ceo adam Sachs first put on the headset to test his tiny robot in a cadaver it it was completely immersive experience this thing's in your body he says it's a bizarre feeling and uh, indeed it's a, a little robot that can crawl all up inside you and uh, look, looks like you got Bill Gates to invest and Vinod Kosla and Eric Schmidt and Jerry Yang. He's got a whole superstar list of investors behind him on this one. So we'll be tracking that one. No doubt we'll see future updates around this. And yeah, there you go. So I just tweeted that out. And then Joby, J-O-B-Y, which is also one of the big players in the vertical takeoff and landing space. It has a headline today that says the electric air taxi company Jobby completed its longest test flight to date of its full scale prototype aircraft flying over 150 miles on a single charge of the company's lithium ion batteries. The company announced on July 27th. There you go. I think these guys are the closest because um, based on the, the, the hiring, they're hiring hundreds of engineers. And if you look across the space, Kitty Hawk, the others are, you know, 20, 30. So these guys are ready to go. It seems that way. And space could be very large though. Cause I mean, ostensibly you could upgrade like any city, like just, that's just with the current profile that they're doing, like, you know, point to point hopping, you know, with the current ones with stuff, like you could ostensibly extend this to everything from suburbs and other things like that. It's just the economics need to be a little different, but I mean, they're, 
this space could be very large. There's plenty of room for a lot of groups. Yeah, they. Um, I think their real thing is they've already brokered all the deals with the parking lots they're going to be using. So they're using parking structures as their um, as their pads, so to speak. Okay, here we go. The next one up is from ABC News. Elon Musk unveils brain chip implant. It's like Fitbit in your skull. Elon Musk unveiled a coin-sized brain implant prototype developed by his startup Neuralink during an event live-streamed on YouTube. And let's crack this puppy open from ABC News. There's a video included. I just tweeted it out to the Twitter account. I think it's going to blow your minds, although hopefully he doesn't mean literally, of course. Because um, it is connected to your brain, and let's hope it doesn't blow your brain to bits. Uh, that, that's the worst case. Have they solved all the scar tissue issue? Yeah, that's that, that would be worst case scenario is if it blows your mind. Um, it's like a Fitbit in your skull with tiny wires. The, the, but the coin-sized chips developed by Musk's secretive startup Neuralink are a ways off from being used to, in humans. Why does it... What is with all the typos in, in these articles lately? It says, are a ways off from being useful... Oh, useful to humans. Sorry, it's my eyes that erred there. They're a ways off from being useful to humans. Friday's live-streamed YouTube demonstration was a pig named Gertrude who Musk said had a brain chip implanted two months earlier as the pig shoveled around its pen, sniffing hay, a computer beeped uh, and blue wavelengths on the screen jumped up and down. Musk said the computer was measuring Gertrude's brain activity. The beeps you're hearing are real-time signals. And um, yeah, very interesting. Next one is from... Tyler, could I jump in just for some fun on on the Neuralink side of it? Um, I don't know if it's wrong for me to say, oh. um, but I... well, let's find out. <laughs> no, no, no. We're going to find out, aren't we? Go ahead. Aaron. <laughs> it's more, it's more in the sense of like, I'm really excited about this kind of stuff, this implantation and connectivity into, you know, the, the potential of the metaverse, like, and, and getting, getting our brains to the next level. Like, is this a bit too matrixy or am I the only one that thinks this is going to be a cool evolutionary thing? I, I'm with you. I mean, as long as people have the options to unplug from the matrix, then, I, you know, it's it's a lot of potential upside and a lot of potential downside, but it's all optional is the point. The key word in that sentence is optional. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. And like, I, I like that. There's a there's a there's an API released by Facebook recently on their, their Oculus side of things, which allows you to blur the augmented reality or sorry, the virtual reality world to real reality. And you can almost see, as you say, about the option of going into the metaverse or out of the metaverse. If you had that controllability for these implants to immerse yourself in a digital world or stay in the real world, I, I just find it. I think it's going to be a huge leap forward for humans. So I, I mean, here's... As long as long as it's optional. But the problem is, is like if, 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 we, if we're not able to fix the ethics issues right now, if we're not able to fix the, the who owns things right now, then it might not be as optional. It's a policy update away from we change the business terms. But by the way, you still got this implanted in your brain. Uh, one, 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 one quick thing. Um, Max Hodak, the, the, the original founder, CEO of, of Neuralink, uh, Musk kept, kicked him out of the company with things. But if you look at his Twitter... Uh, he's really obsessed with the metaverse stuff right now, which is kind of interesting from his background because he has that kind of uh, the, the, the BCI background, but also the, the, the 3D graphics things. Um, he's linking to some really interesting stuff these days, if, you, if you're interested in that particular intersection. 
and because he's a free agent now with things, you never know what where he might find uh, wind up with things. He's probably he's probably someone you could probably call for interviews or just to talk about stuff, just in that general topic, because he needs something else to do right now. We should get him in, Tyler. We should have him on a metaverse room, right? Mm-hmm. That would be kind of cool. So the Chris, can you can you Chris, if you can tell me his name, I'll reach out to him. Max Hodak is his name. I had lunch with him once, like it was like name? twelve years ago. I haven't I haven't talked to him since with things, but I had a really interesting meeting with him once with things. We talked about all the horrifying things they were doing to monkeys in the labs with stuff, and and I was like, wow, this is scary. And then a friend of mine is like, hey, you remember Max? He got he's working with Bucks and Must now, and I'm like, really? Oh, that that Max? Oh, that's that's cool. But yeah, no, I I, I don't know him at all. Oh, but I, I had lunch with him once. Yeah. Co-founder. I had an email with him once. <laughs> I just invited him to speak at my event, and he was couldn't make right. it. Try again. Yeah. He's free now. Yeah. yeah. Um. So then the I, you gave me a thought, Aaron, on the whole Matrix perspective, which was I think that that the experience will be so profound um, that we will co- understand like just uh, just looking at how smartphones and how everyone's addicted to their smartphones and they're consuming a lot of trash content in the form of, you know, useless video games and whatnot that I hope that we will have the willpower to self-regulate positive content and minimize non-positive content. And it almost will force us, for example, in, in the case of food, we barely regulate food, right? Um, other than the fact that it's not poisoned or you know won't kill you. But in terms of sugar, we don't really regulate sugar. There isn't even really a big sugar tax. And so... Iowa corn farmers making that the case. Yeah, and well, in fact, you need to shove that sugar into something. Fact, Otherwise, you don't get elected to be president. Yeah, we we subsidize sugar. In fact, but then the other point is, in the case of a digital consumption of you know for our eyeballs, it's also hardly regulated. And but when we get into mainlining, it's almost like going from in in the case of drugs where you go from like powders that you sniff into uh injecting you know straight into your veins i mean the that's the neuralink is just a far more concentrated intense purified form of you know uh, so we need to we might need to actually highly regulate the content because likely people will be consuming you know uh, a much more intense, purified form of bad content, and that could be uh, have much more better, longer the detrimental other... effects. Like the, to your point, Taylor, about sugar, uh, I saw a meme the other day saying um, it's more frowned upon today to drink Coke than to take Coke, just because of <laughs> how uh, terrible sugar is for you. Oh, in terms of stigma, yeah, there, that's certainly true in Santa Monica, where Ken and I are from. Yeah, so um, the Fauci and, and, and Tyler, Tyler I, I hear you on that, and and I, and I completely agree, right? I mean, it's it's going to be really tough. I mean, when do we get to a point where you know we regulate so much of people that they 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 lose their own human rights, right? It, it's difficult. But what I would say is. By by connecting the metaverse and BCI, right, the brain computer interface, by connecting those together, there will be the ability to track those. Like, and, and let's just take your example of sugar intake. 
Like if you had a, an implant that allowed you to read a packet of whatever food or identify through not just computer vision, but your own physical cortex, your own vision that says this is an apple and I'm eating an apple and the computer program within your BCI implant can help you understand the sugar content, can help you understand the calorie content and the impacts it has. Like the, the, the amount of data and information that could be given to humans through a BCI interface could be pretty. I mean, your point about experience, it could, it could, it could blow our heads off without actually blowing our heads off. It, it could really be quite different. So very briefly, there's a thing that uh, right. some DARPA studies where they're looking at not just the, uh, the, uh, Hey, look, um, we can basically, uh, you know, like uh, stimulate certain things, but one of the things they're looking at is recording brainwave patterns, um, specifically for stimulating them in mice with such. One of the weirder applications of this is that it seems to be that you can actually do almost like what we're doing with genetics, where it's like, you don't need to understand how it works. You just copy and paste it. And like, Hey, look, this gene goes into this thing over here. Turns out brainwaves might have similar properties for things. Now you don't might, you might be able to record arbitrary signatures and not necessarily know what they do, but you can still replay them elsewhere in the same subject or in someone else's subject and a, or another subject, another person's brain and certain effects start to kick in. Um, this is going to open up a whole line of research with things, but it's also, when we speak about like, you know, the, 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 like getting content or getting information, we're thinking in the terms of having discrete units. So we're basically like, you know, like, oh, it's like this number of images or this amount of pieces of information. It might be a lot weirder, like you're moving your left arm and you have the sensation of essentially being satisfied in life or your cognition saying, I should go do this it might be more these types of sensations that might be actually a whole other layer um, uh, like uh, below the, the idea of a conscious perception. And that gets a lot more interesting because it might not be like a, uh, something where it's like a uh, uh, numbers and symbols. It might be something much more uh, core to, to that. And that starts to get a, a near identity. And that gets a lot weirder <laughs> when we start talking about, we can we monetize this? It's like, well, the sensation of being satisfied with life. Guess what? You can buy it too and make sure that you never basically have to turn that thing off. I mean, there might be weird versions of that. I don't know. It's going to be a strange future here. Can I make a comment yeah. on sugar? Um, Singapore is actually trying to limit the public exposure to the least healthy drinks. So our Ministry of Health will be banning advertisement on drinks that receive uh, the poorest regrading uh, in terms of uh, the um, sugar level because if uh, the sugar level is too high, it'll be bad drinks, right? It's not healthy. So, 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 so in order to do this, I mean, they're doing this in order to make sure it is the poorest grade on all local mass media platforms, including on websites. So and why, why not just ban the fucking drinks? Why ban the ads? If, you're, if they, your goal is to uh, stop people in from... 2000, in 2018, they were actually uh, asking the public regarding this banning of the drinks or, you know, uh, imposing tax on sugar. So I think, you know, uh, I guess the uh, feedback was probably, you know, against it. But uh, right now they're just going to like, it's, it's going to be like cigarette. They don't want people, they don't ban it uh, totally, but they tax it really high and they don't allow advertisement and they don't even allow you to display on your showcase. So it'll be something similar. Okay. So the there, there was actually a study done, Tyler, that showed that the increase in, in taxes on cigarettes, uh, uh, had barely no effect 
on people reducing the amount of cigarettes that they smoked. It was less than less than one percent. That's fine. So they increased the tax on it, and it it didn't change anybody's mm, habits. No, it it changed the revenue for the government. That's what it changed, and hopefully they're correct.、Um, well, yes, correct. <laughs> yeah, for the part of cigarette, of course, in Singapore they also make it very difficult to smoke. I, I would say because they can only I, the data, <laughs> in specific areas. The、yeah. Scandinavian countries highly tax alcohol, and it does have a very tremendous impact on consumption of alcohol in Scandinavia. Yeah, that's why all Finnish people go to Saint Petersburg for like alcohol shopping. Yeah, and that's how we know that it does. <laughs> and you, and that's why people go to the liquor store. It creates all kinds of interesting social behaviors where people will, you know, drive, you know, to the whatever country's nearby that has the cheaper、uh, alcohol and bring it across in pallets, and then people will have parties. At their houses on Friday night and get drunk before they go out, and because they're buying the alcohol directly from the state store or it's the cheapest, and then they go out drinking later when they're already drunk, and then that creates a need to have drunk monitors at the front door of every venue to make sure the people aren't too drunk who are now arriving to go to the clubs because they already they all got drunk at home. And then they block the ones who are too drunk to be allowed into the venues. So it just creates all kinds of interesting social outcomes that you wouldn't have anticipated simply by putting high taxes on alcohol. So, but it does generally reduce the amount of、uh, alcohol consumed. So the、uh, somebody sent out a tweet,、uh, and Elon just responded to them. And the tweet was, "I'm ninety percent sure Tesla will pull off robo taxis." I've done extensive testing and concluded that no fundamental problems remain. It can really be done. I'm positive about Tesla. And then Elon Musk responded, saying, "This should be clear to anyone who has experienced the full self-driving beta evolution. Self-driving requires solving a major part of real-world AI, so it's an insanely hard problem. But Tesla is getting it done. AI day will be great," he says. And someone else tweeted, "Thank you." Arctechnic for giving me a ride of full self-driving Beta Nine. Holy crap, it's so good! What a massive improvement over 8.2. Great job, Tesla. And Elon says several improvements coming in version 9.1 on Friday at midnight. So、um, he's he's responding to a lot of people on Twitter about the full self-driving Nine Beta, and he's already saying that 10 will blow people's minds and 11 will likely be, you know, the real deal, which would put I don't know what if it will get us to uh, 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 autonomous level three point five or maybe even four in the next several months. Who knows? But we'll be watching, and he's very confident uh, that uh, robo taxis will be happening. Doctor Fauci warns that things are going to get worse with COVID. Who who could have foreseen that? Where Myanmar has fifty percent of its people with Delta and. That's what's going to happen all over the U.S. in places where they, because you guys are all rubbing all up over each other and jumping and licking and you know, and we're not doing that over here, and we're still getting fifty percent. So you guys are going to be in for some fun over there. So、um, homes lose water as wells run dry in drought ravaged basin.、Uh, this is from ABC News, just from today. Trying to survive is the headline. Trying to survive, wells dry up amid Oregon water woes. Oh, so now it's spreading to Oregon. Lovely. 
dozens of domestic wells have gone dry in an area near Oregon, California border, where the American West's worsening drought has taken a particularly harsh turn. Trying to survive is the headline. Trying to survive because we've run out of water. What is The question is not whether or not there's a solution. The question is, is the solution easier than moving? That's the question. Because the the easiest solution is to move. (laughs) Dozens of homeowners' wells have gone dry, leaving them with no running water in an area near the Oregon-California border where the American West worsening drought has taken a dramatic toll. Malin, Oregon. Judy and Jim Shanks know the exact date their home's well went dry, June 24. Since then, their life has been an endless cycle of imposing on relatives for showers and laundry, hauling water to feed a small herd of cattle and desperately waiting for a local well drilling company to make it to their to make it to their name on a months long wait list. The company's well is among potentially hundreds that have dried up in the recent weeks in the area near the Oregon California border suffering through a historic drought which is by the way is just starting and will last a hundred years leaving homes with no running water just a few months after federal government shut off irrigation to hundreds of the region's farmers for the first time ever officials have formed formal reports of 117 empty wells but suspect more than 300 have gone dry in the past few weeks as the consequences of the Klamath River Basin's water scarcity extends far beyond farmers' fields. Worried homeowners face waits of six months or more to get new, deeper wells dug because of the surging demand, with no guarantee that those wells, too, won't ultimately go dry. Some are getting by on the generosity of neighbors or hauling free water from nearby city. The state also is sending in a water truck and scrambling to ship more than 350 emergency storage tanks from as far as Oklahoma amid a nationwide shortage of the containers due to drought-induced demand across the U.S. West. The first tanks arrived Thursday. Come the th- uh, fr- an elderly friend of mine just bought a house there to retire in Portland. Smart. Make sure she's got a deep well. Come, uh, uh, come December, make sure she's got a desal system with a 3D printer to print the parts when they break. <laughs> That's how you do it. <laughs> There's a little tip from your Uncle Tyler who's been who's had a, a little more so, so tyler can i get really real yeah. like what's the number really? for an island in your neighborhood um well you can do the philippines where you can for you can they start at around three hundred fifty thousand, and the issue is it it doesn't have a high enough um terrain to have a deep well because if it's a really flat, I wouldn't recommend a flat island for for many reasons. Um, but I would focus on one that has a bit of a hill on it. And that's kind of a different thing. Um, and then you're, well, it doesn't really change. What do you have against flat islands? Aren't they like beautiful during storms? Uh, they're beautiful. The oceans are rising and uh, they're not defensible. So if ah. if you put a farm on it, um, you don't need to make it defensible necessarily. Uh, it's just, you know, if you want to take things to the nth degree and have a defensible island, um, then you're going to want one that isn't easily approachable by boats. You're going to want to, uh, put like missiles on it too, like just to really go you up. Can, you can get quite creative in terms of your defense systems and it's limited. Your effective usage, 
you say space, right? Uh, is how many feet above sea level? Well, my point is, is that you want to be able to have an island that has an aquifer, uh, and um, so that you can have fresh water by doing a well. Otherwise, you need to do a desal system, which I would recommend having anyways as a, as a sort of backup. The, the issue with desal systems is they're prone to, they're energy intensive, so you'll need quite a bit of solar. And they're prone to breaking, so you'll need a 3D printer to reprint the parts. It still rains a lot in Singapore, so that's a good place to go to. Well, it, But they don't easily expensive. give you PR or... Uh, citizenship so that's one issue yeah well the other issue with the philippines the philippines is getting more and more water every year and the problem is they're getting too much and it's because they have typhoons correct you my next sentence was you're going to need to figure out how to build typhoon resistant structures to live in that's actually the the most challenging bit of it but you will not you won't have a shortage of water that's for sure you're going to have more water than you can possibly handle right so problem solved if you're as long as you can deal with the typhoons. If you come into Thailand, you avoid the typhoons. Um, you still get the rain, um, but yeah, then you've got Myanmar. I, I think Myanmar's got a tremendous opportunity, um, and it's it's a sticky issue with the now that they have the military junta running the show there. But it's conceivable that they might start selling the islands. And it's also very conceivable that Thailand will do the same. I mentioned Thailand is now the the deputy prime minister ha- is now floating a bill through the parliament to, for the first time in the history of Thailand, legalizing land ownership by non-Thais. So that changes the dynamic. And of course, uh, Skylink, a, a Starlink does as well. Yes, Cheryl? Starlink. I'm not sure your exact location, but do you have any risk of uh, tsunami? None. I'm in the Gulf oh, of Thailand, so you would have to the the tsunami would have to turn Phuket. ninety degrees. Mm. Yeah, Phuket mm. is open to the Indian Ocean. I'm not open mm. to any ocean. I'm in a I'm on a bay on an island, and my beach mm. is on is on the breakwaters is man. on the north side of the island, which is facing Bangkok. So the the a tsunami would have to enter from around Cambodia, go up towards Bangkok, and then do a 180-degree U-turn and come down south. <laughs> kind of unlikely, because uh, okay, yeah, I've, yeah, I've not seen waves or swells do 180-degree U-turns to attack a north-facing beach inside of the Gulf of Thailand. You never know, Tyler. They might make an exception yeah. for you. So, or you could have uh, a tsunami... <laughs> somehow triggered between bangkok and you know in in the gulf of thailand but there's no there's no um uh, fault lines there to happen so anyway but to back to your question chris yeah if your budget is north of three hundred thousand, you should be able to find something and i think there's going to be a lot more somethings on the market is uh now with thailand opening up uh, a lot of land ownership opportunities and Myanmar might put their islands up for sale because they're going to need a lot of money fast, which means also legalizing foreign land ownership. And um, why not there? They have 700 islands. Thailand has 1400 islands. Philippines has thousands of islands. And all of these countries are now trying to figure out how to, because they are so dependent on tourism, Philippines, is number one in terms of 
uh, GDP as a percentage of tourism, which is like 80%. Thailand's number two. So now that tourism's kind of been smashed, they got to get very creative. That's why they're now going to legalize foreign land ownership and also likely start selling off their islands. And yeah. And they just legalized online gambling, even though the president was much against it up until now. He basically conceded we need the money. Philippines? Yes. Do what to work yeah. yes. So they got now's the time. Timing's good. And and vertical takeoff and landing vehicles is gonna change the game. Starlink's gonna change the game. All of the tech around lithium batteries, solar, that's all trivial now. Deep wells is trivial. Desal systems, the the guy is here, he's an American here at Empatia. He has fantastic desal systems that he sells custom to however many liters you need per per day or per hour. So it's all totally doable now. And anyway, so 300 is... Hey, Tyler, and, and, really, and sorry, hey, Tyler, go ahead. Sorry, hey, Tyler, just quickly, um, uh, him has just started the Canadian. Okay. Um, so we can hang here for... And then, and then eventually... Let's just yeah. run through a quick uh, few here. Anyway, so Oregon's running out of water. Um, you'll need deep wells. Um... You, or you can do desal in California, of course. No, maybe you can't. I don't know that the California coast or Oregon coast will let you take ocean out of the water for desaling it, running a pipe across the state beach like that. So who knows? But um, yeah, California seems to be in a bit of a pickle. Although that might be one way to solve it. Just do um, air capture, do deep welling and, yes. and desaling in California somehow. And then because the land might, you know, I don't know, 10 years from now, you might have a sell off as people are forced to evacuate unless they're able to make their own off grid systems there. So that's that headline from uh, ABC News that Oregon's run out of water. And we had a headline when we met about 10 hours ago that um, Lake Mead and Lake Travis, which service 40 million people in Southern California, are about to go dry and will likely go dry by the end of the year, which means 40, 40 million people in Southern California without water. Sequoia launches fellowship for women founders in ASEAN and India, uh, which I think Vinay mentioned, or somebody, uh, Nikkei Japan reporting that Sequoia is launching um, um, additional focus in, in Asia and India. A hundred company to give $100,000 to 15 promising female entrepreneurs annually. Fantastic. Next up, we got a profile on Sam Bankman, uh, who's the uh, brilliant 29-year-old co-founder or founder and CEO of cryptocurrency derivatives exchange FTX based in Hong Kong. And you can read all about him from Fortune in the Tech News Twitter account. And Cheryl just sent in one from Bloomberg. For many global businesses, Hong Kong, where FTX is located, is still the main gateway to the lucrative mainland market how long this divergence between business and politics can continue is an open question and that's a great point and that's what uh, joe biden's warning all of the american companies in hong kong about which is it might not stay divergent for long and there's all kinds of interesting tea leaves to be read which indicate that hong kong might not well it already isn't what it was six months ago actually and uh welcome to singapore Sing well, singapore is stands to benefit more than anybody as the kind of new Hong Kong. 
China's. It's yeah. kind of the Lake Mead article is, is 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 wrong. If you actually read it, you can see the mistakes. What's that? I mean, I live in Vegas. It's I know, I know where Lake Mead is. It's thirty. It's with thirty percent. But more importantly, the article actually goes on to say by two thousand seventeen, which is actually four years ago, there's a fifty percent chance that the reservoir could drop so low. You know, blah blah blah. So so they're writing it. This article is actually from two thousand eight, I believe. From two thousand and eight. Yes. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah. Let's find a let's find an up. Let's do a Google search on Lake Mead and uh, Lake Travis and see what comes up. The, the, Lake Mead's at thirty percent. Um, they actually what they had to do though, there was a straw, literally kind of like a mechanical straw that would siphon uh, the water out to put in the Vegas, you know, drinking, you know, Vegas drinking water. So the the, the lake actually dropped below the straw. So they had to put a straw, in, a, a second straw in that was lower that can actually still take in the water. It's a problem, but believe me, um, you know, I wouldn't be living here anymore. And so it, no, nobody else would be living in Vegas if they can get out, if they thought there would be no water by the end of this year. I mean, think about no, that. No, they'll stay there until the water becomes intermittent. That's just the nature of humans. As rats in a cage, they're just going to be completely oblivious to it until the tap stops. Oh, that's probably hey. true. But, but, but it's, it's not going dry at the end of this year. That's not true. Okay, well, let's keep an eye on it. But last week, last week, uh, my wife and I visited my first manager in Las Banos, and along the way, we found on 152 uh, Lewis Reservoir and all that with hardly any water. So in general, the water situation is bad around San Francisco Bay Area and so on. So. so the next headline from Cheryl, CNBC: China's economy is facing several risks: an aging population, less working age people, and rising wages. So, how is the country responding to these threats? CNBC's uh, Arjun Karpal find find out why a big part of the answer is automation and how it works. Yeah, it's called robots. That's what they're going to do. And the next one is from Wired. Uh, who's winning the war between Biden and Facebook? The answer is Fox News. Misinformation on the cable channel may be responsible for more vaccine hesitancy than the social network. Well, that's the opposite of what we've been reading in the headlines lately, by the way, which says Facebook is on the data is worse than even Fox News. Um, and this one from The Economist that will NVIDIA's huge bet on artificial intelligence chips pay off the, unass yes. the unassuming chip giant giant was early to the AI revolution and remains ahead of rivals. And I, Chris, was that you saying yes? I yes. completely agree. This is, I mean, it's not just the AI chips. It's the fact that essentially it gave them an excuse to move way on down the stack. They used to just do the GPUs for the gamers. And the fact is that those general purpose chips can be used for every other market for anything in semiconductor. They basically moved from basically being an ancillary a, a component for, you know, essentially uh, over entitled is the wrong word, but very uh, a niche market segment to becoming a dominant foundational core component for Western civilization. Oh, and, and China too and stuff. It's just it's a general like GPUs now basically as AI chip processors. Um, 10 second version of this AI processors are basically GPUs with about 90% of the the parts just chopped off. It's just a little 12 calculator thing and use ALU and you just copy and paste a few thousand of them around in a sea of memory. That's that's literally the entire AI architecture. It's why you can design with a team of 12 people. They're not that hard to design. The hard thing is to build them in huge quantities and they've mastered these ma monster-sized wafers. So the thing is, 
unlike Intel and a lot of the other groups, they said, eh, we'll let someone else essentially do the innovation stuff. We're just going to basically just, you know, TikTok cycle this up. They basically said, we're going to be aggressive about this. And now that any sector that basically has profits, whether it be the self-driving car people, whether it's computer vision people, maybe some cloud AI, any one of these groups that basically sees market share growth is going to drag them along with it. And so they, they bit big and they're, they're seeing the windfalls from this. I mean, it's, when we talk about the FANG stocks or whatever, I'm very much in, uh, looking forward to essentially as NVIDIA starts to really start hammering in that and, and becoming a thing there. Okay, here we go. So um, Pixel, Google just uh, revealed Pixel 6. This is the Pixel 6, 6 Google's take on ultra high-end phone. So it's uh, Apple, as usual, will announce exactly one month from now the iPhone 13 or whatever they decide to call it. Maybe it's the 12S or whatever, but um, Google's getting a jump one month early and announcing their competitor, the Pixel 6. And you can read all about it um, on the Tech News Twitter account that I'm tweeting this one out right now. Does any Does anyone think that Facebook's going to try to buy a handset maker? They've been trying for over a decade and a half, and they keep on being late whenever they try to do a hardware project. They, 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 they literally tried to hire like the head of DARPA with everything. They've started like six different hardware labs. They, 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 Oculus is the farthest they've ever gotten with an actual hardware product that has some level of consumer adoption, but they will always try to launch some sort of thing in that space. But it, it, they've been late to it each time. And let's see here. The next one was kind of interesting. It says um, it's about a fast food, I'm sorry, a fast delivery startup in Europe called Gorillas, which Amé has talked about because they service Netherlands and Germany, and is predicting that its annual run rate, meaning how much money it makes, to grow from $34 million in January to $2.6 billion by the end of the year. That's basically zero to 2.6 billion, relatively, according to a presentation prepared for investors in April, seen by Sifted, which is part of Financial Times out of Europe. It's kind of the the arm of Financial Times that covers startups. It's called Sifted, and it's, I have several friends who helped start it, and they cover Stockholm. So, um, and then they startup has ballsy pitch deck. Yeah, they exactly nice nice projection curve. That's insane growth, but at what cost? And the headline is kind of the interesting bit from sifted and let me read it here it says uh gorilla is gorillas the new we work what does the future hold for on-demand grocery startup gorillas and um give me one second to bring up the 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 way that they phrased it where it says um um Gorillas. Ah, current and former employees at German grocery delivery startup Gorillas describe arbitrary firings and ex- exploitation of riders who do are the delivery people and warehouse workers. It's like the new WeWork story, says somebody named Ben, who joined Gorillas operations team last summer in Berlin. The comparison to co-working company WeWork is a brutal one, Sifted says. And Yet, um, yeah, the growth is unimaginable, as everybody involved with the company agrees. And so, is it a bit of uh, all a bit all you know, tech tech company? I, I just just politely tech journalists, your ship is sinking. Why are you writing 
articles about speedboats breaking land speed records as if they're the Titanic when you're on the Titanic. It doesn't make much sense. Your business is essentially dying. Print, you know, publications being being a tech news uh, blog. That business is dying. You're dying. Why don't you write a story about our business is dying and the smart folks are jumping out and going over to Substack? Why don't you write that story? Because that's what's happening. You're on the Titanic. Your business is sinking mathematically, numerically. Show the charts and show the people who left and went over to Substack to become independent and show the money they're making. And and then then highlight how many articles you write about some of the world's fastest growing tech companies and with uh and then the you're making the point that they're growing so fast that it's a problem what on what planet is are you you're you on what position do you take that the moral high ground that these companies are growing so fast it's a problem that's the article by even the, but even the standards of high super growth, high, uh, here's the article, uh, even by the standards of super high growth startups, the working culture was a shock. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's a ridiculously fast growing startup. Things haven't changed much since, according to more than a dozen current and former employees of the company interviewed by Sifted, while Gorillas has grown to 10,000 employees almost instantaneously uh, at at the company interviewed by uh, 10,000 employees, including writers, raised over 300 million euros, like $350 million in VC funding from some of the world's most notable investors, including DST Global, Tencent, and Katu. Yeah, indeed, some of the world's biggest investors, and hit a billion dollar valuation in record breaking nine months from launch. You're literally describing the, one of the fastest growing tech startups in history with a critical eye while you're in a dying industry? What the fuck is going through your brain as you write this article? That's, that's, Are you sure that's it's not written by AI? Tyler. Tyler, just get, get more wound up, please. That, that's the game. Just, this is pissing you off. It's a billion it's dollar valuation in less than nine months, raising $350 million from the smartest investors on the planet. And you? Who've never invested a dime on anything? Think you know more? I'm a senior contributor, Tyler. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ, dude! You're a blogger. How, how many? You're a blogger. How many employees did they find to to interview or to to get? They interviewed employees, right? And they so, say, and here it is: the hit a billion dollar valuation in a record breaking nine months from launch. The fierce culture remains the same. The problems don't stop at screaming and shouting. Uh, I got, oh, no. I, people might have their I got news. I got news for you. I got news for you. Are you trying to grow a business? I got news for you. Uh, if you're growing a billion dollar company in nine months, uh, a little screaming and shouting is, um, yeah. Uh, kind of to be expected. This this is just so bizarre. Sifted has spoken to nine people who have accused the company of arbitrary firings, exploitation of writers <laughs> and warehouse workers, as well as a hostile environment at the HQ. Others have raised questions about the cash-burning business model. 
Oh my god, not this again. What? Not this again. <laughs> just discovered what venture oh my god. Let's find out if this is the same guy who says the Golden Age. Is this the same Golden Age guy? Others have raised questions about the cash-burning business model. Oh my fucking oh, god. Just like we did with Amazon. Oh my god. Oh, by the way, Amazon's not Google. profitable. When you oh my god. When you work hard and you invest in things and you burn other people's money, you can actually build research and you can build stuff. It, it, this is so fundamentally... Waymo was cash burning. Oh no, we've got electric, we've got autonomous driving now. Companies that basically spend money might make it later. This is this is something very... This is something that journalists, not even journalists, sorry, bloggers don't understand that you, when you put money in now, you so might get it back it. Here, 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 Even better, if you don't have a, that money, get someone else's Here we money. go. <laughs> On top of that, Gorillas is now facing an uphill battle to raise more capital. Its biggest competitors, called Getter and Flink, raised a combined $800 million in June. Gorillas will need more ammunition so soon, too, if it's to meet its lofty target of growing from $34 million in projected annual revenue in January to $2.6 billion by the end of the year in revenue. $2.6 billion in revenue they can likely raise at a $20 billion valuation. Heck, you can get money from the bank. At the, Ten, about things. 10x? No if you, if you can go in one year from launching to $2.6 billion in revenue, you could raise at a $20 billion valuation in one year. You just created $20 billion of value in one year. Not a single one of those and basically you're, and you're, will ever have to hunt for You're framing this as a problem that they need to hurry, raise money to achieve this and that they're competitive. By the way, just, just, just let me help you understand something. The dear bloggers, Miriam Pattington and, and Freya Patty, let me help you out here. When your competitors are also raising $800 million in June, that means investors love this space so much. They are so excited about the revenue potential in this space. You want your competitors to be raising insane amounts of money because it's market. It's what's called market validation. And it's, and it's, for example, it's precisely why investors are not throwing billions of dollars at your tech blog because you're in a dying industry and you should pray to God that investors throw a billion dollars at your competitor because that would be an indication that your business is no longer dying, but it is. And that's why they're not. That's why no VC on the planet, there's record-breaking money being splish-splashed all over the goddamn place. If you have a half-baked decent idea, you can raise a $5 million tomorrow in 2021, and you're not getting that $5 million because you've proven your idea is DOA dead and sinking. It is the You are the cancer of being able to raise money. No investor on the planet will give you 50 fucking cents. That's how fucked up your business is. And you're complaining about the fastest growing company on the fucking planet as if it's a problem. What the fuck are you ranting about? 
the, the thing thing is, is there are legitimate points to be made about like, you know, worker conditions and like social conditions, other things. The problem is, is that essentially those points require digging deep into sociology, into philosophy, no, no. into essentially you, history, you, political relations. Well, Chris, so wanders actually, don't do that. Your, well, actually, I live next to one of the gorillas uh, points um, of, um, you know, uh, kind of points of sale. Um, and um, and I don't think they never like it's not people. There's no people crying. There's people chatting. There's people waiting to grab their delivery. I don't see them being so miserable. And and honestly, I mean, like, if you're talking about the fastest growing startups um, and people say, well, long hours. Well, no, I mean, obviously long hours if you want to grow it at the It takes space. hard work. Like, yeah, but it's we've just lost time. This. We've lost uh, this is why I'm saying the point, work. those it points are not work. going to be made. Some, those points are not going to be made overnight with things. And the thing is that essentially the, there's this, like, tech has literally basically been able to run for decades on not having to run marketing departments because they basically just use all the PR departments of every other group <laughs> and basically just run it as the tech journalists as their free marketing arms. And so the, the thing is that the groups, that, the, the rhetoric, the style, the whole, the whole profession essentially is writing coattails of a lot of these things. And the thing, the problem with this is that there are underlying social issues, not for the immediate one, not for the long hours aspect, not for that. It's more of like, you know, ownership in the future where essentially like, you know, robots do all the work type kind of things. But those are, those are longer term issues require a lot more in-depth things. You're not going to get that in a hot take in like an afternoon of writing. That's something that takes years to basically build up a body of work around that. And journalists, we don't really have those as much as we used to. So, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a, it, no, it's a lot of bad faith. But arguments. this author is making an argument that it's like we work. Right. That yes. like people are exhausted. And that, so they're not even making the right argument. That's the problem. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, the arguments can be made, but these aren't the people to make them. And I, 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 it's better just to burn them. <laughs> I mean, if you're concerned about business models, get out of the uh, some big te <laughs> tech blog. You're in the worst business model of them all. You have cancer and you're criticizing somebody, you know. You, you have stage. You have stage four terminal cancer, and you're worried about somebody eating some barbecue. <laughs> anything, anything to keep your mind hey, occupied. That right? barbecue has carcinogens. That leads to cancer. I've got level stage, <laughs> level four terminal cancer. I, I'm on palliative care. I got about two weeks left. But look at this guy eating barbecue. Good thing they can share. He's got. Hold on, Cheryl. He's got barbecue all over his face. He just spent a whole bottle of barbecue sauce all over his brisket. He just ordered a, a lifetime supply of brisket. And I got stage four cancer, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about the fact this guy just ordered enough barbecue to last for a party of 50, and he's got five bottles of barbecue sauce, and he's going to have a barbecue feast. He, matter of fact, he's ordering more barbecue than has ever been ordered in the history of barbecue. Man, Tyler, you're not making me feel good at all. My daughter is a journalism person, at uh, journalist at uh, Fast Company. She <laughs> graduated from Northwestern's Meadow <laughs> while ago. My, all, so. There is good work that can be done, but it doesn't. you can't just basically take a hot take on things. And the problem is the business model is so dying right now. I was involved with the citizen journalism movement back in the day, and like our, our mission was ostensibly to kill off the traditional journalist stuff as the gatekeepers for society, saying if we can empower basically crowdsourcing, if we can empower peer-to-peer -peer journalism, and it, it would result in this utopian golden age that was a very 
mistaken notion. But what's interesting is that it doesn't seem like a lot of people actually really went back to some of the justifications for these things happening. One of the things, if you look at uh, just very briefly, and I want to hijack the entire conversation, but very briefly, if you look back on, there's a graph of Google's ad revenue over time compared to newspaper revenue for the entire industry. And it's literally like a one-to-one -one correlation of Google just, swa just swallowed up all the, the dollars that would have gone to you know, the, the newspapers into that. So with that, if you basically view Google's advertising thing as basically a proxy for, well, here's the effects of having Google in society versus having all the newspapers, just with dollars to dollars of what's happening from that, you're seeing essentially the long-term consequences of that, both good and bad. And there were very serious problems with the old model. Um, but what's interesting is because we don't reevaluate what we gave up or essentially what we gained, uh, it's just the ever-present now of like, you know, you're going after, you know, whatever the hot take of the, the, the day or the week is. And it's interesting because when we're looking at, we now essentially have tech giants that have trillions of dollars in market cap. And we can create literally almost any system we can imagine right now. The resources exist for it. The money's there. A lot of the groups actually have alignment ideologically for things. The thing is that it, it, it sometimes feels like people are out of ideas. I mean, that's actually the more disconcerting part. I mean, we're literally launching like the iPhone, you know, which, which they would remember them in like Roman numeral letters or whatever, like iPhone 13. It's like, is it really all that different from the one four or five generations ago? Yeah, we've got a LiDAR scanner. The phone. So he, you know, that's, that's cool and all. Here it is. But like, he, I'm not seeing the new internet launching every like six years here. It's, it's something that we have the ability to create things, but we have to actually try to imagine it. And right now we're still playing responses to everything. So it'll be interesting to see where this goes. So here's, here's the real meat of the article. One second, Messi, just one paragraph. It says, workers uprising. You ready? This is like, uh, you know, return, ret revenge of the Sith or something. Workers uprising is the heading now under this new paragraph I'm about to read. Now, let this soak in. The feeling by some employees at Gorillas in its bid for hyper growth has created a toxic work environment and a sacrificing employee well-being is not just the regular employee gripes that affect a large number of very fast-growing companies. It's becoming a material concern as delivery employees have recently started campaigning for better conditions. Here's Now, that's a claim. Now, here's the evidence. You ready? Here it comes. Gorilla's fleet of thousands of rider delivery orders, uh, Gorilla's fleet of thousands of riders, deliver orders stuffed into bulky backpacks on swap feats bikes come rain or shine so they have to ride in the rain uh in germany most are paid about 10 and a half euros per hour one euro above minimum wage while some who are among the company's first 100 riders get paid 12 euros an hour for many migrants to germany and the uk working as a gorilla's rider is an attractive proposition the job is easy to hold down while working a second job or studying and doesn't require special qualifications. And by the way, you have a whole bunch of Syrian refugees who came over when they left the Syrian conflict uh, who have difficulty finding work and uh, less interview. <laughs> Don't get me started. Okay, back to the story. But rumblings of discontent amongst writers have been brewing since the company first launched late uh, last year. And they reached ahead in February. Berlin had heavy snowfall, temperatures dropped to minus 10 C, and the ground was thick with ice. Despite these conditions, gorillas failed to provide riders with equipment to protect them during their shifts. Three riders told Sifted, case closed. This company is going to fail because three former employees out of a thousand mentioned that they weren't given uh, protective equipment 
to ride in the snow or to make deliveries in the snow. Gorillas didn't specifically respond to employee allegations when asked by Sifted, but said that, especially during extreme weather conditions, we will always put the safety of our riders first and pause operations if required. So if somebody got injured, well, they would stop. Did somebody get injured? Gorillas didn't specifically respond to employee allegations. Oh, in June, the Workers' Collective held an office meeting to elect an electoral board, which is the first step towards becoming a workers' council in Germany. Approximately 300 employees turned up to the vote. 300? Okay. Out of out of 1,000. Uh, I'm not really getting the picture that this company's the uh, evil empire you're painting it out to be. In fact... Their wages will raise a little bit after essentially after they unionize with stuff or whatever the, the German equivalent is. I mean, it's, it, that doesn't fundamentally threaten the business model on this one like it does on some of the others. I think they're fundamentally upset that there's people willing to work for minimum wage or a dollar more than minimum wage. Is that what upsetting them? I think that essentially I the, think, the, there's more clickbait. I think they're there's out of touch with stuff. the fact that a lot of people... Uh, there's a lot of people willing to work at minimum wage, and they I, I, fundamentally they have a, some kind of axe to grind on that point. I, I, anyway, and then they go on to the charismatic founder and blah 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 blah. You can read all about it. That's the workers' uprising part, which and the, and of course the lack of job security is the is the next section. Yeah, it's they're not. Oh my god. Oh, there's they're still going. <laughs> Good. Are they are they paid by the competitor to write those articles? Thank you, Cheryl. You've been spending enough time in tech news around the world. You're now starting to realize exactly what's likely behind things like this. Yeah, could, could I comment on this? This is like really fascinating, Tyler. Yes. Um, uh, I I think I share your frustration on many levels. I think two things we're actually missing um, in uh, clearly their point of view and how they're actually viewing not just the industry, because industry is no longer our siloed to begin with. That means, and also the, the roles and the skill sets and the attributes needed to be called a writer, to be called a journalist are fast dissipating because technically today, anyone with a smartphone and you know, has access to internet and information can distill information in a manner which we could not before and technically be called a writer without having to have that as a full-time job means that automatically allows me to basically take, you know, charge whatever I can charge because that's not my livelihood in terms of I'm not even counting on minimum wage as a requirement because it's part of the gig economy. So I think that's something massively that's changing platform approach, algorithms, and gig economy, and now particularly the creative economy that's very, very quickly coming up through the the blockchain-driven environment basically means that there's no minimum wage conversation anymore. But in a European context or many other governmental contexts, they look at labor laws and then minimum wage, unions, and also the fact that you're looking at nine to five schedule of operation no longer exists in terms of the industry or the, the business of news has no nine to five concept because wherever news breaks, you got to cover it. But the question is, what lens are you taking? You know, what an unbiased lens are you taking? What a very unique perspective you're taking on that news? Who's writing? Technically, today means I can write about what's happening in France. I don't even have to be based in France. That means I can be operating as a writer at a different wage level 
in another country, but I'm basically sifting the same information of someone who's actually physically present locally. So the, the, the sheer democratization of access to information and what you do with that information and how do you convert into a meaningful insight, whether the insight comes as an opinion piece or breaking news or whatever formats today the journalists actually are required to from a traditional media perspective, it literally can be done anywhere, anytime, and without having to fall through the cracks of the, the German laws of labor laws and then their minimum wage requirements. So I think this is like a classic disruption scenario that you aptly highlighted. And I 100% share with the frustration is, what is a writer anymore? I can be, anyone can be a writer today. And there are enough platforms through which I can actually propagate my information in the manner that I want. But not only that, I can make significant amount of money if I'm very, very good at it because the market recognition is already there because if someone likes it, they will follow, they'll pay for it. So it's almost like you know, talent recognition that's happening. But if you're now aligned to only one media publication or one medium, and then you have your constraint, quote-unquote, rules that you have to comply to your business requirement that automatically also prohibits your point of view. So I really feel like you know, anything that's happening in this industry is no longer a siloed approach, but they're pretty much thinking from a siloed context and the entire lens of even understanding the business model because business model is very much a crowdsourced business model today of information and news. I mean, look at the, what's happening here in the tech news around the world you created. This is actually semi-journalism to some degree, but it's just opinions. We are kind of providing insights based on something that's published, but that analysis and insights is where people actually migrate to because that's where the real meat of the, uh, the, the perspective really lies. That means more and more, a 20-year-old, a 15-year-old, a person with no degree can actually be the top writer in the industry, but without having to go through the union approaches. So in that sense, the concept of unions are getting, particularly in the journalism industry, is like a very archaic concept. So that's just my take. Thanks. And not only that, you know, the, the attributes of a journalist can now be coded through an AI mechanism. That means an <laughs> AI will start writing more effectively than humans would because AI can see through much bigger patterns of opinions and then how it is shifting and the implications of something that breaks in this zone geographically and how it impl you know, you know, applies to another zone. Because that means we can, to semi already, if not fully, be baking into algorithms the very attributes of a journalism. That means you're no longer even competing with human journalists. So why, where's the minimum wage at all in that conversation? Also, so, yeah. to, I just wanted to add to what you said, is that um, with the minimum wage that uh, guerrillas employees are being paid in Germany, you have a really decent, decent life on a 40-hour week. And if you do more hours, you actually can, um, yeah, you, you really live pretty okay here in Berlin. So it's not like they're, you know, uh, being exploited uh, by any means. But people, just to put things in perspective, when my daughter graduated back in 2013 from the number one undergrad university for journalism, Northwestern's Middle School, she was getting a job which was a six-month internship after finishing. And it was $7.5 per hour, New York State minimum wage then. So there is a lot of ripoff going on in the journalism field. And as I've said in the last few many calls, they did unionize. This is Fast Company. And mind you, Fast Company is not some fly-by-night operation. It started around the same time during the dot-com era when Wired started in Silicon Valley in New York City. Fast Company started. So it's been around for quite a while. And they were getting away with just paying minimum wage for six-month internship. 
And so after spending almost a quarter million dollars on our education, Northwestern being a private university, they are able to unionize at least. That's the one good thing. And they've got better uh, leverage in terms of negotiation in the last couple of years, thanks to this unionization. Mohan, so the, challenge is, the, the challenge is business models don't have, uh, they don't have the lens about how much education people have put in, right? Or how much they've spent or how much student debt they've put up or anything. That's, that's how fast tech moves. And, 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 and the fa- if, if, if these publications don't have the business model to ultimately pay uh, what, what would be, you know, these students, very smart. I'm sure your daughter's very, very smart and coming out of these things. But it's, it's not in the business. Business models are uh, like they're, they're, not ra- they're not they're rational, right? They're completely rational. They're not saying, oh, um, we have to accommodate all these highly qualified people coming out of university. So let's keep our, you know, let's keep our margins high and the business model will accommodate all these people. In the end of the day, if uh, the business model moves forward, there's the, 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 the kind of digitization, the things that Anitha put so well in terms of what's changing so, so articulately, that those changes it's irrelevant how much how much uh, money your daughter spent at the university or how qualified she is or anyone's children or anyone because and and that's that's the thing that our young kids have to start to realize now as they go into university and they understand that these things are getting disrupted and also the universities uh, as they as they kind of prepare these people to come out and get into the world because that's the reality these things are going to change and and the business model clubhouse this business model will change again, like in two years, three years, whatever business model evolves out of this news format that we have, which we're only exploring right now. So yes, Cal, I would like to add a quick point to that. I think that's great. I think, you know, should the question also is actually the what the point that it brought up is actually such a critical one is, should the market be paying any rates for any particular wage or, you know, uh, identification of talent based on how much you put into your education? I think that doesn't work that way because the education system is also very archaic in many, many levels. That means, you know, the, by the time you finish your undergrad, you actually have brand new, two, three new industries born and you were never actually studied in a school setting. It means the very structured education that we all follow with a four year and then two year and then a PhD and then basically all education stops. But learning is a 24 seven lifelong journey. How do we actually accommodate? And that's where a lot of the disruption in education is also happening is where, hey, this current structures that is based at a certain level that, you know, hey, I'm going to do six years and then I'm going to apply everything that I'm learning back. But the whole world has changed in six years on many levels. So the education system, while you're putting in money, four years, its cost, whether it's private or public, is based on the hourly time perspective as to what a full-time and a part-time structure. But that doesn't exist at all in the gig world. That doesn't exist at all in the digital world because market demands that actually drive some of the rates. So in that sense, our education system, while it's an important variable to take into consideration by companies, but I don't think it has any relation at all to begin with how the market operates. Okay, the Jewish journalist ministry um, is only $25 billion. And the thing is that it's that's relatively rounding error where we're talking about trillions of dollars of market cap, government spending, et cetera, et cetera. Just throwing exactly. us out there that if it exists purely as a market-driven force, essentially it's one thing. We have a dem- democracy model that re- requires informed citizenry, and that's currently not a function that's being fulfilled. So it's one of these, like, we could probably go without journalism as a business, as a thing. I don't know if we could go without it and still maintain democracy with going to that. So so if it's, journalism isn't fulfilling that function, something else needs to fill in the gap. And I think the tech industry said we can do that, and it's... Eh, 
results I think have been highly mixed. So it, it's worth reevaluating some of the base assumptions we have for like how we're distributing information right now, not just in the lens of, oh no, this thing is biased or, oh, it's a deep fake or it's fake news. I, I think actually we should go much more fundamental in that and saying, what is the purpose of having information spread? And should we basically be using the, these tools that we're using for that right now? Because we could, we can literally, we have the resources to invent entirely new things right now. It's actually pretty exciting. It's just a matter of what do we want to make? And I think that everyone's just responding to the, the, the here and now rather than the longer term. And there's some really interesting thoughts to be made here. Well said, Chris. I... Having lived in Silicon Valley for four decades, just yesterday, my wife and I spent like three or four hours wandering around in the Mission District in San Francisco. It's pathetic, the state of affairs over there. In spite of all this money that's being made in with all these big economy, this, that, it's horrible, the state of affairs, the gentrification and uh, the consequent results. So as a society, we do need to worry about such things and not just get carried away with money making as the first order priority. Thank you. I think we should ask. Craig, Craig, can I say something here? Uh, uh, As someone who's an academic and who's been a professor for 25 years and uh, in leadership for the last 10 years and as an advisor to the president of University of Southampton, I just want to say that universities aren't just about money making. When, you know, it's about one course like maybe makes a lot of money, then that is used to subsidize other courses that don't make money. So overall, it may be five, six hundred million uh, pound economy uh, or turnover in a university, but or revenue, but that's is distributed. It it's not for profit. No one's taking profit out. So when you're but what we are doing is we're partnering with ed tech and new companies and entrepreneurial individuals so that our students get exposure to that so that's that's a slightly different to a pure market driven economy okay uh, and because that's what we need charles you were trying to jump in yeah i, I should say so i've i've worked in journalism before i was at the wall street journal i i wrote for something like 20 to 30 different publications and uh i was even you know a paper boy back in the day so it's something i've sort of spend a lot of time on, you know, met with, I met with Rupert Murdoch to discuss this, these issues. And my view basically is that so long as you have a Facebook and Google, which are essentially uh, high margin monopolies eating the ad revenue out of journalism, it's essentially a, uh, it's essentially a dead, dead industry. Now you have, in the case of the United States, you have obviously the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, but the quality of the people who go into that work and who oftentimes require subsidies in the form of, you know, parental support or in the form of like grants or foundations, you know, just to make make a living. I mean, that that's increasing quite, quite, you know, quite rapidly. And so what ends up happening is that you end up having a sort of narrowed, you know, world in which The New York Times can't possibly cover all the news that's fit to print. And then you add to that the strengthening of libel laws. You know, I've won four different libel lawsuits against various publications. I'm in one right now where the Fifth Circuit against uh, Huffington Post um, just agreed to hear my appeal. And I should say that, you know, there's a whole lot of just trash journalism that really is they're like reputational arsonists. And so there really needs to be you know, serious checks on misinformation, both from tech companies 
and sort of permitting that information to go crazy, but also on the on the part of billionaire oligarchs who control a lot of these publications. And there really needs to be some sort of accountability for when people, you know, lie about you or, or, or go after you. And just as a final point, I think we oftentimes misunderstand the degree to which a lot of uh, publications are, in fact, propped up by foreign intelligence services. Um, Gawker, you know, had all these connections with Russian intelligence. You know, BuzzFeed used to routinely get things leaked to it by Israeli intelligence. Um, and, and to say nothing of the extent to which the American media, you know, gives things like people's tax return, you know, gets people's tax returns in the case of ProPublica uh, or, or some of these other sort of more establishment American publications or, or the BBC or or even the way the Daily Mail is used, sort of traffic and intelligence gathering. So I think we'll always have a sort of journalistic uh, class, but that journalistic class will probably get more and more aligned with the state, or it will. Hmm. I'm sorry, sorry, Charlie. I mean, so the, it just cease to exist. Okay. There's a the yeah. last paragraph I think is rather telling here. This is the final paragraph. Um. Time will tell if gorilla because the article is about gorillas and if they are going to if they're economically viable or whatever. Time will tell if gorillas is here to stay. Other companies in the 10 minute grocery delivery fray have started acquisition talks, but unhappy employees have not been enough to fell some of Europe's biggest private tech companies like Revolut, which is now the UK's most valuable private company. Which, by the way, the last time I read a hit piece nearly identical to this, it was about Revolut. And they were going on how they had found six former Revolut employees who were very upset about how fast the company... Here's the headline. Revolut insiders reveal the human cost of fintech unicorns' wild rise. Applicants asked to work for free rudeness and high staff turnover tarnished the fintech startup's success story. Now, (laughs) that... Nearly identical story, and I just found it for you. Uh, and applicants asked to work for free. Rudeness and high staff turnover tarnished the fact fintech startups' success story, which this new article, which is a near um, a complete carbon copy of, even concedes AI. even concedes the point. Unhappy employees have not been enough to fell some of Europe's biggest private tech companies like Revolut, which is now the UK's most valuable private company. The UK's most... So they answered their own headline. The UK's most... Yes, they answered their own headline. Exactly. In the last paragraph, which is this whole story I just wrote is complete fucking nonsense, is what you just concluded in your own article in your last paragraph. You just found your answer. Revolut is Europe's most valuable private or the UK's most private valuable company. And as you perfectly said, unhappy employees have not been enough to fail them as if you want them to fail. So that might be an interesting thing of like, you know, the fact is, is the journalists essentially are so underpaid these days, just in general, and the bloggers essentially are so desperate for cash. There's so much money flowing into these spaces, like Charles was saying, if you had bad faith actors, it's not that hard to just go and say, hey, can you write a dozen articles that are you know, bad mouthing one thing or another? Because that will affect valuation negotiations. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Here's a formal announcement to the journalists of this article. Super fast growing companies like Apple, when it was in its heyday, like Uber, which I had a lot of first row seat uh, exposure to, like um, the one they mentioned, Revolut, 
which you 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 can read the article that I, I just read the headline about from Wired about uh, disgruntled employees. You you wrote this article. You self admittedly wrote this article about nine former employee minimum wage employees. Nine they have and by the way you even admit they have a thousand employees currently and they're adding probably ten thousand more by the end of the year at the rate they're growing. And you found nine former minimum wage employees who expressed discontent with the startup they were at. Nine minimum wage employees. Do you, do you, can I can find nine minimum wage? You name a company that has a thousand minimum wage employees. I guarantee you, I can find nine who former employees who are disgruntled. This means absolutely nothing to find nine disgruntled minimum wage employees. All minimum wage em former employees are disgruntled. Half of them. I can find it. minimum wage former employees are generally not very happy about their last position wherever it happened to be. Or they wouldn't be former employees. They would still be there. Or they're in life, generally. What are you? What is the point of an article based on the the lunatic ravings of nine minimum wage former employees? As if that means anything. Unless, well, we have to take, especially yeah, to when take the accusation is rudeness. You're criticizing the economic viability of a company because nine former minimum wage employees are accusing the company of rudeness. While I could understand if you're Bill Gates writing this article, I could understand if you're Richard Branson writing this article. You are a blogger at a, in a dying industry. You have level stage for terminal cancer economically. And you're criticizing one of the fastest growing companies of all time for its economic viability based on a small spattering of former minimum wage employees who are obviously half of them are going to be disgruntled and have some kind of negative story to tell you. It's just a hit piece, Tyler. I think that's you really is. just now, now the question is why he, he got paid. You're right. He, she got you're paid right. What's this. the why write the hit piece? What's the motive of writing the hippies, well, Charles? I think we can't. We have to understand that there are a lot of people for whom envy is the motivating factor, and I've noticed that with a lot of journalists who've covered my publications. You know, in many cases, I'm younger than they are. I made different choices in my life, and there's a lot of resentment that comes, you know, for meeting people who you know are successful in their 20s and 30s, and you're in your 40s or 50s. Um, or they're younger people who resent that they invested so much in their education and did as they were told, and yet they, you know, live with three roommates in Brooklyn. So I think we we have a really hard time kind of dealing with this question. And I I don't envy is not of the seven deadly sins. Envy is the one to which I'm least attracted personally. I'm much more of a lust and, and gluttony person myself. But um, but we do have to sort of think seriously about how to deal with this this sort of societally wide problem. And I, I do, I would say too, like I do favor, you know, for taxation, you know, for things like Facebook and Twitter and Clubhouse and other sorts of things. Um, and I do think that the Australian model is in some sense 
correct, which is that, you know, if we didn't have a lot of these publications producing articles, we wouldn't have that much to talk about in tech news around the world. And there is some sense in which, you know, there's a mix in the kind of sources that we that we use here, some government, some quasi-government, some private actors, some sort of billionaire subsidized. And so I think we should, you know, sort of think really seriously about the overall funding mechanisms of these sorts of things. I, I sort of think about it like we are kind of in some sense impoverished if a lot of, you know, regional newspapers go out of business. We, we, we lack an ability to kind of keep up on local corruption. You know, we have like real problems here. And, you know, when, when you look at Facebook being worth a trillion dollars and you read that new book about uh, about Facebook, An Ugly Truth, where they're talking about how they want to just maximize the success of the company to the ex- to the exclusion of the societies in which they live in. I mean, that is not good. I mean, that is not, you know, that is not, uh, the you know, a, a sort of good corporate actor. And we need to think very seriously about the long term societal consequences of these kind of companies, because while I'm all for innovation, you know, there there is a sense in which, like, you know, we were promised a, a really good future. We weren't promised a future in which, you know, we would all be slumlords through Airbnb or gypsy cab drivers through Uber or, you know, gig workers, you know, in the restaurant business, you know, jumping from gig to gig to gig without health insurance or about a viable means of support while, you know, algorithmic companies are buying all of these houses from out from underneath us while we all become serfs. So I think we need to be like kind of cautious here. But I, I do think the thing that really annoys me about a lot of journalists who write about my companies and other companies is, that, is how rarely they even want to meet me or talk to me. They already have the story firmly in mind and they're just looking to, to fillet, you know, to basically, you know, to basically whip me. And then they're upset with me for not participating in the whipping. And, you know, I mean, people pay good money for whippings. You know, why should I why should I give it away for free? Um, so I don't know. I just think it's sort of silly. Charles, are there publications that basically, you know, because you do work on, on companies that essentially have very large societal consequences if they're deployed at scale. Have there been journalists that have been critical of your work that you can respect because they actually went to the effort of actually articulating arguments? Or is it more just the schlocking type kind of surface level stuff? Is there any well, groups that you well, can cite saying- did a good job? Yeah, I will say, like, I mean, I don't often agree with the New York Times and Kashmir Hill. And I think sometimes her coverage of facial recognition is a bit, uh, you know, a bit slanted, to put it mildly. I do think that, like, people at the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, they at least, like, have a pretense of fairness. But, like, you go and you deal with, like, BuzzFeed or Huffington Post or any of these sort of, like, down market, you know, publications, which have essentially been propped up by venture capital. Or you deal with these other publications where it's very obvious that they were fed the information by a foreign government or a foreign actor because they are threatened by the kind of technologies you're working on. And yeah, I just don't respect those people. And I've, I've seen basically, I, I really resent the fact that I have to have lawyers on retainer to sue a lot of these publications. And, you know, in the case of the Huffington Post, I mean, in the Gawker case, I think I made like $1.7, $1.8 million in the lawsuit against Gawker. And, you know, I spent two years of my life, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, obviously got to meet Teal along the way. But it was a very stressful time. And it was particularly, you know, deleterious on my family life, you know, probably cost me my marriage, it certainly cost me my relationship with my siblings. And so I think like, the degree to which people just write up fake things, 
And, you know, you're busy working on technologies that keep people safe, that have real like societal impact. And you have to deal with these sort of ankle biters who don't want to talk to you. I mean, who, who basically like you're, you're between them and their next job. So if they can hurt you and get a better job, they'll do it. And then it's all about for them getting to the pinnacle of their profession, which is the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal or CNN. And only there do you start to see like real standards come into play. But even there, those standards are slipping because the quality of life of those journalists is vast, vastly diminished from years prior. Um, and of course, what ends up happening is you have people run to Substack, but when they run to Substack, you know, that's not necessarily what we want when an accountable journalism environment in which, you know, the crowd is subsidizing people. I mean, God knows who like actually pays for all that sort of thing. I mean, you can buy prepaid credit cards and you can subsidize you know, people through Substack, and there's essentially no checks on that. There's no real disclosure as to who's like actually covering a lot of those people's, you know, salaries. And so that raises all kinds of perverse incentives. So journalism in the public interest, journalism in the public good, I think it's one of those things I'm unfortunately going to have to tell my children and grandchildren about. So the, I want to just highlight the, la the last paragraph starts with the sentence, time will tell if gorillas is here to stay. When Un unawarely, uh, ironically, the publication that this is being written for, it, it will, it's far more unlikely that this publication will outlast the, the company they're uh, writing about. And it's, it's just, it's the, it's the ironic lack of self-awareness is just driving me nutty. And Tyler, yes, I may. Who, Tyler, who is the one that wrote the article on gorillas? Miriam Paddington and Freya Pratty. What, pu what publication? It's what called publication? Sifted by Financial Times. Which is where I find it really super ridiculous, Tyler, because Gorillas has been quite game-changing. Even the gentleman that you had from uh, the friend of yours, the network of yours that came in who was in London who popped in that Jason. day. Jason. And, yeah, Jason, he even raved about yeah. it because it is solving a problem, right? I find it really fascinating because I do kind of agree with Charles. It's like... Do these people in, even know what gorillas is? Do they even know what they do? Those guys are crazy athletic on their bikes, man. They're not, they're not necessarily unhappy, in my opinion, from what I see, because they're doing a service and they sign up for that job, right? But the one thing that you, know, you do see happening, for example, I mentioned picnic, right? It's the high turnover simply because they're moving so fast, you know, like, and not everyone wants to work that fast. So, I don't think it's a so negative. Check this I out. think it's about a choice. So, so just thinking very clearly for a second. Well, they're up to 2000 employees for, from the beginning of the year. And, oh, uh, no, 10,000 employees are up to. I'm sorry. So they found nine out of 10,000 employees. Yeah. Hello. But did they already have an upgrade? So check. But sorry. here's my point. If they have 10,000 employees and they, they're writing the article about nine. They've spoken to nine disgruntled former employees whose act was uh, uh, strongest. There, there's no sexual harassment, no uh, sexual discrimination. Like the fiercest criticism is, you know, that indiscriminate firing. I don't think so. Fast companies are hiring as fast as they possibly can. They generally fire for low performance based on metrics. Well, Tyler, think about the think about the performance metrics of Gorilla. That's okay? my point. Let's be really so, let's be let's be really transparent. If, they cycle, and these guys are freaking fit. You know what I'm my saying? Point. Like if you can't cycle, this, sorry, this is my point. If you decide to sign up, they're going to test you 
And if you can't deliver at the expected rate that they know other people can, they're going to dismiss you because you to make that business model work, you're going to have to bust ass. You're going to have to be a bit of an athlete for that for them to do 10 minute deliveries. The business is 10 minute deliveries. That means you're going to have to haul some ass. Right. And if you're not able to haul ass, you're going to get shit canned. Right. You know, but, but, but Tyler, what happens if there's an accident, right? I mean, look, I'm I'm all for people having the right to, to do as they see fit with their labor. But I do wonder about the long term consequences of, you know, here in the U.S., like we have Walmarts where essentially we subsidize Walmart workers through, you know, through basically uh, the welfare rolls. Right. And here you have a situation where you have young people who are taking risks with their physical safety to deliver these things. I don't know. And I do if, wonder, if that, but Charles, trust me, if that was the case, they would have highlighted an injury would have been the first thing Tyler, we would read. And by the way, except, me, except this isn't a bad hold on, hold on 10,000 employees. Sorry. And you know how every article always has one big quote in, you know, 50 point font, right? Yeah. yeah the poll. Yeah. Quote, the poll Here's quote, the yep. huge quote. I literally Quick had page. to go get bananas. <laughs> Tyler, but could I sew something in because this is totally everything you're talking about around also something else. Let me give you a little bit of context to add more to this because I do get what Charles is talking about as well, but let's get it, let's look at it from a different perspective. You talk about EV, uh, the e-vehicles and e-bikes, right? You talk about this all the time, right? Well, let's give it this way. Amsterdam and well, let's just look for Amsterdam because Gorillas is here, okay? No. In gorillas in Amsterdam, they could have electric bikes as well, which means they're killing it to get around Amsterdam because they will make it. And we have separate bike lanes. So to the point of what Charles is saying, I totally empathize with it being in the U.S., but in Netherlands, they have specific bike lanes. And those guys, you'd get hit by a bike before you get hit by a car in Amsterdam. So just throwing this out there with things like a lot of the arguments about like, you know, about like concentration and quality, all those other things. It's actually, there's actually a pretty simple way of solving this. If you're already basically raising these, you know, on these monster valuations and having these huge revenue growth, it's pretty easy to set aside like a little five or 10% pool of like from, from the equity part and just have that as a, as a worker pool for things. You, you work for the company for six, 12 months, you get like a 0.1% or 0.001%, however much that works out to be. And it's like, okay, cool. If you got injured out of it, it's like, well, you actually have a small stake and that you help build the company walls. Well, the thing. Th it's not that ridiculous to assert, and it's not that hard to implement. It's, it's, these things are not that hard to solve. So here, I found here, by the way, here's another one of the poll quotes. It's um, gorillas is just a PR balloon, um, which out of 10,000 employees, well, I can assure you the fact that they and their competitors are not just them, but their competitors are all raising billions. It's not a PR balloon at that point. That means they have product market fit. So the the next point to raise is the, um, here, here where it talks about lack of job security. And it says, the ease with which the company can fire riders and warehouse workers with no warning has been the underlying theme of many recent protests in Berlin, which, by the way, in America, there would never be protests about that. That's an American value that Americans uh, fundamentally all uh, get behind, which is uh, it's called fire at will. We've always had it. We always will. Uh, there's nothing to protest about. So 
I can understand how Germans might have a problem with fire at will. However, it's legal uh, in the in what they call the probationary period. So it says some now ex-employees believe they were fired arbitrarily within their probation periods, which is legal in Germany. So these now ex-employees believe Wait, they weren't even there for more than a month. They or were fired arbitrarily, like for no reason, within their probation periods. And to those ex-employees who were fired during their probation periods, no, let me explain to you. You were fired because their business model requires busting your ass, and you're not an ass buster. And oh, Professor X is amazing. And. And I'm, you know, it's not for everybody. By the way, you you didn't make it on the Yankees either. I, unfortunately, I know we have your application to join the fucking New York Yankees, and unfortunately, uh, you didn't make it onto the starting team of the world of the New York Yankees either. I'm sorry, uh, we're gonna let you go because. So, so, uh, and by the way, uh, we we understand you're applying for the Olympics. And unfortunately, we're not going to add you to the Olympic gymnastics team. And I realize you now feel like you're being fired arbitrarily, but it might have something to do with the fact that you can't jump in the air and do four fucking backflips. Right. But this is minimum wage work. You're not going to do that real quick. We live in an era of automation and like, you know, mass, you know, mechanization with stuff like those bikes with things that they're, they're busting ass with, with things like the upgrade cost to turn those from just normal bikes to e-bikes or to have small amounts of like, you know, booster packs and stuff. And like maybe a little bit of automation later on, like that's not a huge expense and that will be happening at some point. The teacher hasn't already. Oh, no. I mean, cause you could run the math on that saying, well, we've got this many athletic employees. They've got this many things. Hey, look, we just have electric motor to take the way of that human labor part. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how many of these business models make the transition with the upgrades, not just to the employees, but to essentially the, the, the machines that they're using. And that can happen really, so, really fast. Here's, here's, here's where it gets into the details. Someone named Lotto, a working student, which by the way, how many jobs can a working student do? Right. Sounds great. Join gorillas. That's something you can do as a working student in your, at your leisure and your, in, at your discretion, joined a warehouse in Nuremberg as a picker, someone who fulfills orders in the warehouse on May 1st. She was fired only one month and seven days later, ostensibly for, quote unquote, not working hard enough and documented her experience on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. Out of 10,000 people, how, how what percent are not going to work hard enough? Um, I've had a few companies th- that got into, you know, 100, 200 people. Yeah, there's there there are people who don't work hard enough. Um in the world, and by, by the, the way, way, on the world's fastest growing company to reach, you know, a, a potentially $20 billion valuation in two years. That's a lot of very hard, fast, incredibly fast paced, hardworking people. Yeah. Out of 10,000, you're going to have some people who who are not working hard enough. That's going to happen. Are, are they sharing in the ownership of that company, though? Because it, 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 they're going to be more disgruntled if it's just going to make someone else wealthier. There you thing. go. I mean, there's just going to yeah. be, well, we don't like the work over someone is, else. It's like, this is not that Probably hard not. But all I just want to say is the student, working students in Germany can do 20 hours a um, week tops. Interesting. So anyway, so she or he, gorillas fired me without, oh, here it is. Here's, here's the tweet from last month, June 17th. Gorillas fired me without any reason, almost two weeks, capital A-N-Y, <laughs> as, as if they're owed an explanation. 
Well, they, they gave you an explanation. They said you weren't working hard. They enough. are in Germany, though, Tyler. They are in Germany. I mean, this is this is sort of the contrasting system between America and 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 basically parts. And they're of upset Europe, that right? they got fired with no warning. Is their point? Yeah. They, well, they're required to do that. Yeah. This is like a big reason why I don't hire anyone in Europe because, like, I don't want to deal with you know German or French labor laws, right? Like, it's it's they're absurd, and so they increase the costs of you doing business. So essentially, it seems to me like what what what's going on here is that the unions are upset with guerrillas in Germany. There you go. And the unions are you a big source it. of power. There it is. And but but I would say that you know there are labor laws in a lot of these countries, and you know we who invest, you know investor beware, no. right? Like j- someone, just like when we invest in China, someone. Uh, here's my pr- here's my conspiracy theory. Wild conspiracy theory announcement. Someone paid for this article. And it's the unions. And this is what, and the same thing happened to Uber in Germany. These same articles were written by these same publications, and Uber was shown the door out of Germany. Because the articles got written, the, po- the politicians started politicking, and they were shown the door. Look, the German labor unions are some of the most powerful, aggressive, mob-like organizations that you could ever possibly deal with in your lifetime. And so obviously what's happening here is that there's an interest in having a domestic Uber, but it's coming up against the, you know, the regulatory wall of labor laws. And in the U.S., we are much more exploitative of workers. I mean, it just is what it is. And I don't particularly like that. I think it's frankly un-American to pay people slave wages, but um, that's just a you know, personal view that I have. And it's why you know, I always pay an efficiency wage like Henry Ford did so that I can have my pick of the workers. Um, And you also build more loyalty that way, which is, I think, a big mistake corporate America has made. But here, it it seems to me that, yeah, just like, I mean, if you look at the Mm -hmm. the article I sent you on on message from DW, you know, you have a lot of, you know, I think somewhat legitimate complaints here of them not getting their payment mechanisms fixed in time. But of course, the unions here are just trying to extort the venture capitalists who are backing this startup and trying to get their cut of, of the, uh, you know, of what's going on here. And it's a pity in my mind, it's a pity. They both can't lose. Well, it's interesting. Oh yeah. That's the other shitty part is so many groups. They'll basically take a position where it seems like antagonistic towards it. Like, like this article as an example, but then when the, the conditions change in a way that basically favors their particular group, but the underlying issue is not addressed, but they're now benefiting from it. All of a sudden the criticism just evaporates in thin air and no one cares about it anymore. But, and while there are fundamental issues, you need to also make sure that the people that are opposing things are also speaking from a position of actual criticism rather than essentially something that's going to be, oh, well, I just, well, my, my special interest just isn't happy at this particular moment as a negotiation chip to play. And I, um, if for people that are especially motivated more by good faith type kinds of things is saying, yeah, let's do worker rights, let's do other things. It's very frustrating getting caught in the middle of these things because you find out that the people that you think you're supporting end up basically end up actually, well, yeah, they sold out with stuff. It was like, well, no, they were never, they were never actual critics to begin with. They were just using this negotiation play. And so we're kind of all getting to play in, in little parts in this as spectators, but also as participants in the who's negotiating who for their valuations or for their cuts of which, yeah. you know, which regulatory to pass. I would just say too, like there is a sense in which in the U S you know, we, we have a lot of people that are essentially wage slaves who are going to never get rich, never do well. And, you know, that's an unfortunate side of the world, but it is what it is. And I do wonder, like, if the cost of always low prices or the cost of instant delivery, 
you know, comes at the back of all these other social, you know, social problems. Um, you know, I mean, people should go to an Amazon, war- you know, warehouse. I mean, I'm still ah. a huge fan of Jeff Bezos, but like you should go to one and they are disturbing, like, you know, just to see like how human beings are kind of turned into machines. So what about you know? taking, oh, what about taking student <clears throat> field trips to Amazon warehouses and say, okay, um, he, you know, here's a job you'll be able to do if you, you know, aren't, you know, if you, if you average, if you're not able to pass, you know, the algebra class, let's have, let's go take a field trip for everyone to consider what happens if you don't finish high school. So we're taking a bunch of high school students, maybe middle school students. Let's go, let's go look at some of these jobs that you'll be able to do. Anyone here thinking about not finishing high school? Okay, great. We're going to go somewhere where you're going to, one of the few places you'll have the option of working if you don't finish school. Let's go see what it's like. And so the... No, hey, I mean, Charles I, and Tyler, the other cost that we all don't want to, you know, recognize too much is all the environmental cost of all this packaging and instant delivery and all that. And the, you know, junk we all generate to by ordering stuff through Amazon rather than going to a physical that, that's store. That's a whole separate point. Like I, I want to get into the point of like, the, I guess we're going to automate it all and they're all going to go on UBI and that'll just be the end of it. But, well, I don't know. I don't know about that. I mean, look, you know, your friend, Jason Calcanis, and I spoke with this one time where, you know, he you know, disliked the fact that like a lot of wealthy people are grinding very poor people. Right. Mm-hmm. And I do think there's something kind of unconscionable about, you know, basically setting up these factories or, or, you know, delivery centers, you know, using people's youth and at the prime of their life, not paying them, you know, that much money to sort of juice and get better and better rounds from venture capitalists. And I do wonder, like, long run, what the what a world where everybody's a gig worker looks like. And there, look, there will always be things that we never automate away. I mean, I think that there's this view that we'll do that. But, you know, I think right now we're in a world in which you know, the cost of getting goods produced are Chinese slaves or, you know, Japanese style robots. And that's not really good for like people who want to live like a good middle class, meaningful life. Um, we need to sort of figure out a way to deal with this. And in the case of like Bezos and some of these other folks, you know, those of us who become very rich in tech investing, you know, there there maybe should be some sort of like, you know, fund set aside or way we could, you know, encourage our workers to be more trained. I mean, this used to be the tradition in American business and it's still the tradition in a lot of European businesses. And so I do sometimes wonder if we're, we're making a mistake here uh, that's going to lead to basically an actual, you know, communist revolution, which is, you know, my big fear. Anyway, so I, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm really, ups- having been a teacher uh, and the students that I taught 20 years ago are now 38, and you know i'm just thinking about the what portion of them are in jail or what are they all they were in jail when i was teaching them they were on they had weekly parole officer meetings and ankle bracelets and you know court hearings even while they were in high school and middle school oh my god where did you teach los angeles uh school to prison pipeline i hung out with a lot of those kids from downey i hung out with a lot of downey kids so I, i do know about some of them and you're right you know, one of them died last year during COVID. He drank bleach, believe it or not. This is my point is, and that, you know, some of the 
nine employees that they're interviewing for these are bleach drinkers. And it's, you know, I let that's, that's what, uh, no, a fair point, a fair point. I mean, I, my, when I ran for student body president in eighth grade, my vice president ultimately went to jail for five years for robbing a seven 11. So, uh, I'm well, I'm well acquainted with, uh, shall we say that that certain end of things. And I do, I do wonder, you know, his father went to jail and his grandfather went to jail. And I do wonder sometimes how much these things are heritable or, you know, we're getting to a point where you're getting 50% of some schools I was teaching at schools with a 50% graduation rate is my point. So Tyler, I think what you said earlier on, I think it's, you've hit the nail on the head there. I like that idea of yours, like taking kids and showing them yeah. what they could be doing. If they, I think that's really motivational. That's my point. Uh, like you got to understand the yeah, choice yeah, no. that you're making because it's not you're not really understanding Absolutely. the choice you're making by not graduating, and you have a fifty percent graduation rate at the schools that I taught at. Yeah, it's like smoking. You know, I I looked at two hundred patients with bypass surgery for my PhD. I can tell you. 198 of them were smokers, right? And when they had their heart attack, they all stopped smoking. Well, the, that's to it. Charles' point, though, that's it too. comes down to they either, once you know, once they realize, um, they either got to become a farmer, or and they're and they won't, they won't become a farmer, or now they got to break the system, and have a revolution because they're not going to go be a farmer. So we got to rise up all the, hey, you're going to be a farmer? No, not me. How about you? No, can we get 30,000 of us who agree we're not going to go now take the only option left available? Great. Time to have a revolution. I mean, we saw this in the, the last summer, you know, where people were burning down our cities, right? And we see this now with the uptick in crime across the United States. That- just, to, just to reinforce those points, yesterday in our three hours of wandering around in the Mission District, including Dolores Park. The most dominant theme was was weed smell and urine smell. Unbelievable. Yeah, this, is, like, this is supposedly our wealthiest city, and it's, I mean, it really is We have like, the most tech adoption in this place. Yes. And this is the case throughout That's a American bad state of affairs. Yeah. I had not spent so much time wandering around in that part of San Francisco in a long, long time, and it was pathetic. The number of people on the sidewalks with all the blankets and this and that and incredible amount of, uh, you know, garbage on the sidewalks of that part of the city. And the park was full of people, but incredible weed smell everywhere. Okay, next headline. Here we go. Let's do this. Um, Yeah, we covered that one. Japan Space Center joins push to settle Mars and beyond. The Kyoto University teams with private sector to research artificial gravity and other fields. And they're going to spin some things really fast. And then Hino and Isuzu uh, race for electric trucks as Chinese rivals encroach battery costs and charging infrastructure pose challenges for Japan's market of autonomous trucks, you know, uh, as are happening in the U.S. and in Europe with Iron Ride out of Sweden. And now you've got Hino and Isuzu racing for electric autonomous 
trucks as the Chinese rivals uh, encroach. And of course, uh, they don't. Turns out if you just have good signage and you have good lane markers um, and you're going on the highway, we mostly had autonomous solved like back in the 70s and 80s, apparently, from conversations I had with autonomous car people. Um, it's more the suburb stuff that's all the sexy new things. But for trucks, long range delivery, um, it's been more of a social thing rather than like a technological one, apparently. So when they're saying, hey, look, we can do this for trucks now. I think it's more that they, we've finally achieved some sort of political consensus. It's okay to build these now with stuff because that wasn't, it, it's really weird. The more I've talked to essentially some of the low level architects of some of the, the, the algorithms on this about what technologies are actually ready and which ones essentially around the corner, which ones are fantasies. It's we've, the autonomous truck driving is beyond ready. It was ready a long time ago. It's more just whether or not we allow it to exist in certain regions and whether or not we're willing to dedicate lanes and stuff like that. So it's, it's kind of cool watching these deploy. So then Chris, and also these are electric. Yeah. Even better. The finding answers to the world's drinking water crisis. Scientists are racing to come up with technologies that can solve the world's clean water shortage is the headline from the BBC. And China's putting pigs in 13-story hog hotels to keep germs out. China's taking hog biosecurity to new levels. 13 stories, in fact. Uh, uh, biosecurity pigs. Yeah, they're now sequestering pigs into bins, and then they're kind of 13 levels high. Um, it's kind of like Connect Four with pigs, if you can imagine that. Didn't the Dutch like have some concepts for this for doing skyscrapers with pigs or something like that? And I guess the, I guess they're doing the Chinese efficiency. This adds a new thing. aspect to vertical farming, by the way. It's not just the vegetables that are growing vertically. They have uh, pig hotels, capsule hotels for uh, pigs. Uh, meat consumption in China is skyrocketing. It's actually one of the main problems with trade negotiations they have with other uh, other countries with stuff is whether or not essentially the the imports for for meat is going to basically be able to eat the uh, meat their quotas and stuff like that. So there's an there is a domestic component where if politicians can make the meat affordable, then well, people are happy if they don't, then well, people are unhappy because the appetite's growing. It's, it's an interesting little dynamic there politically. Yeah, there's a huge protein issue globally and it's because of the fish and the beef and all of that. And it's, it turns out crickets is the answer, but it's like how to make the cricket oh. protein palatable. Is the, if you could crack that one, you could be a trillionaire. So... Synthetic meat and algae from algae stuff can actually be extremely lucrative, essentially, for, from a protein perspective, but also like like human health perspective. And the amount of land and water requires is absolutely minuscule. It frees up so much land for, for terraforming, for all sorts of other things, for like wildlife biomes and things. There's there's some really – the meat stuff, the meat consumption – and the cogeneration essentially for advanced like things with uh, no, with uh, no thank you to either one of those options. I'm sorry, was that Charles? No, thank you to either one of those options. I uh, I've become a lot more skeptical of of our ability to know the long term health consequences of eating some of these things, and I do think we should be very precautionary here uh, as we approach you know uniforming or, and setting up all these rules. I mean, different people require different calorie consumptions, different types of food. And uh, this idea of mandating any of these policies seems seems ill-advised. Message me offline, Charles, with stuff. I got some really cool data for you. Woman urges giant. Okay, next one is money, cars, and even houses. Southwest Asian medalists at the Tokyo Olympics are receiving lavish rewards for their accomplishments in addition to a hero's welcome when they return home as Phil Philippines' first gold medalist to receive homes and more. Woohoo! Yeah. Um, uh, thank you to Cheryl for that one. Tokyo Olympics, uh, on uh, but in East 
Europe, it's a little bit different. Um, for according to Germany's DW.com, Deutsche Welle, Tokyo Olympics Belarus runner refused forced flight home. A Belarusian runner says she was taken to Tokyo airport against her will by team officials after she criticized coaches. And um, Belarusian officials are denying her version of the events. Uh, but she says she- I understand she's asking for asylum in, 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 in Japan or something. Uh, yeah, Belarus was in the news, as you probably recall, about two months ago, where they forced the flight of a Ryanair flight to uh, also around a critic, <laughs> a journalist critic, who I would love to hear an update of what's happening with that journalist, if anyone happens to know. Um, yeah, but uh, critics tend not to do so well in Belarus with the current regime. And the Quebec is offering third doses of mRNA vaccines to residents who want to travel to places that don't currently recognize their vaccine status. Some countries do not consider people with mixed doses or COVID shield doses to be fully vaccinated. And China reported 75 new cases of Delta on Sunday as cities begin strict curbs to halt an increasing severe outbreak of the Delta variant. 53 new domesticated case cases arose in eight provinces total domestic cases in the past 10 days to 284 across 14 provinces and Delta has arrived in China and their vaccines have proven very ineffective here in Thailand, which is the big headlines here in Thailand. And that's why we're struggling with um, Delta as well here. So it's going to be really, really interesting to see how um, China deals with Delta now that it's far more uh, contagious than the traditional COVID they had properly, you know, d- essentially managed last time, which Thailand and every, everyone in Asia effectively managed very well. And now we're all struggling with Delta and now it found its way into China. And let's, let's see how China deals with Delta. There'll be fast. I, somebody should do, hopefully someone over there is doing a documentary on, on this. Um, from the New York times, the headline is nooses, anger and no answers inside the uproar over a future Amazon site. The discovery of multiple nooses has set off heated debates about the responsibility of companies and the ability of workers to speak their mind. I think it speaks more to the insanity of uh, people people, uh, challenging a factory being built. Just throwing this out there again with things, and this I hate to bring this up, but a large number of times when this sort of thing starts to happen, you start going, is this being planted just to get people all pissed with each other? Because essentially some of these things are not actually actual threats. A lot of them are basically saying, well, we want to have maximum amount of chaos. There are people that basically do not have ideologies aside from getting people to fight. And this is something that whenever I start seeing like some of these, it's like someone just throws some nooses up around things and they go and say, well, actually, there's someone that basically want people to talk about this stuff more. And it's like, well, is this something you actually think? No, I actually planted it against myself. And it, the fact is you only need to have that happen a small number of times before the amount of chaos that unfolds from it essentially drowns anything else from happening in an area. And the fact that it's so little effort to cause the amount of chaos um, means that regardless of whatever someone's ideology is, is or, or whatever, it means that you can basically completely shut operations down. And as we were talking earlier with like Charles, when he was saying about like, you know, who's paying for uh, news articles, this is the other side of saying, well, who's paying to make the news? This um, one, I, I, I'm shocked. Sh- I, again, official conspiracy announcement 
I would be happily wager that this is again unions anti movements against Amazon um, who else would be more motivated than the unions to do something like this my guess just a wild guess there we go the article says Windsor is can- this an episode of Scooby Doo yeah the <laughs> well played mahogany um it was the union leader all along mr smithers the city of windsor has developed a niche in the warehouse and manufacturing world taking advantage of the great outdoors and crisscrossing highways near hartford walgreens has a large facility here as does dollar tree so when amazon approached the city last year with a proposal to add a large distribution center which represents a total of 1000 jobs local authorities considered this to be a great opportunity here is other here is other mayors and elected officials who would give their left arm to have amazon in their city mayor donald trinks said in a recent interview it deserves our attention and support for the project black the development sent the city up in arms this is just bad grammar here at least four times in the past three months the workers who were building the warehouse amazon amazon warehouse found ropes that looked like nooses at the construction site their findings sparked clashes involving black workers justice uh racial city officials and the many businesses involved raising questions about the responsibility of out-of-town businesses to address local concerns as well as the ability of workers to challenge people in power and disagreements spilled over into cafes and bars the local press and town halls generating coverage from news organizations national and international a rally in the city to promote unity turned into a shouting match between the mayor and local activists ah now we're getting down to the source of these with protesters shouting, who hung the noose? Another <laughs> demonstration by racial justice activists in, is scheduled for Sunday. Workers and activists. Wasn't there some bullshit about NASCAR doing this? Like last, two or three years ago with things? And it's like someone like, it's like, oh no, there's a noose with things. And there's this whole sign of racial solidarity and everything. And no, then, no, well, what was it? That, and that, like, that turned out to be a noose, by the way. That actually turned out to be like a legitimate. Yeah, uh, it was It was like, yeah. a, it was like a hanger for a garage door, but someone never basically had seen one before as a thing. It's like the number of people that actually have actually worked with rope rope equipment and actually know how to make things versus someone that just stumbles on this huge conspiracy and they can get their 15 minutes of fame and then have every single person on edge because if you're basically accused of e either a either being a white supremacist racist or b essentially it's like uh you know not standing up enough for workers rights you go one way or the other essentially it, it doesn't matter it's just the fact that people are having chaos around this because everyone's on hair trigger it, it, it's astounding so it's it's just a wild one okay next one up is and that was from the new york times uh, about an amazon factory with nooses being found on the construction site and crypto exchange binance bows to pressure for physical headquarters <laughs> the comedy of binance um with this in fantastic quote we want to become one of the most compliant and most heavily regulated crypto exchanges in the world says the guy who has no office for an entire company and doesn't respond to the endless growing list of countries that are banning them he doesn't want to go to jail we want to become one of the most compliant and most heavy heavily regulated says the guy who lives on a boat and 
has no office anywhere for the company. Fantastic. Love it. Tweeting that one out. Thank you, Poppy. The next one, uh, Vietnam's FinTech VN Life says valuation now well over $1 billion as Vietnam gets their unicorn. Well done, everybody. You did it, Vietnam. And Thailand got one as well with our, um, it's called Flash Delivery. And now Southeast Asia is ready to uh, start doing some tech. Fears of Hong Kong exit ban add to emigration wave uh, coming from Nikkei Japan. Nikkei, uh, Japan's leading um, financial publication, although they do cover a lot of tech. And this one, the headline is fears of Hong Kong exit ban add to emigration wave, meaning Hong Kongers uh, are worried that they're going to be banned from leaving and that's causing them to leave. <laughs> Law kicking in Sunday, another factor driving exodus to countries with open arms. A man waves to his family members before departing to the UK at Hong Kong International Airport as the photo with him and his uh, wife and kids and a whole bunch of luggage. Kate, and then the, this, this is paywalled, unfortunately, but uh, interesting, uh, Hong Kongers are fleeing as they worry they will be banned from fleeing in the future. And what else do we got? The, if you don't trust AI yet, you're not wrong, is the headline from the New York Times. It's an opinion piece. And um, as usual, it's paywalled and uh, artificial intelligence wants you and your job. We'd, we'd better control machines before they control us, says somebody named John Pfeffer. Um, let's see what this one's all about. And John, according to his Twitter profile, is a writer, editor, activist, and um, outside of Washington, D.C., and it's a very narrative style article about my wife and I were recently driving in Virginia. Mm, seems a bit verbose. So we're going to just tweet that out and let people discover that one at their own prerogatives. Um, women urge tech giants to innovate on office return after an unprecedented year that saw a record number of women leaving the workforce. Tech employees and advocates are urging for them to uh, innovate. Um, and as women urge tech giants to innovate on office return. Heyman, you have this one about check out the new app that aims to make medical tracking easier. But I think I just realized he's doing the Canadian tech room, so he can't answer that question. Just tweeting out one about this virtual artist just signed a major record label deal in China. One of Warner Music China boss, John... Serban discusses why Wet Records has signed Ha Jiang, an, an artist who only exists online. So now they're getting record deals. There you go. What finally triggered Beijing's wrath against Hong Kong's biggest tech, uh, South China Morning Post? The, the late founder of the Professional Teachers Union was one of Beijing's most trusted dissenting voices. We can just imagine what happened to that one, so we can skip that one. Um, Indian online insurer Policy Bazaar files for an IPO as all the Indian unicorns start ramping up for IPOs. It's fantastic. And Messi and Mahogany shared that article within about two minutes of each other. <laughs> and the next one is about Elon Musk Starlink broadband service now taking the Isle of Wight 
orders, meaning they just got their paperwork squared away to set up satellite base stations on the Isle of Wight to service all of the UK. And, oh, it was just announced that Ariana Grande is the secret um, super celeb star partnering with Fortnite for Rift Tour. And that was assumed she might be one, the, the, the as yet unnamed talent for this VR, um, I don't know, concert, for lack of a better word, VR experience. Porsche invests $75 million in German rocket startup as their combustion engine team is no longer busy as the company goes EV. And list of international submarine communication. <laughs> Chris sent in a Wikipedia article about the list of international submarine communication cables, which will help you figure out who controls the internet. ByteDance. Yep. Um, and, and it turns out it's Google and now ever ever more so a bit of Facebook. Uh, Side note, in the outbreak of both World War One and World War II, the very first action taken before war was actually declared was the slicing of the cables with things. You had better believe that essentially every single one of those cables has a charge by every group that had a nation state that has a submarine. Essentially, if things get that nasty somewhere in the world, that's going to be one of those things that goes poof. <laughs> And then all of a sudden it goes through all sorts of managed media for essentially what duration of conflict. So the, one of those fun little things about those cables is that they are not indestructible. It takes a lot to keep them maintained. So fun times for the future. So somebody just DM'd me and they can DM me again if they want me to reveal their name. But just out of sake of caution, I will not reveal their name. Um, they are geographically close to and certainly are familiar with Gorilla. Uh, geographically, it's in their geography, and they um, seem very legitimate. Looking at their Twitter profile, they Twitter DM'd me to say about the gorilla story that we were did the deep dive on from um, Financial Times uh, outlet called Sifted that disinformation is a growth market. Gorilla's story is a placed story. It answers its own question which we concluded because the journalist was briefed to deliver suggested messages, including minimum wage, no health care, disgruntled employees not looked after, all negative side, relatable, unsubstantiated pain points mentioned rather than all the positive positives, all the possible positives they could have mentioned. This was probably sponsored by competitors through an agency to a paper or journalist, which is actually uh corroborated by another headline that we read yesterday, uh, which interviewed Facebook's head of security, who said nearly essentially what this person's saying about the Financial Times story about gorillas, which is agencies are now, uh, PR agencies are now the new kind of, um, you know, queens on the chessboard in terms of shedding taste makers. Yeah, well, disinformation or misinformation. And they're being used now that bot farms are a little more uh, identifiable. So now um, people are turning to disinformation through PR agencies to use journalists who um, can promote those kind of narratives. So it, it, I agree. It did kind of smell of a, of a placed story, but um, anyway, thank you to the person who sent that DM. For people that are really interested in that topic with things, Century of Self by Adam Curtis is an amazing documentary. And one of the main topics they cover is the, the emergence of the uh, 
the, the, the profession of, of public relations with Edward Bernays and uh, some of the fun things from Woodrow Wilson after, uh, after all their fun with things. And it's a really fascinating exploration of, the, of the, the emergence of the industry and how it's influenced culture over long periods of time. Uh, a Century of Self by Adam Kurz. Great stuff. Okay. And then um, Mahogany just found one from South China Morning Post saying, ByteDance AI head quits to join University of California as a professor following other prominent AI scientists like Fei-Fi Li and Andrew Eng, uh, who gave up their corporate jobs for teaching and research. I guess Confucius Institute wasn't as, as popular as it used to be. <laughs> Let's not go there. Mark Zuckerberg. Oh, I love this one. Um, the headline from Wired is Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse already sucks. <laughs> has, <laughs> has yet to even be built yet. Um, where it says in this article from Wired, uh, Facebook's metaverse ambitions reveal an alarming lack of imagination and less alarming love of tech buzzwords. <laughs> the, the Zuckerverse, he's calling it. The Zuckerverse is coming. <laughs> Just over a week ago, <laughs> Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg announced in a long interview with The Verge that his social network is readying itself to become a metaverse company, first floated by uh, this journalist is just player-hating to some extent, uh, Zuck-hating, and... They get credit for coining the words, though. Yeah, I mean, just just the word Zuckerverse alone is worth the price of admission. So you win, sir. Um, uh, The journalist who wrote this article, just just with the word Zuckerverse alone, you, you, you get my endorsement and retweet for this article. That's bad news for Zuckerberg. Yeah. It hasn't even been made yet. He's, there's barely any details about it, and you're writing an article headlined "Mark Zuckerberg." Mark Zuckerberg. I, I like how he says. Yeah. I like how he says. Essentially, the 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 assumption is it's all ready. The idea is that it's not going to get better over time. It's just no. You start a certain thing, you buy it out, and then it inevitably degrades over time. You're already starting the timer from the, from zero. Well, right he, here, in right? in, in his own admission, digging. here's the last paragraph. What exactly this will look like is anyone's guess at this stage. However. I do remind you that the headline is it already sucks. <laughs> <laughs> awesome uh logic you're using there, sir. But again, Zuckerverse is <laughs> earns you a retweet in my book. That's fantastic. So the walked fine line politically but again under Ungawasa, what finally so uh, next headline is from TechCrunch. Shopify allows merchants to sell NTFs directly through their storefronts. Fantastic. Why not? Every, the whole world's doing it. It takes 48 hours to figure out how to do it. Might as well do it. Get the headline. You did it. Um, the next one, global cryptocurrency users reached $221 million in June 2021. Blockchain company DMG invests $2 million in some crypto trading platform you never heard of. And uh, China Roundup, keep down internet startups. Oh, this is a, that misguided article from TechCrunch, thinking they understand why China's cracking down on internet startups uh, to, to cultivate hard tech like semiconductors and it's just fundamentally flawed misunderstanding of what's actually happening there on the ground. And then new round of Delta lockdown impedes recovery momentum. Yeah, uh, indeed, Delta's causing problems. Uh, at the FDA's urging, Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna are expanding vaccine studies of kids 5 to 11. Wow, we're getting young. Chrome 
for Android becoming a two-factor authentication security key for Google. Oh, this could be interesting. Chrome for Android app as another two-factor authentication security key method. Upon entering your credentials on a laptop, you will get the usual are you trying to sign in notification that opens a full screen page with yes or no it's not me at the bottom and now now your chrome browser uh session is essentially becoming a two-factor authentication security key for your google account which makes sense because they never not see you on the internet so they know when something's up so jeremiah what's this one you're sending in uh, from palo alto sewage yeah, I didn't know about this technology being used, but apparently there are multiple cities that are testing sewage in order to determine at population level yeah. the COVID yeah. rates. That's an old, did you know about I this? I did. In fact, that's, I heard about that in the very early, I mean, about a year ago, where they were able through the... Singapore, yeah. Singapore has been doing that. Even at NUS, where I worked for six months, the student dorms uh, sewage was checked for such things. As well as in the HDB flats, they've been doing it for a while now. Yeah. When when Kim Jong-un was traveling from North Korea to, to diplomatic talks with things, he would have a, a, a state secrets toilet, essentially, that he had porta potty that they would cart around with him everywhere in case he needed to go to the loo to the, not reveal, essentially, you know, secret data about his health status to, essentially, for any uh, any government agents that want to basically infiltrate such things. If you monitor upstream of all sorts of things, you can you can you can determine a lot about population health, the drugs that people are taking, health conditions, like all sorts of crazy stuff. In fact, and in fact, based on some remnants of uh, COVID um, uh, in the pitch, um, uh, they made a whole uh, dorm full of students go through testing, as well as in some HDB flats, they did that. The whole complex. Yeah, the students in Switzerland, well, I should say this way, a friend of mine who's a father in Switzerland says that the children at his school don't take individual COVID tests. They take groups COVID tests by having all the students in the school spit into a bucket and then they can test it. And if it comes back positive, oh, interesting. Yeah, because they figure if one student gets it, they'll all get it. So there's no point in t- oh, and they're all in a bubble anyways with yeah. stuff, and it's going to be the same DNA amplification either way. That that's interesting. Yeah. Weird tradition in Switzerland. Yeah, and then it makes sense. It's convenient. No, that, that 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 that's a little different. It's group testing, so you're looking for someone to get it, and then you do individual testing right. if it does shows positive. But that way, you only have to run one test, which is cheap. Right. That's what, that's what was going on in Singapore also, not to test everybody regularly, but do this sort of thing. I think in USA, we just said, screw the kids, they'll be fine. And it's like, we just, we just didn't bother to look. And it's like, yeah, put them back in school. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out later. It's like, yeah, we care about as, the future kids. As I'm literally waiting at the hospital for my 13-month-old's COVID test. Fun, guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In Germany, they just released the third vaccination. Booster shots, everyone. I think Germany released an article that they are going to uh, give, uh, I think, starting with a certain group of um, people, I think those who are high risk and uh, elderly, the third shots of uh, vaccine, uh, booster. So um, here's an interesting one. 
that Cheryl found about from Deutsche Welle in Germany about the German floods, rumors that the bodies of 600 children have been found in Germany's flood disaster areas are rife on social media and other online platforms. DW looked into the story to find the origins of the false reports. Where did these rumors come from? As far as DW has been able to confirm, one news report taken out of context seems to have played a decisive role in triggering the rumors. A short excerpt from a report broadcast as part of a morning news program by the German television channel NTV appears to have been turned into a 15-second video clip, which subsequently went viral. The clip shows a German reporter standing in front of a mountain of rubble and talking about the situation on the ground. He can be heard saying the following words before the video stops. Dot, dot, dot. Still live. On on the one hand, of course, they have had a traumatic experience. We are able to talk with residents who found the bodies of children in their homes washed up from somewhere further away. And on the other hand, the question is, will there be more flooding? They say this is where the clip ends. DW asked NTV for more information on the spokesperson from the media group RTL Deutschland to, to which the channel belongs, confirmed that the video was a much shortened extract of a conversation shown on the 9 a.m. morning news program on July 22nd. The reporter in uh, Altenburg near Altenar, uh, which was especially hard hit by the floods and conspiracy theory spreads worldwide. Oh, this screenshot of a Facebook post shows that the video began spreading online soon afterwards at 10.55 a.m. the same day. At this point, however, there was no talk of 600 bodies. But the first post already indicated more or less clear link to conspiracy theories, such as those being spread by far-right QAnon movement, which got its start in the U.S. According to, the, to those who follow QAnon, a global elite is conducting secret and deadly experiments on children who are being held in underground bunkers or tunnels. For those who promote this conspiracy theory, the floods would have brought the bodies to the surface. It's difficult to determine, however, where the number 600 came from. There was no mention of this figure in the video, in the entire report, which DW was able to view. The video clip soon spread around the world, and on July 26th, it appeared on YouTube with an English title. The description implied that the German reporter had said that the bodies of 600 babies had been washed up in the floods. Some viewers posted the corrected translation of the reporter's words, but were frequently dismissed or simply ignored. DW also found similar examples in Japanese, Dutch, and Spanish on social media and other online platforms. One tweet implied that the reporter had been deliberately interrupted. And click a credible link to QAnon movement. A Andrew Wolf, a communications expert who works at the Austrian fact-checking site Mimakama that campaigns against online abuse, was also explored the origins of the false report. He found a plausible connection to QAnon movement and told DW that the fact that there was no evidence for the claim was typical for conspiracy theories, which, which often followed a simple pattern. So long as there is no evidence to the contrary, what we say is right. And so it looks like, long story short, it's QAnon. So I'll pause there as it goes on for much longer and tweet that out. And thank you to Cheryl for sharing that one. PayPal hiring over 100 crypto positions as global cryptocurrency adoption rises is the headline from Bitcoin.com. And uh, Robinhood flop could be a turning point in Wall Street's um, and Robinhood wasn't the only company to have a disappointing debut this week. 
is the wide open IPO window beginning to close? No, it's one start. Come on, guys. Forbes, come on. You journalists, stop it with this. Like, holy cow. Hey, Tom, I, sh I should point out one of the reasons I think the, the IPO market's doing so well is because of uh, private equity firms taking companies, private mergers and acquisitions. They're, they're relatively less public companies than they were, say, 25 years ago. I mean, the Wilshire 5000, which used to be an in index of the 5000 biggest stocks, actually has only 4000 or 3900 stocks in it. So there's still room to create more public companies because mutual funds and ETFs, they, they need public companies to buy. Yeah, but just phrasing the question is, is the window closing? It's like. Uh, no, no, I'm, we're making the same. I point. know, I'm I know. I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm just grieving the state of journalism and headline buffoonery in 2021. They ask rules of headlines. The answer is always no. So next one up, Deliveroo unveils plans to pull out of Spain in wake of new rider law. And that's one way to get a company to leave is to change the regulations. Uh, and um, Vinay found one about fintech and commercial banks performance to China a leap forward or... Um, so you can read that one. How crypto and NTFs could help regular people become real estate tycoons. There you go. That's what you were looking for. You want to be a real estate tycoon with NFTs. Jump right in. The water's fine. Um, <laughs> just yep, clear water. Just jump <laughs> in. Make it happen for yourself. And it looks like uh, Cal. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, is someone raising their hand like an an old dear friend? No, I just refreshed and they I guess they were. Now they're not. Looked like our friend Sonali was raising her hand previously. Oh, she's down there. Though. Sonali, are you raising your she hand? She did earlier. She did earlier. She did earlier. Yeah. Let's see if she might have something to add. She works. Uh, she's Biden's legal representative, if I remember correctly. Is that right, Cal? Sonali, are you there? You want to? If you yeah. raise your hand, we would love to hear what's going on with your very dear friend, Joe Biden. That would be fantastic. The Windows, your phone apps could... No, let's skip. Monzo faces FCA money laundering probe. According to the Telegraph in the UK, the Challenger Bank says it needs to raise further funds after losses neared £130 million for the, for the year uh, to February. And it's just give you a bit of this one. Let's see here. Uh, oh, it's paywall telegraph. Uh, shame on me. The next one from our friend Cheryl here on stage, uh, from the next web, which is out of the, out of Europe, uh, actually Brussels. If I, no, 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 they're in Amsterdam. Sorry. Boris is in Amsterdam. The, we must include more women in physics. It'd be benefit. It would benefit all humanity as the headline fixing the imbalance in gender representation and physics research worldwide would bring about, bring more of science's best minds into the spotlight uh, is the headline all around the world. There's an extreme gender imbalance in physics in both academia and industry examples are too easy to find in Burkina Faso's largest university, the university of, Oh, come on. This is like a scrabble word here. This one. Holy cow. Can I buy a vowel? O U A G A D O U G O U. Messy. What's the uh, <laughs> Burkina Faso's largest university? <laughs> there you go. Thank Ouagadougou. you, Cal. 
Um, hey, man, I'm African. <laughs> you, were, you were born on the continent. <laughs> 99% of physics students are men. In Germany, women comprise only 24% of physics PhD graduates creeping up from 21% in 2017. No woman graduated in physical sciences at the University of El Salvador between 2017 and 2020. And I think we can summarize this uh, he- this entire article by the headline, which is we must include more women in physics. And indeed, we often go on about gender diversity in tech uh, being geeks as we are. And uh, But it seems physics ha- has a lot of progress to make messy, you're applauding or want to jump in? No, I was just clapping. We need more yeah, women, no doubt. So, thank you for that one, Cheryl. Just tweeting that one out now for everyone who wants to do the actual deep dive on that one. And we, uh, someone else sharing the Deliveroo could leave Spanish market ahead of on demand labor reclassification. Deliveroo announced today that it is considering leaving the Spanish market, citing limited market share and a long road of investment with high, highly uncertain long-term potential returns on the horizon. The company, an on-demand outfit based in the UK, went public earlier in 2021. Its shares initially sagged, drawing concern about both the value of on-demand companies and the tech concerns, li- the and tech concerns listing in London more broadly. And I'm just uh, fondly remembering Cal the. Uh, Deliveroo's kind of uh, poor performance in their UK IPO. IPO. Yeah. yeah, indeed, it was not the yeah. strongest IPO, and and it cast a lot of questions at the time. This is about three, four months ago, was it not, Cal? We, it was one of the when we first started doing tech news around the world here. Yeah, no, no, no. It was uh, yeah, three months, two, three months ago. I think they had oh, a union union news just right before the IPO that tarnished the reputation. Yeah, shares of Deliveroo have since recovered. The company's second quarter earnings report saw it raise its expected gross order volume uh, from between 30 to 40% to between 15 and 60%. So growth is good. But recall that Spain adopted a law in May, a law generally agreed to in March, requiring on-demand companies to hire their couriers. There you go. That's how you can kill that whole industry overnight. Um, don't allow independent contractors, force them to be employees. And they will have to flee. That is not uh, compatible with their business model. And that goes back to that story of gorillas in Germany. It's like, yeah, you can. And it's interesting to see who might have been the kind of instigators or financial support uh, to make that policy change. And it could be the large retailers in those areas that could be all kinds of people but interesting some that now that would be an article for an, a tech investigative journalist to dive into who was dr- the driving uh force in changing that spanish law which is eventually going to uh, effectively uh, force out the delivery companies like deliveroo interesting question let's uh let's see if they decide to pursue that story uh, Norway's electric car subscription service iMove closes $22 million. The subscribe to your car movement has been taking off in recent years with the appearance of Flex in the UK, Kazoo, what a brilliant name, um, after its acquisition by Drover, and Care by Volvo. Uh, yeah, indeed, Volvo, one of my long sponsors of my conferences in Stockholm, where they're based in Sweden. Uh, 
uh, although they're based in Gothenburg globally. Um, and we've done many interesting partnerships over the years, but Volvo should definitely be mentioned in this. They, I believe, pioneered the sub sub car subscription model and, uh, and interesting to see startups going into that space, uh, not surprisingly, out of Norway, just across the street from Gothenburg, where Volvo, I think, pioneered it. Hey, Tyler, is it a timeshare condo? What is, what is this car subscription mean? Volvo believed they were very inspired by Spotify out of Stockholm, who, who's doing subscription music of music libraries. And they thought in they believed in the future, lots of things will be subscription, even your car. And they wanted to, you know, experiment and test this idea out, you know, uh, in a kind of a sandbox fashion. And, you know, and they wanted to find out if there was product market fit for that. And so, you know, it was very easy for them to try. Anyway, so it hasn't really taken off in a big way yet. You know, just a few startups, you know, a couple getting little A rounds in Europe. That's kind of where it's at at the moment. And I, I it doesn't seem to me um, to be, have strong market fit at the moment. I mean, you, you could essentially tweak it or it might be a timing issue as is often the case uh, with smart ideas if, that is dependent on other synergistic if, technologies or innovations that once they come out, you know, these models could actually work. Mahogany? If the economics of owning a car in Sweden are anything like it is in Denmark, then part of what made that seem like a good idea could be the high taxes on buying a car in the first place. Yes. So you're paying for the subscription, which you didn't actually buy the car. You're subscribing to the car. So you avoid the taxes and mahogany is very right. There's all kinds of incredibly creative tax avoidance schemes in areas with very high taxes like Scandinavia. And this is certainly one of those. So that's a brilliant insight, mahogany. You're, you're probably right about that. But that's something very different from leasing, is it? Yes, it is different from leasing. The main problem here is um, there's no scaling. I mean, for example, I know a couple of companies. I spoke with the founders because of what I do, uh, Get Around and also Toro. The number of the cars that people could actually use are not there. Whereas with Uber and Lyft, they're everywhere. So I think um, if someone figured that one friction, then it could scale up pretty good because, you know, just like in Denmark and Sweden, in Singapore, it's very expensive to own a car. So, um, Central Tokyo, they already have such scheme for many years. Come and check it out. And let's see here. Tiger shark courtship ritual caught on tape. Okay, that's a little out of our context, but there you go. Thank you, Nalarmi. <laughs> and what's this one from Forbes? Beautiful trash. Streetwear brand Taosu drops the active self with looks created from recycled bottles. And uh, from Nalarmi has one from Forbes. At, uh, at Sea Airspace, theatrics risks obscuring the foundering freedom class. This is a really weird title of a story from Forbes about um, uh, of a new naval vessel built with AIs, essentially. It's kind of like a spaceship on water. It's really wild looking. Called the Freedom Class. LSC Fleet. And you have to kind of see it to understand it. Over 
Oh, this is somebody found my favorite article of the past week about the 100 warships locations that have been faked. Although this is Engadget now covering it. It was originally discovered by Wired. Um, but let's read. Uh, Engadget just did a very short version of it, a really short summary of it. It's just four short paragraphs, four sentences, actually. But the original story from Wired was truly fantastic, where they it was a long interview with the Swedish gentleman who figured out this amazing story, which I'll let's read this in Gadget one. It's real short. Abuses of location technology might just result in hot political disputes. Uh, absolutely. In fact, it already has in the black in the Balt. I'm sorry, in the uh, um, is it the Black Sea where off the coast of um, Ukraine? And uh, there's been multiple places. Yeah. The and they even mention Wired as they have to do because they just straight up stole the story from Wired. According to Wired, Skywatch and Global Fishing Watch have conducted studies showing that over 100 warships locations have been faked since August 2020, including the British aircraft carrier Queen Elizabeth and the U.S. destroyer Roosevelt. In some cases, the false data showed the vessels entering disputed waters or nearing other countries' naval bases, movements that could spark international incidences. No, it did spark international incidences. Russia fired on the British uh, vessels in the Black Sea. The research team found the fakes by comparing the research team. No, it was a guy in Sweden all by himself. He, he was named in the Wired article. Come on, guys. Um, the research team founded the fakes by comparing uses of automatic identification systems, which are called AIS, automatic identification systems, a GPS-like system to help prevent collisions. It's essentially GPS for maritime travel, for 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 boats, GPS for boats. With verifiable position data by using an identifying pattern. All of the false info came from shore-based AIS receivers while satellites showed the real positions, for instance. Yeah, it's hard to not it has is hard, but we've read other articles in the past few weeks of faked um satellite uh, imagery as well. Global Fishing Watch had been investigating fake AIS positions for years, but this was the first time it had seen falsified data for real ships. It's not certain who's faking locations and why. However, analysts said the data was characteristic of common perpetrator that might be Russia. Almost all of the affected warships were from European countries or NATO members, and the data included bogus incursions around Kaliningrad, which is just in the Baltics there, that little piece of Russia squeezed between what is it? Poland and um, Latvia. And almost all of the affected warships were from European countries or NATO members uh, Yeah, in, in Kaliningrad and the Black Sea, Crimea and other Russian interests. In theory, Russia could portray Europe and NATO as aggressors by falsely claiming those rivals sent warships into Russian seas. Russia has historically denied hacking claims. It has a years-long history of using fake accounts and misinformation to stoke political tensions that further its own ends, though. And if Russia is connected, the fake warship locations might be a significant escalation of that strategy. Even though such an approach might not lead to shooting matches, it could get disconcerningly close. No, it did. Did you not... Engadget, John Fingus. Hello, John. Earth, hello, John. Hi, John. This is Tyler. Did you not see the headlines from the BBC of Russia firing on British warships in the Black Sea? This was this was widely covered. John, it's not um, potential. It's actual. It's not uh, future. It's past. 
So, uh, yeah, the, the story is truly fantastic. And this very clever Swedish guy um, found that the he got the source of the actual AIS outputting data from the vessels and the satellite images. So he knew where the the the, the ships were. He can see the actual when when ships send out AIS data, it sends out all kinds of interesting data. And the receivers on the land uh, that receive the data, you know, receive that data. But this is about fake AIS data. And whoever's faking the data is not faking the data perfectly, but they're faking it consistently wrong. Meaning, um, the when you counterfeit dollar bills, um, if you obviously you're not faking it perfectly, you're making errors and you're making your errors consistently because you're doing it mechanically. And that's how they can determine uh, the source of the fake uh, printed dollar bills. The, 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 who's ever making the um, fake money, they figure out who it is because of the consistent nature of the, the errors. And then they can find the machine who's, you know, the source of the fake errors, consistently fake errors. And anyway, so they know who's making, you know, that the source, when they find fake data, they know that it's this consistent source because of the consistent nature of the errors in not perfectly copying the original data. And so all of the experts are say it's very clearly Russia. When you read the original article from Wired, the people say, oh, there's no question. This is Russia. Like it's just it's 10, 100,000 percent. It's Russia. Despite the fact that the data itself uh, it only essentially benefits Russia because it gives them the ability to fire preemptively on ships before they enter their space by giving fake data that shows that they've already entered their space. So um, it's a, just a tr truly interesting article. But thank God somebody found this out before uh, a battle actually results from it. But really interesting take and interesting to see Engadget covering it. So next article, Bitcoin's future can be green if we act now is uh, the headline from Poppy. And I'll spare everyone the read on that one. You can uh, get that from the Twitter account. 10 best examples of VR and AR in education from Forbes. And uh, the image alone is quite cool of a student looking at the Milky Way in their classroom through VR. And as I just mentioned, Ariana Grande is the latest pop superstar to step into the Fortnite event that's coming up on August 6th. Blackstone and Hudson Pacific plan a $1 billion film studio in the UK. As U.S. firms Blackstone and Hudson Pacific said they plan to create a major film TV digital production studio in the UK to attract specifically uh, Netflix and I believe, who was the other one? Hmm. Who was it? It was Netflix primarily, but one other outlet that they were trying to entice into doing productions in uh, the UK with this new studio, which is not named in this article from Reuters, but we read it in another article, and that's how we knew. Um, Renjant from India um, sent in this one explaining what is the e-rupee, because that was essentially announced when we were live here about 10 hours ago that India is now formally announced the e-rupee, how India's new digital payment system that is aimed to further the ease of living will be launched today at 4.30 p.m. 
uh, which we, again was when we were here earlier and it's now live and it works via QR code essentially. And um, it is not a central bank digital currency. It's just a digital currency, although potentially a stepping stone to a central bank digital currency for India. And um, it's just... Hey, Tyler, can I just point out very quickly, as you mentioned Blackstone, they, they just bought Reese Witherspoon's uh, uh, film company. She's got an independent production company, mm -hmm. and that got announced mm -hmm. today that they, they're buying it. There you go. Blackstone getting big into the Hollywood game. Women alleged... Tyler, yes. Tyler I think... Uh, Aaron and uh, you know many members of this community. They have a, we have a room at two o'clock UK time Wednesday on DeFi and and uh, just generally. I think we'll discuss this whole Indian uh, you know uh, currency thing and uh, and implications. So we can really deep dive on that one. We've got a we've got a really good set of issues coming up on that. But that's on the it's up in the club. You look at the club. There's various rooms that deep dive in different places. Okay, so here's a couple of fun ones. Um, here's the first one from NBC News. Charles sent this one in, but we read this in our last gathering as well. Women allege that NSO spyware was used to steal and leak their private um, person photos, actually, and from their phones. And it's a really wild story of a Lebanese broadcast journalist at Al Jazeera was eating dinner at home with her husband last June when she received a message from a colleague telling her to check Twitter. Uh-oh. She opened up the, her Twitter account and was horrified. A private photo taken when she was wearing a bikini in a jacuzzi uh, was circulating by a network of accounts accompanied by false claims that the photos were taken at her boss's house, which doesn't seem so terrible to the Western audience, but to a Middle Eastern audience, that, that's, that's not a small deal. Um being in a bikini and such overall the next few years the over the next few days she was barraged by thousands of tweets and direct messages attacking her credibility as a journalist describing her as a prostitute or telling her she was ugly and old many of the messages came from accounts that appeared to support saudi crown prince mohammed bin salman al Saud, otherwise known as mbs in the <laughs> and uh, and anyone who followed kasoji uh, the journalist who was um very literally hacked um knows probably is remembers uh mbs or anybody in tech knows who mbs is but anyway including some verified accounts belonging to government officials that were critical of her on twitter i immediately knew that my phone had been hacked she says who believes she had been targeted in an effort to silence her critical reporting of the saudi regime those photos were not published anywhere they were only on my phone I'm used to being harassed online as a journalist, but this was different, she added. It was as if someone had entered my home, my bedroom, my bathroom. It felt so unsafe and traumatizing. And um, yeah, so Pegasus, she was hacked by Pegasus. And she believes by the Saudis, which it was widely reported that the Saudis had used Pegasus even on Kasoji and Kasoji's wife. Even prior to him entering the Istanbul embassy, um, where he was very literally hacked after he got hacked by Pegasus. So now this is a um, Al Jazeera journalist who believes she was also hacked with Pegasus from the Saudis and had her information, her photos, her bikini photos leaked online, and then was harassed by um, a verified Saudi uh, state individuals um, publicly, and she believes it was a silencing technique to silence her uh, 
articles about the critical of the Saudi regime. Truly terrifying. And it goes on to give a couple of other examples of women uh, in the Middle East who were uh, suffered I nearly identical scenarios. So that's not an isolated incidence, which gives more validation to her argument. And this is being reported by NBC News in the U.S., who's uh, to, to be taken rather seriously as a source. And then the New York Times, uh, Dr. Fran sent in one that a brain drain among government scientists bogs down Biden's climate ambitions. Hundreds of scientists and policy experts left the government during the Trump administration. The job remains unfilled nearly six months into President Biden, Biden, Biden's term. Indeed, um, the climate scientists all did go decide to work for, uh, outside of government during the Trump you know, era uh, and have not come back during Biden's term. And that's very unfortunate. And thank you for that one, Dr. Fran. The next one up is from Mahogany from Yahoo News, Binance ads, Patreon-like subscriptions to support creators as we are now entering the creator economy and Behance uh, wants a piece of the game, no doubt. In one of the most significant changes to come to the platform since it was acquired by Adobe in 2012, Behance is introducing Patreon-like subscriptions Starting today with a small group of about two dozen artists, Adobe is allowing creators to offer access to premium projects like streams and source files and all of that fun jazz. And no, no doubt. Yeah, Binance is smart to get into that game. And I just have to look up if my friend Jeff and, and, was the founder of Binance. And live Behance. content. Oh, okay. By Behance founder is ah, Scott Belsky. Okay. Uh, founded by Matthias Correa and Scott Belsky in 2005. There you go. Okay. There you go, Bahance. And then next we've got, thank you for that one, Mahogany. Oh, my goodness, everyone's sharing that TechCrunch article about uh, the mistaken take on China cracking down. And then Too Simple, a self-driving truck network takes shape uh, in the partnership with Ryder. And that's a huge partnership for Too Simple in the U.S. for fully self-driving autonomous trucks um, all across America's highways. There you go. It's happening. Next up, we've got the Argo AI can now offer the public rides in its autonomous vehicles in California. Argo AI, the technology company, partners with Ford, the car company, and Lyft, the platform, to do um, a fully autonomous um taxis in california first time ever well well done to argo and lyft and uh ford on that partnership so you can now do your uh autonomous taxis in california nasa nasa invites the public to watch the starliner launch virtually with the new russian module successfully attached to the international space station nasa nasa is now turning its attention to the starliner launch wanting to get in on some of that fun live streaming that um uh, SpaceX uh, does so well, and uh, maybe they can get people to tune in for their live stream coverage for the Boeing Orbital Flight Test 2 mission to the International Space Station. Who knows? Maybe. Um, studies show banned content is still thriving on social platforms. From hate speech to conspiracy theories, content social 
media companies say they prohibit is still finding its way online. This one from Mashable, from anti-Semitism and anti-AAPI, hate speech to COVID misinformation content prohibited by social platforms continues to have real world consequences. Social platforms like Facebook and YouTube continue rolling out content moderation tools meant to keep harmful content like hate speech, misinformation, and, and incitements to violence off their platforms. Reports show that users keep successfully posting terrible stuff anyways. The latest example concerns anti-Semitic content. There's a rise in anti-Semitism around the world, and that's translating to and being fueled by posts on social media. As reported by the New York Times, two new studies from the Center for Countering Digital Hate um, and the Anti-Defamation League, respectively, show that social media platforms, including Facebook and Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Reddit, Twitch, TikTok, and Roblox, yes, even Roblox, remove only a small percentage of the content and the organizations reported as anti-Semitic. We did a really deep dive on this when we met 10 hours ago, and essentially, it's a report and that got into the actual data, and essentially... They found around 800 pieces of anti-Semitic content around uh, de Holocaust deniability and stuff like that. And then they reported it to the respective platforms. And then they gave them a report card, basically, of how well they did. And in this article, it says, for example, the um, Facebook removed just over 10 percent of the hundreds of piece of content the researchers reported while twitter acted on uh, around 11 percent youtube responded to 21 percent tiktok acted on 18 percent and the anti-defamation league's report had similar findings though twitter fared better uh, in the adl's report it assigned grades to platforms based on the responsiveness to reports on hate speech twitter got a b minus facebook and tiktok got c minus and roblox got a dismal d Ironically, kind of the opposite of the of the outcomes from this Center for Countering Digital Hate reports. So apparently there needs to be continued reports so that we can get um, a little consensus between these reports because the percentages are in almost exact opposite reciprocation between these two reports in terms of who's doing the best and the worst out of the platforms. So um, more reports. Rivian is in talks for a UK factory, and they've also raised a ton of money, and Rivian uh, has shown off very intense and interesting and appealing SUV and truck models so far that are completely electric, is backed by Amazon and Ford and others, and is also the makers of the Amazon electric vans, which are testing their own autonomous delivery of your Amazon orders. And that's the real secret sauce of what's really going on. Because as soon as these vehicles become fully autonomous, they're not going to sell them to you no more. They're too valuable as delivery vehicles that can work 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So why sell them to people when people would happily pay to be transported, although they won't have to pay much if they're fully autonomous. And for the short term, there will be autonomous only in pre-designated grids. Uh, just like the pilot test for the Algo AI Ford um, uh, Lyft uh, version that we headline that we just read, that's only going to be in very select regions that they can clearly map out 
because uh, they've not yet really mastered level five autonomy or even level four. We're barely at level three, and that's why they have to work in predefined grids. But that's fine for delivery of your of your Amazon products. You know, just let the cars learn very specific neighborhoods and let them things do what they do. Uh, which is also underway in Austin with uh, pizza and chicken wing delivery and things like that, as we know, and four different territories inside of Beijing getting ready for the 2022 Beijing Winter Games. And they want to showcase the autonomous taxis there, which off, you know, only work in predefined sandbox areas. So Mashable just has one here about why women in tech are so angry all the time. And... Um, Women in tech are fighting a never-ending war against pay disparity, discrimination, and harassment, but still show up for work um, under duress, is the headline from Mashable. And Bloomberg has one about anti-vax app squares off with Google app over misinformation. It's called uh, Unvaxed, and Apple just decided they're not going to have it in their app store because Biden's already coming down hard on Facebook, and Apple don't want none of that. Joe Biden, he... So um, a new social app designed as a community for the unvaccinated is testing Google and Apple's policies uh, concerning the spread of misinformation about COVID-19 vaccines, and they're going to lose. <laughs> Let's just save the suspense, shall we? Um, in fact, they just lost. That headline came in uh, not long ago. Apple's not going to have none of that because they're potentially going to be responsible in the, in the not so distant future for doing it. And they're in fact, Amy Klobuchar specifically called that out very, very straight that they're working on a carve out of section 230, which would hold them responsible um, in the cases of medical misinformation during a pandemic. And uh, they don't want none of that smoke. So they're just going to avoid the trouble and not let that app, for the unvaccinated into their platform. Prime Minister Modi to launch the e-rupee tomorrow. No, he launched it today. And that's an old a day late on that headline. But uh, we covered it in near real time and it's based on QR codes, as we said. And it's um, being tested now in India. And no, no doubt when we start tomorrow, when we join again, about... Oh, 11 hours from right now, no doubt we'll have friends in India who have actually used it and give us a first-hand account of how it went, and that'll so, be fantastic. So if, 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 if it's using QR codes, it has to be centralized to some extent, right? Because no, those QR codes are just – it's just data. So it's pointing you to a URL Correct. of some kind. It's just a URL pointer. And it's currently just working with banks. It's not working with any particular apps. And that's why it's a QR code and not a partnership with any apps at the moment. Like in. So it literally is just a digital currency and not distributed or anything like it's that. It's a digital currency, not a central bank digital currency. It's not based on any blockchain of any kind. It's essentially, uh, as Cheryl correctly pointed when we talked last time, what, what she has in Singapore and I have in Thailand, which, by the way, work together. Uh, MasterCard made a technology uh, that enables QR code transfer of payments from your bank account. So here in Thailand, it's become wildly popular. It's gone from zero to 100 instantly due to COVID, where we now do all of our transactions through QR codes. And if... if um, um, There's something like that in Denmark, too. Well, yeah, you have Swish, yeah. In the... No, we have um, this thing called mobile pay. Uh -huh. 
And you can just scan a code and it'll come out of your bank account. Yeah. Uh, so in, in Thailand, it's QR code based bank to bank transfer instant, no fees. And it works across all the banks in Thailand and all the banks in Singapore. And they can, and even Thailand and Singaporean folks can do the transfer for free instantly from bank to bank. And um, they're now adding, was it Malaysia, Cheryl? Was the next one they're adding in the region? Yes. Yeah. And I think there'll be more. Remember, MAS have an announcement that they are going to share the platform to those countries who are interested. Yeah. So it's it's super cool to see more countries being added to that system because it's, it's a huge win for consumers who don't want to deal with cash, especially during COVID. And so I, back to your point, Chris, is this could be very simply that. It's just QR code to your bank account transfer, which I imagine it is. And then what do we got here? Russia blames software glitch lapse in human attention for the ISS misfire that jolted International Space Station as that particular unit that they just connected to the ISS continues to have interesting problems. The first, it was the misfire of the thrusters, and then it had a uh, pressure valve problem, and it was late on deployment. It's just a kind of a snowball of problems with that one. Jack Dorsey Square acquires Australian credit giant Afterpay in $29 billion in stock. And congrats to uh, Afterpay on that one. And um, yeah, uh, it's interesting to see Square add products and services to their endless Swiss Army knife of uh, financial um, financial suite and by adding buy now, pay later. And it's interesting to see fintechs acquiring fintechs acquiring fintechs as the banks continue to get their eat lunch eaten as the bigger fintechs consolidate and acquire the smaller fintechs to form Voltron of fintechs to take on the banks. And hey, yes. Tyler, by the way, Square, uh, Square stock popped pretty significantly on that news this popped? morning in the U.S. Yeah. yeah, it went down. Well, it's not easy to... Yeah, we can't big. necessarily attribute it to that acquisition because they also did their Q2 earnings reports also came out Monday morning. So it's... Yeah, I'm guessing it was timed. The acquisition news and the earnings report was timed together. Yeah, they were timed together. So it's, we can't really tease out how much of that pop is attributable to each because the, their their results on the Q2 were quite strong, 129% growth. And, and a ton of their revenue was from um, a ton of the revenue was from crypto sales, right? Well, yes, or, they, ha from, they had uh, a significant holding point. of Bitcoin as well. So it's 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 the the Q2 report and the acquisition kind of bundled. So uh, yeah, again, we can't really parse out how much of that market reaction is attributable to, to the acquisition. I, I think it's more to do with the quarter report because um, acquisitions of a don't normally, you don't see a normal big pop uh, from the acquirer side on the public markets. That's quite uncommon. Uh, but a good quarter to report uh, as they had of 129% year over year growth. Yeah, that you can have a good pop, but uh I think it's more likely that. Um, next big article is from Fast Company. How Kai OS is beating Apple and Android to the next billion cell phones. And what is Kai OS? Well, let's have a look here. Um, its phones sell for as little as $15, but run WhatsApp, YouTube, and more. 
KaiOS is the most popular mobile operating system you probably haven't heard of. Instead of designing software for full-blown smartphones, Hong Kong-based KaiOS Technologies, pronounced KaiOS, has exceeded 150 million global users by powering what it calls the smart feature phone. Far more Spartan than iPhones and Samsung Galaxy modules or models, the device which sell for as little as $15 run must-have apps such as YouTube, Google Maps, Facebook, and WhatsApp with more available from KaiOS apps or KaiOS success in India, where it's the number two mobile platform after Android. Uh, Indonesia, Rwanda, and Nigeria has now piqued the interest of U.S. corporate giants. In 2019, Google participated in the company's $50 million Series B round adding to the $22 million it had already invested. And Disney struck a deal to bring its characters to iOS phones in the form of games, wallpapers, and eBooks. This is a key strategy for many of the largest companies reaching the next billion users, says iOS CEO Sebastian Codeville. Today, the only way to reach them is with iOS because these users cannot afford smartphones. There you go, iOS. Bring in the web to the unwebbed and square to buy buy now pay later giant after pay for 29 billion everyone's covering that story cash apps quarterly bitcoin revenue triples despite bitcoin impairment is the headline from coin telegraph squares quarterly bitcoin revenues have tripled year over year and that alone would cause <laughs> with the realization of that bitcoin holding although real bitcoin geeks knew all along uh, that square had been buying a lot of bitcoin especially as Cash App enables, you know, user-to-user Bitcoin transactions. And Jack was very transparent about they were, I think they, how many millions did they suck in uh, of Bitcoin into Square? Like 300 million or something like that. So, and that was when they acquired that, when it was around 10,000, and it's now currently at around 40,000. So you have a 4x return on 300 million. That's a 1.2 billion added to their balance sheet so you can do you can just do the direct math how much is that one billion of their what is uh square's market cap currently anyone know off the top of their head no so you know it's over 200 billion is it really it, it, it's over square's yeah. at 200 billion wow yeah. jesus so at least what's the multiple can that was my point this morning when they when they paid what 25 billion for the australian uh-huh. company or something or 28 yeah, billion, 29 that that, that that was a that's a that's a significant acquisition on on that denominator yeah. you know well yeah it's uh yeah decent percent and, and by the way you cnbc put up uh, when i was watching it earlier they, they put up a chart comparing square's market cap to uh oh actually i got that wrong it's 127 billion i'm sorry but still that's why my point yeah, 29 there, billion there, you scared the shit out of me I, there's no, no, no i'm no, gonna no, sell no, my no, square shares if it's 200 no, billion no no, saying, no what the hell but, but still 100, 100, 127 billion turns out to be larger than the market cap of uh u.s bank corp so mm-hmm. you know yeah, yeah it's just like klarna and stockholm's now exceeded any of the big banks in the nordics in market cap so it happens yeah. fintech's yeah. Fintech's going to fintech, and when they start adding on other fintechs like like Square just did, and and forming fintech Voltrons, they'll you know, and you know, a firm will form the head. Um, 
and they're gonna swipe their big Voltron sword at the those uh, old dinosaur banks who can't figure out how to use data. COVID booster jabs for 32 million to begin next month, according to the Independent. And X SpaceX engineers, you had some folks leaving SpaceX. Um, and from the Guardian, the headline is X SpaceX engineers in race to build first commercial electric uh, speedboat. And, well, that's unfortunate. You've already lost to my friend Conrad, who's the founder of Marshall Earphones in Stockholm, who has uh, Xshore, which is already uh, the first commercial electric speedboat. And looking at your speedboat arc boat in this article, uh, you've got to go back to the design drawing board and uh, you've got to outdo Conrad with um, Xshore, which I have to say looks better. And has partnerships with Northvolt out of Stockholm for the batteries. And um, but to the credit of Arcboat, Arcboat company announced that it had raised four point two five million dollars in seed funding to start work on a twenty four foot four hundred seventy five horsepower craft that will cost about three hundred thousand dollars. The LA based company, which is backed by venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, I've heard of those guys. An early backer of Facebook and Airbnb and our beloved Clubhouse, nonetheless, said the first model of the Arc One boat would be available for sale by the end of the year. But you're the headline, and it's not really Arc's fault because Arc knows they're not they're lagging behind X X Shore. Uh, but the Guardian did them no favors by putting the headline that is in a race to build the first commercial electric speedboat. I don't think the company. The company knows damn well that they won't be. Xshore is already ahead of them. That's unfortunate. Anyway, looks nice. Xshore looks, they both look great. Uh, but um, yeah, we're going to have a, uh, the Tesla of boats. <laughs> it's now the competition for the Tesla of boats between Xshore and this one from the former SpaceX rocket engineers called Arcboat, A-R-C, Arcboat Company. Similar price point, similar specs, similar, rather similar design. And there's another one called Candela, which is an electric boat, also from Stockholm, but runs on a hydrofoil. So the boat literally comes out of the water by about a meter or three feet and kind of glides on a hydrofoil. It's kind of wild. Anyway, uh, yeah, electric boats are happening, but Conrad was certainly first uh, out of the gate with that one, with uh, Xshore. So next up is a massive melting event has struck Greenland due to Northern Hemisphere. Oh, and I just have to toot my own horn for two seconds that Conrad, God bless him, who if you've ever seen the Marshall earphones that people are wearing or little Marshall speakers, little Bluetooth speakers that they put in their house, add a little rock and roll flavor to their office or the bedroom. He licensed, you know, the Marshall brand to do that. His company is actually called Urban Ears. Actually, the company's name is Zound Industries. And so he had to step down due to his board kind of forcing him out. Uh, that's a long story. But when he pivoted to launch Exshore, the electric boat, the Tesla of boats, I'm just honored to, uh, in re remembering that story, he launched that at my event live on stage. And North... Um, uh, North Zone, the VC firm, happened to be sitting on stage at that moment. <laughs> so they got the very first pitch, although he was pitching the whole audience, which was full of investors. And he, he did get funding out of that. But anyway, I'm just fondly remembering Conrad launching XOR 
live on my stage at my event. And I'm kind of honored that just remembering that, but that was Jesus two and a half years ago, three years ago. So he certainly has a head start. Anyway, back to this one about glaciers melting, very unfortunately, and thank you to Lutecast for sending this one in. A massive melting event has struck Greenland due to Northern Hemisphere heat wave. Greenland's ice sheet has experienced a massive melting event during a heat wave that has seen temperatures more than 10 Celsius above seasonal norms, according to Danish researchers. Since Wednesday, the ice sheet covering the vast Arctic territory has melted by around 8 billion metric tons a day, twice the normal average rate during summer, reported the Polar Portal website, which is run by Danish researchers. Which uh, The Danish Meteorological Institute reported temperatures of more than 20 degrees Celsius, more than twice the normal average summer temperature in northern Greenland. And with the heat wave affecting most of Greenland that day, the Polar Portal website reported a massive melting event involving enough water to cover Florida with two inches of water, or five centimeters. The largest melt of green per day. Yeah? To cover Florida with two inches of water. That's a lot of water. Florida's not small. So, yeah, that's, that's a problem. And next article, we covered KaiOS. Thank you for that. COVID booster jabs for 32 million to begin next month in the UK. We got that. The rise of virtual avatars. From social media to business and entertainment, virtual avatars are increasing popularity in various industries and may even replace actual people in business meetings to avoid Zoom fatigue. I think that kind of all speaks for itself. Two decades ago, music band Gorillaz was highly controversial for use of cartoons in their videos and stage appearances. Now they are deemed pioneers in the field of virtual avatars. And in fact, a AI uh, generated celebrity just got a record deal in Japan in the past 24 hours. Is the headline we read earlier. And um, yeah, this article is all about virtual avatars, which are absolutely exploding in Asia for many years. But now people in the West are also waking up to that reality, that's similar to this article. So thank you for that one, Dr. Fran. And Australian court rules an AI can be considered an inventor on a patent, as it was, as it did, as an AI filed a patent and was awarded a patent. And then they revealed that it was an AI, and that led the court to have to go do some lawyering and figuring out if that changes the game and it doesn't ais uh, can file for patents and receive patents youtube temporarily suspends sky news australia for spreading covid misinformation there you go youtube has temporarily suspended sky news channel under its policy against spreading misinformation and uh, Galaxy Watch 4 Classic leaks shows off the new app, uh, Google Wear OS smartwatch as they have to keep pushing because they continue to lose ground to Apple Watch, which is Apple's Trojan horse and gaining market share against Android, and they know it. So they have no choice but to continue to fight back against uh, Apple Watch by improving Apple OS, even though they they care not much about that particular accessory. So other fantastic headlines that people are tweeting in here is um, UAnon. After a decade of online identities coming under increasing centralized control, online anonymity is starting to look like a threatened privilege than a right, according to the New York Times. And indeed it is. And in fact, v Vietnam last week announced uh, platforms will have to 
identify users with more than 10,000 followers. Australia, in the past three days, announced they are planning to implement a new policy requiring state ID tied to identities for any social media platform. And then was it the Canada or the UK also in the past 24 hours announced they're starting their own kind of digital authority on this issue as well. Cal, do you recall? Was it Canada or UK? I think it's, it's it was UK. something. Yeah. So the 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 inevitable um, transition to verified identities for social media platforms is uh, on the horizon, as the New York Times is reporting. Reconsidering pseudonymity and what it means to be yourself online. So I just tweeted that one out, and thank you to Evan for that one. And NFTs could get even more mainstream with Shopify's latest move as Shopify did a little hackathon internally and added NFTs as pretty much any tech company could do over a weekend and get a cheap headline. There you go. You did it with Bloomberg and Duolingo and PowerSchool. EdTech IPOs begin to shift from Chinese to U.S.-based companies is the headline from Crunchbase. I didn't realize Crunchbase was doing news. That's more tech crunches thing more than Crunchbase. But anyway, Evan sent this one in. With Duolingo and PowerSchool, EdTech IPOs begin to shift from Chinese to U.S.-based companies, and that's their take. Yeah, it's inevitable that the the $100 billion collectively that was being spent on Chinese EdTechs has to go somewhere now. And uh, India is the second biggest EdTech market. Uh, No doubt the U.S. EdTech market uh, companies will likely benefit from it. And... um, Let's see where that all goes. The China was the biggest ed tech market, but uh, now that's no longer a market. So back to the drawing board. So um, I've lost my place here of all of the incoming tweets. Russian food delivery service launches QR code tattoos for restaurant access. And it's being reported. This is from Reuters. Um, So this is kind of wild from Reuters. Russian food delivery service launches QR code tattoos for restaurant access as a sort of COVID passport. You wear an actual tattoo, a QR code tattoo that you wear. So let me read this. It must, it must phase off. Yeah. Maybe it fades as your, as your antibodies fade that, that now that would be amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Russian food delivery service called delivery club has started offering Moscow residents, temporary tattoos of QR codes needed for entry into restaurants and bars to try and encourage people to get vaccinated against COVID-19 and support the sector. Moscovites, need to show a QR code that proves they have had the vaccine, a negative test or immunity to be able to sit inside a cafe or bars, but can still sit on outdoor terraces until August 1st. Russia is battling a surge of coronavirus cases that authorizes that authorities have blamed on the more infectious Delta variant and, and a slow rate of vaccinations. The government coronavirus task force reported 200 and, or sorry, 786 Coronavirus related deaths on Wednesday. The and um, yeah, QR code tattoos. If they could tie that to your antibody level, that would just be unbelievable. Anywho, one can dream. The next one is that RNA breakthrough creates crops that can grow 50% more potatoes. Uh, University of Chicago led research could yield increased food production. 
boost drought tolerance. And indeed, Chris, are you still with us? I hope so. No, he had the bounce. Boy, is this right up his alley. His favorite potato. Yeah, no, but just the idea of doing genetic engineering of plants of all kinds um, in light of kind of drought conditions, using less water, you know, doing more caption, recar you know, carbon recapturing. We could optimize bamboo, for example, as if you get really deep into this idea of carbon drawdown of getting the CO2 out of the atmosphere, it turns out perhaps the best thing you could do is carpet bomb uh, bamboo, which he and I are working on privately behind the scenes with a couple other people through our DMs to pitch our, our dear friend Chamath and uh, Chris Saka, who both have billion-dollar funds for green, green tech innovations, to do specifically this, to address climate change and draw down climate out of the atmosphere. And it turns out it's much cheaper than building carbon sequestering machines is to carpet bomb essentially uh, bags of seeds of bamboo in the bamboo belt zone um, semi-illegally, shall we say, <laughs> without, without the proper permits necessarily. Um, but if you can get a government uh, to green light it or Native American tribes on their sovereign territories, you can carpet bomb bamboo seeds. And if you can plant enough bamboo very quickly, uh, that is likely mathematically the best way to draw down carbon out of the atmosphere at scale, which uh, we're currently optimizing the pitch deck for, for Chamath and Chris Saka. So we'll see. It could be fun. We got we got friends with planes, you know, we got helicopters, and we can get bags of... The, it turns out the most difficult part of this project thus far is attaining the bamboo seeds um but because bamboo only um blossoms flowers once every hundred years uh, on average there's some that are actually much faster but there is a massive seed harvesting opportunity uh near shenzhen uh in the next few months and we could potentially acquire i think it's chengdu right Chengdu has a very huge uh, harvest opportunity as well. Yeah, you were in the room when Chris and I were talking about this, right? Yes. Uh, yes. Tyler. Hey. Um. So I just came. Uh, I just came to the room. Hey, Vivian. And hey. Um. So you know, so so I heard you were in the middle of your comments. So I don't know. I don't know the context. Mm -hmm. Um. Now. Natural sequestration, mm -hmm. uh, like you know, tree planting or bamboo mm -hmm. planting, uh, since bamboo is more of a grass, mm -hmm. um, is indeed the best way. However, and this is the crux, and this is likely the reason that many, uh, many reforestation efforts are failing and will fail, uh, in a major way. So the no pressure. Go ahead. Um, oh, you have sound effects here. Okay, so um, you were making a dramatic buildup. So, oh uh, no, I was I was just making you know I, I I'm just trying to lay out the facts. So we have to ensure that the species are native to the region. Um, otherwise, I, of course, we upset the biodiversity. Yes, uh, and very often they is, die. It, yes. So, so is that is is that a, a concern that we should factor in as the planet explodes? As the house is on fire and you have stage four terminal cancer, are you are you worried that there's microbes in your water? 
Uh, well, it's not just microbes, but no, I no. I was, it's a, I'm asking a facetious metaphorical question, which is the 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 life of humanity is at stake, and we're worried about the genetic diversity of the bamboo that we're dropping. Well, I think the disruption of the ecosystem is exactly what leads to pandemics, and look how many millions have already can died. You uh, we're can not you even give me an example? Can it. you give me an example of seed propagation that's led to a pandemic? Well, not seed propagation specifically, but I think you need to follow the ripple effects throughout the ecosystem. I I, I would so, agree with you. Anyway, In a vacuum, um, it's something we would want to take into account, given the consequence of not taking the carbon out of the atmosphere, I don't know that we have the luxury of that concern. Well, okay, look, um, I think most people know that I serve in a climate alpha or climate uh, mitigation and all that okay. space, right? So I clearly support all efforts, all credible, workable yes. efforts. Um, and I know... Uh, given that, you know, we were the first in the world to project four Celsius baseline warming for our sovereign wealth fund yes. client. Um, so yes. I, I know the severity of the situation. Yes. And if anything, things have become far yes. worse, right? So, yes. yes, we know the severity. Yes, we are supremely interested in advancing all viable solutions. Yes. However, the so th there are two parts to, you know, propagating well, airdropping species, yeah. in this case, literally, yeah. right? So one is the disruption of the ecosystem. The second is that they don't survive. So bamboo, yes, it tends to be pretty hardy, propagates really fast. So in regions where it's native or where it's complementary, uh, you need to talk to, you know, the, the actual, uh, you know, agricultural economists and scientists on this. Uh, then, then it's a great way. So, you know, for clothes, for instance, sustainable fashion, yes. um, lots of discussions here on Clubhouse on sustainable fashion, yes. right? Uh, truly sustainable fashion or clothing, rather, um, you know, will necessarily relies on renewable fibers. Yes. So yes. bamboo and hemp, not cotton, will form, theoretically forms the core of true sustainable fashion. So I support the growth of bamboo. Uh, typically, but you know, air dropping stuff. Um, you know, I think that we will have to really look at it on a case by case basis. Uh, but I think, I mean, I recognize that the intent uh, is good, and I think we need to we need to really have minds wide open, sure. right, and explore all um, all potentially viable ideas, yes. uh, especially things that can be uh, that can be done at scale, executed at right. scale. So, so, so I would support looking into this, but I wouldn't support, you know, just recommending that people, you know, go forth and, and, and plant, uh, you know, yeah. trees like Back that. Back to the headline about the RNA breakthrough creates crops that can grow 50% more potatoes. If gen genetically modified, oh, the, the problem is we don't really have the time either to do the genetically modified bamboo in the short term. In the long term, we certainly do. If you could optimize a bamboo that is more uh, tailored to this use case of air bombing in non-native locations, then that I would raise the issue that isn't a, a lot of genetically modified crops are not native to wherever they're grown. So this, all the genetic modified soybeans and corn and everything that everyone's doing 
that's not native to anywhere because it never it was genetically modified to begin with. Well, which is why you know in India farmers have uh, died or uh, many have committed suicide and many die from starvation and dis- despair. Uh, so genetically modified crops are you know obviously non-native by definition. Yeah. Uh, the it 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 is. I would view it separately from the, you know, bamboo propagation uh, recommendation that you made. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't hear about this mRNA breakthrough on uh, uh, impacting or doubling yeah. potato let peels. Me, so let, then... me, let me share it with you right now. It's from University of Chicago. It's, it's okay. uh, uchicago.edu is the source. RNA breakthrough creates crops that can grow Ooh, 50% cool. more potatoes and rice. Genetic, a genetic tweak that targets RNA can grow crops that yield significantly more food and show increased drought resistance, precisely why it caught my attention. Uh, announced scientists from University of Chicago, Peking University, and Guizhou University. Also catching my attention because that's going to be the source of the bamboo is in those neck of the woods. So, uh, University of Chicago-led research could yield increased food production, boost drought tolerance, manipulating RNA can allow plants to yield dramatically more crops, as well as increasing drought tolerance, according announced a group of scientists from the University of Chicago, Peking University, and Guangzhou University. In initial tests, adding a gene encoding for a protein called FTO to both rice and potato plants increased their yield by 50% in field tests. The plants grew significantly larger, produced longer root systems, and were able to tolerate drought stress. Analysis also showed that the plants had increased their rate of photosynthesis. Also a great in our case. Amazing. Yes, the, K, the change really is dramatic, said University of Chicago professor Chuan He, who, together with Professor Gu Fang Jai at Peking University, led the research. What's more, it worked with almost every type of plant we tried it on so far, and is a very simple modification to make. The researchers, along with other leading experts, are hopeful about the potential of this breakthrough, especially in the face of climate change and other pressures on the crop systems worldwide. This really provides the possibility of engineering plants to potentially improve the ecosystem of global warming proceeds, said he, who joins John T. Wilson, Distinguished Service Professor of Chemistry, Biochemistry, and Molecular Biology. We rely on plants for many, many things, everything from, everything from wood, food, and medicine to flowers and oil. And this potentially offers a way to increase the stock material we can get from most plants. This is a very exciting technology and could potentially help address problems of poverty and food and scarcity insecurity at global scale and could also potentially be useful in responding to climate change, said Michael Kremer, who was awarded the Nobel Prize for his work on alleviating global poverty and is the university professor in economics at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Yeah. Uh, thanks very much for sharing this. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that I came uh, back onto Clubhouse at this time, at this, you know, right into this room at this point in time. So um, I, I'm reading the tweet as, as you're reading it as well. Uh, it sounds very exciting. So um, there is an institute called the International Rice Research Institute based in Thailand that has been focusing on such breakthroughs, both on ill increment as well as you know drought as well as heat and flood resistance right because we are in a world where some regions will have floods and some regions will have uh droughts and you know some will be you know dying of heat basically uh often literally so this is this is very very exciting i'm you know really happy to learn about it uh i will uh i will find out more. yeah the main quote is that it's worked on every plant they've tried thus far um 
Okay. How how do you jump from that to bamboo? Because a bamboo is a plant that we could do this on and it would make it more drought resistant and grow faster and capture more, do more photosynthesis. That's uh, quite interesting. Uh, okay. Well, you know, um, so I am, you, you know, I, I mean, I, I have no expertise in bamboo, so I don't know what nutrients bamboo draws out of the soil. So to the extent that it draws out things like, you know, phosphorus, magnesium, or other um, other minerals, uh, or, you know, other non-minerals as well, that, that uh, food crops require, uh, and, you know, often they need water, right? Some need a lot less water. I think, uh, you know, bamboo is not very fussy, but, uh, you know, rice would be uh, yeah. cotton as yeah. well. They require so, insane amount of uh, water. Yeah. Would... Tyler, why don't, why don't we grow more bamboo in the U.S.? I never got it's not in the bamboo belt. If you do a Google oh, you need... uh, image search of bamboo belt, you'll see the U.S. is too far, too high in terms of latitude. Tyler, are we losing you? No, I'm here. Okay, okay. so the... He's just reflecting on bamboo. You know, I'm looking at the the uh, rice <laughs> website, the International Rice Research Institute that Vivian mentioned here in the, Bangkok. The, the pandas will be very happy. Indeed. <laughs> and then... I know. Well, they, they will die of heat before they uh, run out of bamboo. And anyway... Oh, if, pandas, if it's like... <laughs> pandas are very precious. If it's okay. like well, Singapore, they're gonna build an aircon dome for them anyway. Oh, uh, we we do. Uh, for the two that you know, for the two panda guests from China, we have a million dollar enclosures. I mean, if we if we look after you know everyone the way we look after the pandas, I'm sure our TFR will yeah. you know be fantastic. Uh, it's it's the royal treatment. It's the equivalent of having a, a suite at the Ritz. Yeah, uh, and we even we even grow bamboo for their sake. <laughs> uh, we we do have naturally growing, you know, bamboo. So, uh, yeah, I, I, the I mean, it's 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 an interesting idea. You know, I think it's you know worth looking into. Uh, but the, the trucks really is you know native crops because they will compete. Uh, for for uh, I mean, at this point, competition for things like you know oxygen is not an issue. But um, you know, you never know. Uh, but the key thing would be minerals and water, typically. Yeah, bamboo doesn't, I mean, relative to rice, rice requires obscene amounts of water. I know because I have a rice farm here in Thailand. And, oh, cool. But it's uh, bamboo relatively requires very low uh, water. Um, and nutrient-wise, yeah, I guess the question, we would uh, obviously take great care to avoid people's actual farms in terms of dropping bamboo you don't need to drop it on farmers plots of land you can quite uh, reasonably avoid those areas and focus on national parks and you know all kinds of national even non-privately owned land of which you know thailand alone has a tremendous abundant <laughs> supply of yeah so hey tyler are you Tyler, are you targeting areas where you anyway get a lot of rains? Like Singapore, yeah. uh, bamboo growth doesn't require any, uh, uh, you know, supply of water per se by humans. We have no land. Yeah. Well, I know, I know. I'm just asking him. Yeah. No, no, but I'm asking him whether he's targeting other areas like Singapore where 
you don't have to supply water to these uh, bamboo uh, saplings or whatever yeah. because nature itself provides. short answer is yes and even one step further you 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 take great care to do the seeding if just prior to an expected rainstorm uh okay well well i appreciate the concern for my country uh but you know i mean if anything we would save the land that uh, primary forests and even some secondary forests are on at this point we are unfortunately unable to you know prioritize them sufficiently so so that would be the crux for us in terms of you know nature-based solutions for carbon sequestration um, for other countries, it may make sense, uh, especially if, you know, nothing is growing there. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, there's another consideration, by the way, for nature-based solutions like this. Uh, and, you know, sequestration of carbon requires that they, I mean, they, they, they need to be able to stay alive uh, and continue, you know, storing that carbon in themselves, right? Uh, that also means that in the in places like you know the north of Thailand, for instance, where you have tons of uh, forest fires, um, if they are susceptible to such fires, uh, and of course if they're not, then you know this wouldn't apply. But if they are susceptible, they get burnt every year. Uh, then there's frankly no point at all. Uh, to having such uh, projects yeah. because we need... The fires in north of Thailand are controlled farm farmers burning their sugarcane after the sugarcane harvest. Um, yes, that, that's always how it starts, right? So the Indonesian haze, you know, all... I mean, uh, it, the, India as well. So it's, you know, theoretically all controlled burning until it isn't controlled. Uh, you know, otherwise we wouldn't have, you know, wildfire specialists from, you know, Canada, South Africa coming to Indonesia to basically, you know, save the, the country and the world from going up in smoke. Mm -hmm. uh, the 2015 haze uh, saw Indonesia burning yeah. the same amount of carbon that all of the EU uses in normal consumption and production in a single year. Half. Yeah, I, I've seen the headlines and even videos of the Indonesian fires. We we don't suffer from similar type uncontrolled fires in Thailand. Yeah, the the thing is the it spreads. Uh, so you know if controlled burning is really done well and nothing unexpected happens, i.e., you know no pickup in wind speed, uh, no extra dry you know, shrubbery that is super susceptible to sparks and then enhanced burning. Um, the, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think we need to account for the fact that we are entering a hotter and drier world. So uh, controlled burning will require more and more skills going forward. Yeah. And I'm not certain... You know, it's not possible to but tell. It, but it's also, if it's, all it's, it's not exactly correct that we're entering a drier world. Some much, much of the world is getting drier, and you can see specifically and precisely where by Googling the words water stress map. The Some of the world is getting much wetter, closer to the equator. That, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, I, I misspoke. Because obviously the amount of water in the world remains the same, right? Yeah. Um, it's a closed system. Third law of uh, thermodynamics, yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
yeah, but I guess, you know, for, for the parts of the world that uh, are heavily populated or significantly populated, uh, we are seeing lots of lots of water stress. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're, we're going to focus on the areas that are going to get wetter and more water um, and non-farmer land. And as much as is possible, we'll start, you know, uh, trying to find governments who are sympathetic and uh, using it on their sovereign territories. Who's we? Me and Chris Fornoff. Oh, okay. Chris Fornoff is okay. Chris, Chris cool. has spent. Our opinion into some of the rooms. Yeah, Chris has spent about a decade on this issue thus far. He just seems to lack the actual action orientation and the connections to the investors to finance it. And he have a lot more other climate change related. Yeah, he's solutions. he's got the Interesting. he's got the the thought process down cold, uh, and we just complement each other quite well on the skills. Having done the analysis of kind of what's the best use of time and money and energy, uh, I've come to conclude after looking. If you go to drawdown.org, you'll see mathematically listed based on the amount of CO two that is you know drawn downable, and then you can figure out which ones you think are applicable and practical and they all have pros and cons yes. and you're doing a fine yeah. job of listing some cons, potential cons on, on this uh, particular uh, pursuit. But uh, the cons you mentioned are trivial compared to the cons of nearly anything else you could propose. And that could, by the way, there's nothing else you can propose that would draw down more CO2. So, uh, if those are the worst case scenarios that you're able to come up with, it's full steam ahead. Uh, well, if the crops die, uh, you know, then then there's no then there's no actual carbon sequestration. Obviously, uh, yeah, you you would focus you know. on areas that are obviously incredibly friendly to bamboo. What regions would that be? You would you start anywhere in the bamboo belt and then you would create, do an assessment with bamboo experts and make a categorical list of the most preferential places. Hmm. Okay. Um, you know, we're, we're going to... So, you know, like I said, I, I certainly support all solutions that, uh, that uh, you know, address the climate impact that we face um we're, we're going to have a session on nature-based solutions in the fourth quarter after we're done with you know all the independence days of ASEAN and the usual COVID and you know sustainable food stuff um so we will have some experts on nature-based solutions uh they are not currently looking at bamboo but uh you know these are conservation scientists they would be familiar and we can, you know, find someone who is an expert in this. Um, maybe the actual guys are named in that, uh, na named in the article as well, uh, just for fun. Yeah. So, so, um, yeah, so I think, you know, and I'll be happy to, uh, you know, hear about any, any progress or findings that, uh, you and Chris made. I think I've heard Chris in a couple of rooms. Uh, he may have visited us before as well, actually. Uh, but I, I don't really know him. So I'm um, happy to learn more. Yeah. And all the best. Good. Thank you.
So uh, China's young lie flat instead of accepting stress. Uh, the Financial Times picking up on the lie flat mega mega narrative that started uh, I don't know two months ago. So welcome Financial Times to covering the two month old story that Chinese young are lying flat instead of accepting stress. Crackdown on after school tutoring reflects Xi's effort to alleviate pressure on family life. Well, you're partly right. It's about the declining birth rate. So you're, you're almost there, Financial Times. And Evan has this fantastic one about a, a new innovation, a new rotating water desalinization device up to 400% more efficient. Did you happen to read this one already, Evan? It looks like a big wheel. An international team. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know if it's commercialized. It looks like a, uh, you know, kind of a project. Yeah. But researchers at the Oral Federal University yes. never heard of that. Take advantage of solar energy for the distillation of water, potentially allowing dirty water to be made clean for large parts of the world suffering from water shortage. Yeah. So someone please commercialize this. Yeah. Well, the Ural Mountains are like Kazakhstan, and they are themselves uh, having tremendous water stress. And again, I highly recommend anyone Google the word water stress map so you can see the parts of the planet that will soon become uninhabitable due to extreme water stress, which is defined as lack of clean drinking water on a daily basis. And so this team set, are claiming a 400% performance improvement over traditional devices, which is traditionally salt um osmosis systems uh, which are incredibly energy intensive so a 400 percent performance improvement is uh you know quite an improvement indeed the, the team tested a prototype on a rooftop in the russian city of ekaterinasburg for several months in 2019 they found that a 0.5 rpm at point five revs per minute the machine would allow the evaporation of a thin film of water from the surface of the cylinder the performance improvement factor of the created solar distiller compared to traditional devices was at least 280 percent in the relative hot months of june july and august and at least 300 percent to 400 percent in the cooler months of september and october due to less evaporation assumedly at the same time the cumulative water distillation capacity reached 12.5 um squared meters per day it should be cubic meters per day why are you why are you measuring this water capacity in squared <laughs> meters huh not cubic meters that makes no sense such a technology could be in great demand in the middle east <laughs> yeah you think uh, well look at the water stress map as i just said in the coming years as the region has a high solar energy capacity and faces water shortages the city of dubai in the uae for example is using electric shocks from drones to encourage clouds to rain over the region which sees only four inches of rain annually another desalinization device designed by henry glogau recently won the neck lexus design award his device doubles as up as a no-cost skylight and is available to make seawater drinkable. But um, who, yeah, interesting potential with this rotating cylinder. Uh, really interesting. Yeah, you're marking. 
Thank you for that. Do, do you tweet that out? Uh, which yes. one? Which one? I'm From looking. Evan. I love being alive today. I mean, I know a lot of these things are still infant, but it's people are making progress, you know? Yep. And then let's get into uh, other interesting ones that people are sending in here. Two travelers from the U.S. were fined $20,000 each for fake vaccination documents. Ouch. Who arrived in Toronto from the United States, these sneaky Americans with their, their photocopiers. Have been fine. I wonder how they knew they were fake. Let's let's see if it, if the article says because it's a Canadian news outlet. Um, the Canadian press, uh, two travelers fined twenty thousand each. To in Toronto from the U.S. have been fined for providing the Public Health Agency of Canada says the travelers also didn't comply with requirements to stay at a government authorized hotel or to get tested upon arrival. Sounds like uh, fine chaps. These individuals. The agency says in a news release Friday that the travelers arrested last week, uh, they arrived last week and have been handed four fines totaling $19,720 each. Canada eased quarantine requirements on July 5th. Those who are not fully vaccinated are still required to stay three days at a government-approved hotel. The public, the public health agency is warning that all travelers are obligated to answer questions truthfully and that providing false information or documents to government officials upon entry to Canada is a serious offense. The agency says violating quarantine or isolating instructions when entering Canada could lead to $5,000 fine for each day of noncompliance or each offense or more serious penalties. Better pay up, eh? Yeah, it doesn't say how they found out. I wonder if they can collect either. I mean, I would probably just leave the country. <laughs> <laughs> Extradition. They'll, they'll get you. I'm sure they don't want to provide like a roadmap for others to try to follow. Yeah, that's a wild one. Uh, Google. Oh, here's one coming in just now from CNBC from Chris. Google will abandon Qualcomm and build its own smartphone processors. In the, it's, they're calling the, their own Google Tensor chip that will power the new Pixel 6 and Pixel 6 Pro phones this fall, which were just leaked hours ago. And you can now see what is uh, reported to be the new Pixel 6 and Pixel 6 Pros, which they're reporting to have their own Google Tensor chip, kind of taking a page out of uh, Apple going at it with their own processors. Well, Apple Apple still used Qualcomm, right? So I'm surprised they talk about Qualcomm being designed out. But yeah, the hard part's the RF. Yeah, right? and the radio front by end. the way, simultaneous to Chris sharing that article evan simultaneously shared a separate article that says qualcomm slips as google decides to build own processors <laughs> both sides of that coin the positive and the negative google google abandoning qualcomm to build its own chips and its own smartphones qualcomm slips as google decides to build its own processors. remember intel couldn't get couldn't build their own 5g i, I just ha i just chip. have to screenshot these two tweets chronologically right next to each other that, that couldn't be better there you go one man's plan to resurrect the animal species we can't save according to wired uh cue the jurassic parks soundtrack the this is from wired it may be too late to save some animals from extinction but tulis matson has a backup plan freeze their cells to preserve their genes okay well that's not really saving them that's temporarily 
pausing uh, the process, but Toolless Matson is a helicopter in a helicopter over a game reserve in South Africa, spreading bamboo. No, sorry, that was a I'm projecting there. As the aircraft circles the dusty landscape dotted with shrubbery, perhaps bamboo, it throws up clouds of sand and grit through which he can just make out a bull elephant running. The colossal creature bounds around a bundle of muscle and terror. It's been hit twice on the flank with the tranquilizer darts, but it it is fighting the numbness and won't fall down. Instead, it panics. And next paragraph, a group of people flip the elephant. And the journalist says, I watched the strange series of events, which happened in October 2019. After collection, the elephant semen was brought back to Matson's farm to be stored and later used in breeding programs. Elephants in captivity have a high rate of stillbirth and infant mortality, according to some agency you never heard of, as the endangered animals face extinction in the coming decade. Conservationists are working with elephant sanctuaries to gather semen samples in the wild, transport it to other locations, and hopefully improve the survival rate of calves born through what a job. artificial insemination. But Matson is no park ranger or elephant conservationist. He runs an artificial insemination company for racehorses from his family's farm in Shros- what? Shros- Shropshire, England. S-H-R-O-P? Shropshire? Shropshire. 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 Is that a real city? Shropshire. Shropshire. Thank you, Shane. Um, You're welcome. That wow, that's difficult to pronounce that one. Shropshire, England, which collects a stores of semen from prize-winning studs for breeding purposes. He may not be uh, an obvious choice to save the animal kingdom, but that is what he's setting out to do by transferring his skills from horses to endangered species. Matson is planning to build the biggest biobank of animal cells in Europe. How do you collect wild elephant semen? Tyler? I was wondering the same thing. Very, very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> bring a big cup with a oh. rain suit <laughs> Ouch. when the when we first yeah so um yeah it's a it's a sperm bank for elephants it's a very long article and uh wow that's a long article holy cow that's a long article i'm i've been scrolling the entire time my god that's a mini novel so um Maybe they detail it, and that's why <laughs> it's a detailed explanation. So, um, did we did we get to the top of the hour? Ten more minutes. Here we go. Let's plow through here. That that was that one. This is the next one. Uh, Volansi completes first ever autonomous ship to ship drone delivery. There you go. Let's check this one out. You you can see the photo of this one from Evan and. Here you go. There it goes. There it went. And then the article, let's see here. Volansi is the name of the company, which completes a autonomous ship-to-ship drone delivery. Uh, what they're delivering, I don't know. Elephant semen, perhaps. We, nobody knows. Pizza. Yeah. But one of the leading companies in autonomous point-to-point deliveries using fixed-wing vertical takeoff and landing vehicles, otherwise known as VTOLs, is today announcing a huge milestone and completed the first-ever autonomous drone-to-drone delivery between ships. The cargo deliveries, there were three of them, took place July 18th off the coast of Key West, Florida. Both its VOLV-10 and VOLV-20 series of drones were involved with two 
flights covering 15 nautical miles and one flight covering one nautical mile. And there's a little, uh, several photos of the drone and the ships and the voyage. And it did it. And there you go. And that's a fun little footnote in the Wikipedia of drone history for you. So thank you for that one, Evan. And Chinese teams hope high-res image of monkey brain will unlock secrets. That's the headline. Begging the question, what kind of secrets are we hoping these brain monkeys unlock? Team found a way to get a full 3D image providing an unprecedented level of detail that could be used for researchers in into neurological conditions. They say it could be applied to other organs or body parts and combined with technology like AI to improve understanding of their inner structures. Chinese scientists have obtained the world's first high-resolution 3D image of a monkey brain, and they hope that it will help treat human diseases such as Parkinson's. Though smaller, a monkey brain is almost is among the closest to the human brain in terms of structural complexity and cogni cognitive function. A high-resolution image covering every neuron and fiber could help to answer questions on how the human brain works and how it goes wrong. The team from the University of Science and Technology of China managed to get a full brain image with a resolution of one micron or a thousandth of a millimeter. That provides an unprecedented level of detail for brain cells that are typically about a 100 microns in size, but the image of that one monkey brain is enormous, more than one petabyte after it was compressed, so that researchers ha had to use artificial intelligence to analyze it. Whole brain menoscale mapping in primates have been hindered by large brain sizes and the relatively low throughput of available microscopy methods. The team, led by neuroscientist B. Guangchuang, wrote in a paper published in Nature Biotechnology on Monday. And let's hope, uh, let's hope them for the best there. But it looks like they did a very detailed monkey brain scan. And I'm tweeting that out for your convenience. And then next up is Goldman Sachs raises banker pay after 95-hour week complaints. Oh, boy. Cue the journalists. People are working too hard. As we read about a startup in Berlin who's uh, working too hard. And boy, wait till they find out that Goldman Sachs bankers are working 95-hour weeks. <laughs> and this this journalist did. Goldman Sachs raises banker pay after 95-hour week complaint. But I think the complaint's from the actual workers, not from the journalist. Who knows? The pay rise comes as a top city banker says young recruits should stop moaning about long hours. Someone, moan. but in general, they get paid a lot more than uh, the kind of workers that uh, Berlin article was talking about, right? Um. Well, I think that depends. So I worked at Goldman before, uh, in M and A, and uh, you know, I think obviously at the senior levels, uh, it would supersede you know the benchmark you mentioned. But uh, anywhere below VP levels, uh, you know, when you're just starting out, uh, given the hours you work, um, it's, I think someone, yeah, it, it's actually pretty bad. Uh, I think you might do better at McDonald's, actually. Yeah, we were, we had a conversation, we had a conversation earlier about minimum wage employees, which was what he's referring to. And yeah, yeah. Goldman, Goldman I think they make more than minimum wage. In fact, I saw a headline earlier today that they just got a raise from about a hundred thousand to a hundred ten thousand. The 
Only ten thousand. That's not a lot. Yeah. Um, JT, you just shared this one. Uh, the, about the new three D avatars from Snapchat, which are now live, and you can see it from the tweet I just sent. And JT did his own three D Snapchat avatar. As Snapchat's going to go big into AR with their own AR spectacles. And so now you need a 3D avatar if you're going to be in AR. So they did it. And then, um, what's this? A, well, four minutes. Google just unveiled its first smartphone chip, as we've heard in the past couple of articles, called Tensor, signaling its biggest uh, change in, in quite some time. It will bring big gains in AI performance to the Pixel 6 and beyond. Here's why it matters. You can read the story uh, from the Twitter account. Just tweeting that one out. Canada faces a staggering immigration. Ty Tyler, it's Asif hey, awesome. here. I just sent you on DM uh -huh. the Goldman Sachs article in Daily Telegraph. Uh -huh. And what does it say here? Goldman boosts starting pay to 110, as, as I said. Thank you for that. From Previously from 100, if you read the article. Canada finds two idiots traveling from the U.S. 20,000 for faking their vaccine status is the headline from Gizmodo. They literally said the actual headline from Gizmodo. I, I'm not adding any words here. Canada finds two idiots $20,000 for faking their vaccine status. It's COVID idiots. COVID idiots. Meet the indigenous fire teams fighting to end the blaze in British Columbia. According to Canadian News, bad employee behavior. Is it really... Your fault. Thirty. Uh, this is from Mahogany from CNBC. Think employees behaving badly is just a few rotten eggs. In fact, you and your corporate co culture may be to blame. That's right. It's the company's fault. Canadian beach volleyballers. We'll skip that one. Uh, no. We'll do that too. What, what's the angle here, Tina? Can Canada beach volleyball player volleyballers Pavan and Humana Paradis remain perfect advanced two quarters of oh, the female um two on two beach volleyball so canada still in it oh i know why you're doing this because we these are the canadian canada, the canada news. news headlines yes. that i just stumbled into <laughs> yeah jihadists flood pro-trump social network with propaganda called getter the getter app run by jason miller a former spokesperson for mr trump launched a social network called Getter, G-E-T-T-E-R. The new platform started by members of the former president's inner circle is awash with beheading videos and extremism. Free speech. Free speech. And um, that's one thing that the MAGA crew and the jihadists and the Taliban and ISIS have in common. So they, they've found a mutual meeting place and their own uh, app where they can share their their content with each other. This is the makings of a hilarious movie. <laughs> it's um, what, Kindergarten Cop, or what, what's the film where the two, Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger, star in? Twins. 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And now Lindsey Graham says he has COVID-19 breakthrough infection. Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, Republican, oh. South oh. Carolina. Nice. Right. Said today he has tested positive for the coronavirus, even though he was fully vaccinated. Interestingly enough, a week ago, as may, many people may remember, 
uh, he was one of the House Republicans who barged into the Senate to protest COVID mask rules. I kid you not. You just can't make it up. I mean, like I shared with you uh, privately a tweet of some guy who said, I got COVID. I don't believe in vax. I got COVID. Where do I get some ivermectin? Oh, my God. Top of the hour, Tyler. Okay. House Republicans barge into Senate to protest new COVID masks. And he was one of those? Lindsey Graham? That is correct. That was three days ago. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And that might have been when he got it. Surprise, surprise. Exactly. Because <laughs> there are 10 senators that actually are still not vaccinated and several House Republicans. You know, surprise. Uh, I guess they didn't learn from the Providence uh, fiasco. 10 senators? Oh, wow. Do we know which ones? Um, I can look it up. But yeah, no, the, the, according to the article uh, about Lindsey Graham, 10 senators uh, have not confirmed that they've been vaccinated, to be clear. I think they don't want to lose their votes. Oh, well, yeah. it's just a bunch of idiots. Oh, God. Vaccinated. He's actually very pro vaccine. I want to be clear about that. Mitch McConnell's has been the most, uh, the large, the be- the biggest advocate of vaccines in the Republic. Yeah, because he's as old as time. He needs it. <laughs> Fair. But yeah, no, this is, uh, this is great. Uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm feeling really bad about Lindsey Graham, but I, I don't feel bad about the fact that. But to be fair, I mean, vaccine rates have gone gone up in the deep south like three four hundred percent right so that's good exactly <laughs> well z- zero to three people is three hundred percent do you know that... if mitch mcconnell is one of the ten he is not mitch mcconnell is definitely one of the 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 uh, one of the 90 that have he and like i was saying you know he he has been outspoken against some of the uh, Republican House members and senators who and, you know, even the uh, Fox News about their um, uh, their their sort of vaccine hesitancy, but more importantly, the disinformation. And again, I am not a fan of Mitch McConnell. I just want to make sure that the guy, you know, has done some bad things. This is not one of them. He had polio as a kid, which is why he's so pro. Yeah. Oh, OK. Hmm. Okay. If only he would recommend that more strenuously to his base. I, I will push back and say I think he has. Oh, okay. I stand corrected then. Uh, but there is still a huge, uh, a significant divide between Dep- Democrats and Republicans in, you know, in, in the vaccination rate. I think there's a large divide between Democrats and Republicans and what they believe is true just in general. And I think that's what's driving a lot of this. I think that's changing very, you know, as Evan was mentioning, I think we're seeing a change in tide and uh, it's for the better. We're, we're hitting there, there are a lot of, there are, there's some, a lot of African-Americans also who are unvaccinated. We exactly. Them yeah. Vaccinated too. So it's, that's, uh, that's, that's deeper. That's, that's like linked to like Tuskegee and all of this history around mistrust of the medical, um, establishment yeah yeah to be to be fair there's a lot of people on the um yoga health side of the world who are indeed keeping their bodies much healthier but believe that they've done so to the extent where they don't need vaccines either so there's a there's a progressive side of vaccine reluctance as well i'm glad you said that john because i I was just reading an article about the yogis not wanting vaccines yeah and i know quite a few of them who, who really believe that that 
you know, they, they do have better immune systems than people who don't meditate and do yoga and eat uh, vegan. I mean, there's no question their immune systems are healthier, but it's a question of is it that much healthier for the Delta virus? Probably not. But I think um, a, a lot of the Republicans also do play politics in into all this because I think they have been vaccinated, but they just don't say it publicly because they have been playing into that earlier so they just play around with their voters it's including trump that who took the vaccination but he wouldn't say it publicly so it, it, it is really um not not being honest about it and just playing the usual politics uh, the white house was really upset for example even the media uh talking about how vaccinated people are getting infected but without mentioning the fact that vaccinated people, even though they get infected, the harder they get that sick and the harder they get into hospital and almost, almost non-existent in terms of deaths, if we look at the data. So I think um, there is just too much politics into it. Well, it's even more concerning because Danish and I were in a room over the weekend where some of the feedback we got was, thank you so much. You convinced us to get vaccinated, but how can I do it confidentially? Because if my Bible study group finds out that I got vaccinated, I'll be thrown out of the Bible study group. Oh, my God. Exactly. Exactly. Because they just demonize it early on and then they just think that they're going to lose their voters if if they actually admit they took the vaccination so they are playing on people's the, lives it wouldn't be a true <laughs> christian bible study group then if they really did that so you know whoever it is that's afraid of losing their friends you know if they get vaccinated they may be right meaning those people may not make it you know and when you say they might lose voters if they don't <laughs> reveal they're vaccinated they're going to lose voters by not revealing they're vaccinated. So they need to really take a step back. Exactly. Exactly. They need to be a bit honest. I mean, we all know that. That's exactly what Trump did. He he did Holy get the vaccination. Cow. He didn't say anybody else. He walked out and, and said nothing about it for a very long time until um, reporters really pressed him and say, why can't you say publicly that the vaccination is safe, you have taken it yourself, and um, it was a lot for him to come out and say that. So they all are doing the exact same thing. So yeah. I've, I've, I, just, I just found the perfect uh, headline to uh, conclude on. New York Post. New York, NYPost.com. I, I had to check three times to make sure this is not some someone spoofing me. But it's on the New York Post. I just tweeted it out. You can see it as the most recent tweet on the Tech News Twitter account. Confirm for yourself. I'm not losing my goddamn mind. Can someone read it, please? Someone go to the Twitter account and look at the most recent tweet. Oh, my God. I, are you trying to avoid your name? Or your voice, uh, you know, profile being tagged with that term. That's why. You <laughs> okay, I'll do it, Tyler. Uh, it's Taliban members are reportedly running clubhouse chat rooms. I'll read the article here. Members of the Taliban are running chat rooms in the app where they discuss their plans for the future of Afghanistan. As the Taliban sweep across Afghanistan, some members of the Islamist terrorist group are apparently making time to log on to Clubhouse, a, a trendy audio-based social media app. Taliban spokesperson 
spokespeople are running chat rooms within the app where they discuss religion and and their plans for the future of Afghanistan, which is rapidly falling into the extremist group's control amid the withdrawal of American troops, Agents France Press reported. The Taliban called me rude and cut my mic after I spoke <laughs> the truth about them. <laughs> Got kicked down to the audience by the Taliban. Um, That's why it's Taliban. Yeah. They ban him. Says an Afghan clubhouse user who joined a Taliban room told AFP, they openly declared those of us calling for human rights infidels and deserving of death. Clubhouse terms of service for, forbid immoral, racist, and discriminatory, and probably calls for death as well, I would assume. Um, <laughs> behavior based on race, race, race ethnicity. So Paul just came into the room. Okay. Hi, Paul. Um, so we're discussing an article, Paul, um, on the Taliban, allegedly, because, you know, I, I assume none of us on stage has uh, been in these rooms, but allegedly the Taliban is running rooms on Clubhouse. So FYI. It, I assume it seems like it just broke. It's dated August 2nd, uh, 11.59 a.m., which was... Uh, so three hours ago, it seems like the article came out three hours ago on NewYorkPost.com, N-Y-P-O-S-T.com. And, and essentially, there's users who say they went into the room and got banned from the room and that the... Uh, let me just read it really fast. I mean, he can read it himself, but it's uh, certainly... I mean, it's easily fixable problem. You just find out who the people were in that room and kind of check them out and uh, make sure they're not able to open more rooms because they were threatening violence on the people in the room in the audience apparently or uh although you know a far more interesting use would be for uh for the cia to invest into clubhouse and find who these people well, are that would be uh, okay. A far more effective yeah, way. But some Afghan Clubhouse users told AFP that the Taliban is recording Clubhouse sessions and in order to mark critics for future retribution. Oh, boy. The Taliban spokesperson <laughs> who also operates a Twitter account with 232,000 followers denied threatening opponents on Clubhouse in a statement to AFP, but didn't deny being on Clubhouse. That's quite, quite wild. Social media is becoming increasingly important for the Taliban as the group looks to usurp Afghans uh, US backed government. Almost half of the country's thirty seven million residents have internet access uh, and thirteen million use social media, AFP reported, making apps like Clubhouse an important way to reach Afghans. If there's a way to positively spin this one for Clubhouse, I'm all for it. I, I just have to do it very, very carefully. Boy, would that require some amazing um communications team collaborations um i think that i think the bigger issue tyler is the article described us as trendy i take great great offense at being called trendy <laughs> <laughs> um I, ha I haven't been trendy for years so no but it, 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 yeah i don't know how this could be spun in a positive way because that my i mean i mean given what we kind of know about how china operates do we think this might be china stirring up the pot mm, no no because the the the, the, the the taliban spokesperson who operates the twitter 
Because remember, there's the power vacuum in Afghanistan yeah, right yeah. now, right? No, in China, I, 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 get, in, like, I totally get your point. My my point is is that the Taliban spokesperson isn't denying that they were using it because he he then, he denied yeah. threatening opponents on Clubhouse, but he's not denying using the app. But it's, it's but using the app isn't the issue. He's correct in that the issue is whether or not he was threatening people because on the face of it, uh, the I mean, if we if you go by the policies, you have to go by well. If a user came on, first of all, we were not able to. Uh, did they identify themselves as Taliban, and is that in and of itself um, justification for banning their usage? Not necessarily. Uh, well, ostensibly, but not necessarily. And then you have to go by the terms of service, and if. The clubhouse terms of service forbid immoral, racist, or discriminatory behavior based on race, ethnicity, national origin, origin, caste, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, religious affiliation, age, disability, or serious disease. I, the other difficulty here, obviously, is that the conversation was ostensibly done in, um, uh, well, the 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 Taliban are Peshawar, are they not? And the Peshawars speak Urdu. Primarily, so if no, they speak Pashtun. Pashtun. I'm sorry, thank you, Asif. Well, they can. They actually speak both, most of them. So, if it was spoken in Pashtun or in Urdu, uh, you're going to need a translator to actually know what was actually said to enforce the policy. So we. we, we I'm sure the U.S. spokes will be listening in, and they have you know. Live translation and all that. We don't have live translation, but the it's a how. No, I, I meant NSA could be doing the live translation, not clubhouse yeah, itself providing. It's as here. One of my staff members is a minority group in. Uh, she's from Haza, She's a Hazara from Afghanistan who came to the UK, age thirteen. Ten years later, she got her PhD. She couldn't speak a word of English then. And at 26, she was PhD and uh, working for Mirzaim now. Uh, and uh, she was my PhD student. And she's constantly told me, and I've learned so much from her, that there's so much discrimination in Afghanistan, so much, not just against women and ch- uh, girls not being educated, but because of her mo- being a minority uh, they're persecuted. So there's a lot. And I don't know why the hell we left Afghanistan the way. Oh, today, uh, one of our ministers was talking about that Britain needs to do something about it, as the US will need to. Because there are people there who we've left them and they could be in danger, their lives and their families. So I don't know what we're going to do about it. But we have a moral duty. Well, they have an interesting conflict just in within Afghanistan itself. And for those who haven't done so to kind of look up the background of this potential, you know, this Afghanistan history is quite fascinating, actually, that the, the Taliban, when the Soviets came into Afghanistan, the women and children fled next door to Pakistan. And the men stayed to fight the Soviets, and eventually the Soviets had to withdraw. Because it's, it's one of those geograph- geographies that is kind of um, not able to be conquered by tanks uh, or airplanes, even. Um, 
And so the Russians, it was only their helicopters that were really of any use to them in Afghanistan. And even those were incredibly limited. You, you're essentially forced to do hand-to-hand combat with people who know how to dig tunnels in the mountains. And it's just, uh, and yeah, very difficult for anyone to, to kind of kick out the local Afghani men that were there, which became Al-Qaeda. But the, the women and children who went to Pakistan, those children, the, the male children, ended up you know, going to schools, kind of boarding schools in Pakistan by clerics, and they became the Taliban, which means the plural word for students. So it's, it's in the language, it just means the students. And um, then when the Taliban you know, were growing up together in Pakistan, because by the way, the the Pashtun, they're Pashtun tribal people, and the Pashtun tribe uh, essentially are on both sides of the Afghan-Pakistan border. So when the when the English drew the map and they drew the borders of uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan, they drew the line right through the middle of the Pashtun people, which the Taliban are the young Afghanis who went over to Pakistan. They were educated by kind of uh, Wahhabi clerics, a bit extreme, um, kind of theor- theocratically. And then moved, you know, when the time came and they came of age, they moved back into Afghanistan and started fighting the Al-Qaeda who was there, who were, you know, armed by the Americans to fight the Soviets. But now they're fighting their own kind of elder countrymen who are of a different tribe. The Al-Qaeda isn't disproportionately Pashtun like the like the Taliban are. But that's why you can understand there's so much interesting conflict just amongst the local people there. I mean, it's a it's a really wild dynamic that is um, kind of not so familiar to people in the West. But but this is all also you know in a major way creation of the other countries using this as a place to you know flex their muscles and all that Russians and the Americans and so on. I mean, these have become like playgrounds for the rest of the world to go screw around with the thing and cause internal conflicts as a result of taking different positions. Yeah, it's a power vacuum scenario. I mean, there's all kinds of theories as to why the Americans uh, spent a trillion dollars there. Why would America spend a trillion dollars on something that is seemingly of no value at all? Uh, you wouldn't. It's the, Obviously, there, you, America had some intense motive to spend a trillion dollars there over 20 years we could have left any time over 20 years so it's no i'm talking about even the original you know u.s involvement to kick the russians out of there when this whole al-qaeda thing got uh, support from the cia and so on yeah it's it's what ultimately became al-qaeda well here's why here's where it starts to get impossibly uh convoluted is because Pakistan itself is a very unique country and how <laughs> how America came to fund the Al-Qaeda to fight the Soviets is through the Pakistani intelligence agency called ISI and because America brought truckloads and actually plane loads of money to the ISI Pakistan's intelligence community uh, think CIA or NSA and they were the ones who gave the money to the Al-Qaeda. America didn't give it directly. It went through the ISI through Pakistan. And that is what eventually enabled ISI to become kind of what 
Pakistan's a unique country in that it's essentially run by its intelligence agency. So imagine a country run by the NSA or FBI or, or CIA. That's what you have in Pakistan. And it's because we gave them the money to give to Al-Qaeda to fight the Soviets. And then post the war, they maintain their sort of position of power. And it's uh, it makes everything insanely difficult. And you, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tweet a video, if you like, of British intelligence and MI6. And anyone who ever engages with Pakistan will tell, you know, very consistent stories. You never know when you deal with ISI in Pakistan, which side you're talking to. Are you talking to the Taliban? Because they have very, uh, ISI, a lot of the uh, officers in the ISI are former te- uh, of those Palestine, those Pakistan, I'm sorry, of those um, Pashtun students, the Taliban, when they were younger, many of them stayed in Pakistan and are now work in the ISI. So it's their actual brothers and cousins who are in the Taliban in Afghanistan fighting. So they are, they're essentially cousins. And that's why uh, Khan, the prime minister of Pakistan, you know, says, no, we're, you know, we're not, we're not, we don't want nothing to do with them. You know, they stay over there. We don't want them coming over here. And it's like, when when people who are familiar with the issue know well, there's no separating Pakistan and Afghanistan because the border's drawn right through the middle of the whole Pashtun nation, essentially, kind of like the Kurds, where it's like, you know, you're drawing these boundaries right through the middle of these. Ma- and we're talking tens of millions of people. This is not like when I say tribe, I don't mean uh, 100,000 people or even a million people. I'm talking 25 million people. This is a ma- it's a nation. Think of it as a nation more than a tribe. So you drew a ma- um, line right through the middle of a of a nation of people, and it just makes it wildly complex. Um, the combination of the Taliban and their their relationship to the ISI in Pakistan, and and that now you know why Osama bin Laden ended up right near ISI uh, up in you know northern pakistan and it's that's it was the safe place for him to get out when he was up in the mountains of afghanistan it was anyway it's a it's a crazy you really have to spend a lot of time um understanding it but having said that one thing that will blow people's minds in recent days is the taliban met with china china's recognizing the taliban in afghanistan and they have a spokesperson and he's doing interviews and you will be incredibly impressed with the spokesperson's perspectives and interviews. And it will completely change your impression of the Taliban fundamentally. And I'm not discounting all of the everything you've probably ever heard. Um, but that's why I said, you know, they have a Twitter account. I mean, Twitter could easily ban them. I mean, Twitter banned Trump and they're not banning the, the Taliban. Well, I mean, what does that say? <laughs> so, um, it's, anyway. We have, this banning is bad. Is there a count called the Taliban? Is bad. Well, I mean, we need to uh, uh, be... It, but but it's, Tyler... it's ultimately Clubhouse's app and they, they're going to do what's best for Clubhouse. I trust them on that. I mean, Paul's a smart dude. What you were saying, Chris? Uh, well, you know, I know this isn't related to the clubhouse thing, but when you zoom out, right, when you talk about all the parties involved, China is obviously in a cold war, if you want, with with India. India and Pakistan are already not that friendly, right? I mean, we well, know that's this. A, that's, a, that's an and understatement if, of the year. Th- th- 
this description you're saying of Afghanistan and Pakistan essentially being brothers that are separated, almost like East and West Germany. One, one, I wonder one if the, something's cooking one up. One of the nations. It's only one only part one of part. It. the, pa- the Pashtun. There's yeah. four other. The Northwest Prantia province, I think, is the one you are referring to, right? Right. right. There's only. There's only. It's well. There part of them are brothers. There's other non-Pashtuns in Afghanistan and in Pakistan, both. Um. Yeah, and I think, Tyler, it's really important for people to realize that Afghanistan itself, there are, you know, there are many minorities there uh, and they, they are being compromised if this happens. I think... And what the advantage of Clubhouse is, is it, it displays to everybody because of its democratization what these extremists I th- are. I... And if they're here and they get disclosed and, dis- you know, uh, everyone gets to know, so they their voice Professor, is completely destroyed. I'm I'm, ch- I'm I'm jumping with excitement at the following idea, and I would like to take a vote to hear uh, the respected opinions of everyone on stage. A vote, if we can. Just an idea, if Paul's still in the room, that uh, I would love actually to hear the Taliban spokesperson, who by the way speaks English. I've seen multiple interviews with him in recent days now that they're interviewing him about the kind of uh, them uh, taking over much of uh, Afghanistan. And if he, as an English speaker, I'm wondering who would be the perfect person for him to have a kind of debate with in clubhouse. Would it be, I don't know. Justin. Huh? I was thinking, Justin could moderate, but I mean, I mean, the counterpoint to the the Taliban would obviously be the the leadership of uh, Afghanistan. But you could also bring in Prime Minister Khan from Pakistan, who, by the way, loves startups, by the way, he has a huge campaign to try and bring startups into Pakistan at the moment. So Mo, let it be Mo. Debate. Sonali. No, no, no. So, uh, Prime Minister Khan from Pakistan, uh, the spokesperson of the Taliban. Ideally, the I, I, the the name escapes me of who's running Afghanistan uh, momentarily, uh, you know, for the time being. And is it still? Ma- oh, you know what though? Justin could probably get through to somebody from the State Department in the U.S. Like Podesta or somebody former, right? So that would be fantastic. That would be so fantastic. Uh, you know, and by the way, I... there's a guy called Ian Dale who is actually on Clubhouse. He does a LBC uh, program on uh, London uh, okay. radio program, very famous. So program. Flat, let's let's but let's I... take a poll because this is a kind of potentially amazing idea or amazingly good or amazingly bad idea. And I, I don't know which. So uh, flash your mics if you think this is a, a, you would love to go to this room and listen to this room. And you think more importantly, it could be good for clubhouse. That's the bigger question here. Flash your mics. If you think this is a good idea and it could be good for clubhouse to do that. Okay. Now flash your mics. If you think it would be a bad idea. Messy. Okay. <laughs> To just say whether we want to listen or not. Well, my point because good for clubhouse may depend on a lot of things. Yeah, my point is you would get a ton of press because what I was trying to get to is is the way that this New York Post headline is written. I'm trying to think of how to how to how to do a jujitsu move to 
turn this into potentially good PR for Clubhouse. And I think the way to do it is to just say, be like, yeah, okay, we're going to have this conversation with these individuals. I, I'm quite confident Prime Minister Khan would join. He he joins a lot of interviews. And um, somebody from the State Department in the U.S., somebody from that, that, that could be historical. That, because here's my point is when Twitter popped, um, it was, you know, the landing of the United flight in the Hudson River, right? And it was kind of like, Nobody really knew prior to that how, you know, their, their big breakout moment. The clubhouse has not yet had that similar social media platforms often have their breakout moments. This potentially could be a massive breakout moment if, if done, if, if, you know, fingers crossed, uh, inshallah, you know, <laughs> God willing. So um, I, I, I propose it with that kind of perspective, but, uh, you know, obviously uh, I wanted to do a, see a little vote to see if I, how how the whole room feels about such a thing. So anyway, um, I, I think Justin's the right might be the right guy. Uh, certainly, Clubhouse needs to uh, handle that whole opportunity, you know, carefully. But that would be uh, personally, I would be glued to that. I would I would cancel anything I'm doing to jump into be in that room. And, and yeah. Tyler, you could use the hand raising feature to get the voices of folks in the audience too. It's a wild concept because a lot of people are going to be like, you can't give uh, the Taliban the platform. Uh, certainly. So you can a do a huge, you can do a, yeah. Anyway, you can take a, a, a vote by saying like, raise your hand now. If blah, yeah, blah, let's blah. do this. Anyone in the audience, because there's still 275 people in the audience please jump up on stage if you have a really strong hot take on wh why this would be a terrible idea <laughs> just to hear some pers multiple perspectives or if messy what what was your point about uh so frankie and amna just jumped on stage and suzanne just jumped on stage for me is um uh... I feel like um, a lot of people sometimes do these things just for the show of it and um, they don't actually honestly discuss things. Um, that That's just my worry that they all will do it for the show of it. They go back to their corners later on. So I don't, I don't believe I would get what I think would be honest discussion. Uh, have you seen an interview with the spokesperson from the Taliban recently? I I your point. I would have thought the same uh, even up until a week, a one. Sorry. What? You okay? Oh no, no okay, I was just good. saying. Sorry. Um, yeah, I I think um, people's impression and even my own impression of the Taliban up until a week ago, w this idea would seem ludicrous, honestly, even to myself. I'm only even suggesting it because of the recent interviews I've seen with the Taliban spokesperson on very mainstream media outlets throughout Europe who are interviewing them about their presence in, you know, kind of taking ground in Pakistan. I'm sorry, in Afghanistan. And I was r kind of wildly surprised how even the Reddit audience, the, the entire Reddit audience was like, holy cow, this guy is like incredibly sober, cogent. Uh, I, you know, direct, um, forthright, um, 
I, I don't want to use too many positive euphemisms, but um, you you can find the Reddit thread uh, of this video interview and read, you know, decide for yourself. But um, that's why we should hear um, directly from the head of the Taliban, not the shiny facade that they want to show us. Spokespeople are chosen yeah. because they can portray of an course. image that's amenable. Mm. So we don't want to see that. We want the real stuff. Well, he, I think he's um, yeah, he uh, might I be one of the best agree. English speakers, which is why he's the spokesperson. Well, I'm sure yeah, we but... can get some get a translator. Vivian, I agree with you because one of the things uh, is what we have to look at is their actions. So we have to have a pretty good detail uh, study done on to counter him with things. That's the thing. Because if I speak to my student, Dr. May, she's actually telling me things that I was shocked what's happening. They're being, people are being exterminated, basically, minorities in, in Afghanistan, and we don't even know about it. Uh, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't know if it's the same person, Tyler, you are saying. I, I, I used to work for the UN uh, years uh-huh. ago, and I was posted in Pakistan. So I know I have seen some of them speak. Um, they are really compelling um, and, and very, I mean, like you said, impressive. They can talk, and that's why they have quite a lot of followers. Uh, but yeah. Uh, like um, you know, like we all know, you have to see what they do as yeah. well. Um, so it's not it's not that they don't know how to speak. They they really are compelling. So uh, I mean, I have seen a ton of things on the ground. So I'm not so sure. Well, I I, I, don't, pre- know. I, I don't know. Absolutely appreciate that. You with you having been on the ground there. Anyway, it's it's like I said a week ago. I would have been like uh, I wouldn't be saying it, it's. It's wild. They're they're trying to position themselves as the leaders of the country of the future, and China's recognized. They just flew to China, met with China's foreign minister. China's recognizing them, and they're they're at, they're certainly making a very strong effort to appear uh, like totally different than the Taliban America. Uh, perceives them to be they're trying to appear as oh we're no everything's going to be good we're going to have peace we're going to have um kind of freedoms it's going to be a a lovely place and a government and we're going to you know it's they want a state basically they're trying to make a case for their are they going to give women the right they they said yes they said up until a certain age wow you know um there would be there's actually a precedent for the U.S. Uh, essentially taking maybe not a whole party, but someone, you know, off its terrorist watch list or or even terrorist no-fly list, right? Um, I, I'm not certain whether, uh, you know, most people in the room uh, know that uh, India's President Modi was on the United States terrorist list before he became president. Didn't know that. Not terrorist, but he was denied a visa and uh, no admittance list. I don't think they called him a terrorist person. Um, yeah, guess what? Mandela was on the terrorist list. So, <laughs> I mean, come on. That, that list is uh, quite confusing sometimes. So, A lot of politics involved by some Indian groups in the U.S. campaigning for such things also. So it's not always necessarily a you know 
very well thought out thing or whatever. So anyway, Obama changed that, right? Well, you have to change it when they become the head of a very important country. Anywho, it's that one's certainly one to think about, uh, or 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 not. I mean, it's all in Clubhouse's hands. They'll do what's best for the app. I trust that, but um, it could be. That could be interesting because by the, the way, Professor Ossif, as you just said, that question and is the question that the journalist asked. And that's why I knew the answer. And because the journalist was very, like, just as you just said, ah, uh, we got you. This is easy. You, <laughs> you're, you don't allow, uh, you know, the, your women to be educated. Checkmate. And they were like, no, we'll let women be educated up until X amount of age. And then even the journalist was like, Er, 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 what? And I mean, this is my point is, I think they're willing to make, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, to become, concessions. yeah, they're ma- ma- making concessions. concessions, being more moderate. They're making a pivot, right? They're pivoting. As a, no, as but they're, they're really trying to position themselves as the future leaders of Afghanistan. And it's going to be kind of their state. And as such, they're acting much more diplomatically. They're acting much more, they're trying to paint the image, at least, as being reasonable. Uh, so I don't, I would even suspect that you, we won't likely see any beheadings anytime soon, even though, of course, we all saw the videos previously, and we'll never forget those, of course. And for the, for that alone, people can make a reasonable argument that they should not be given any kind of platform whatsoever under any context. I I can understand that perspective. So, but what I'm saying is they're certainly going to try to make a really strong case for that's the old Taliban. This is the new Taliban and we're going to have a peaceful Afghanistan and we're going to try and, you know, so I just be mindful. Just, I've seen it. I've seen it in the interviews they're doing. You'll see it too. So the question is, uh, is that an opportunity for Clubhouse? I'm only proposing this in that uh, I would love to see Clubhouse have its def- defining moment, uh, of which this could be one. I don't know that this is, that this is necessarily the one that they want to have. That you know, but Twitter didn't. You, if you had asked Twitter, hey Twitter, do you want your defining moment to be you know uh, uh, an airplane crashing into the Hudson River? They obviously would have said, well, no, I, we don't want to be associated with an airplane crashing. Um, and I'm sure Clubhouse doesn't want to be associated with the Taliban. That certainly wouldn't have been their first choice of, you know, this breakout PR moment that potentially could happen. But, you know, nature has a very weird way of doing things. And um, if this could potentially be of um, value uh, to Clubhouse, then I I just wonder. Anyway, I'm just fantasizing at this point. Didn't didn't uh, the 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 Trump administration had a, a, a negotiation going on for a while, um, almost at the end of his term? That I, I'm not sure if they finally made it to Washington to have a discussion, but I think they were negotiating actually. I don't know, but that's a whole other very interesting question. Is in the event that Trump could ever appear in Clubhouse, would people? Um, Welcome that because that's a very that's an equally similar um, proposal, right? So you know the World Economic Forum had Trump um, attend. So, oh yeah, yeah, and, yeah. WEF, yeah. And you know, I mean, Trump 
at that point, of course, was the president of the United States. And the office, especially that office, right, matters a lot. So you, you need to listen and know what position he is going to take. Um, oh, by the way, he, he supports planting trees, uh, although, um, you know, their, their plan lacked a lot of critical detail. Um, so, but coming back to this, you know, who, who would be, um, I think, an excellent choice to debate the Taliban spokesperson? Malala. Hmm. And also, I mean, look, you know, I I find it, I mean, I, I think that the strategy that you've just outlined, that PR strategy, sounds, you know, sounds so sophisticated. Uh, and if they're in touch with the Chinese, then, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be too surprised if they had some help on that front. Uh, but, you know, let's think about it. The, do people change that fast overnight? And even if a person can, right, usually it's a life-changing event. An organization cannot make that kind of change because you have the leadership and the membership. And so, you know, organizations have more, you could say, inertia, stability, whatnot. But the DNA is, if not fossilized, is it, their DNA. They are not going to, they didn't turn into Mother Teresa or Jacinda Ardern overnight. Vivian, I would agree with that sort of thinking if the North Korean guy didn't uh, choose to meet up with the uh, U.S. president and so on. So there are always reasons why people want to change their colors, whatever. So you can't be so, you know, uh, black and white about these things. But uh, my bet would be that they wouldn't agree to debate Malala. No way. <laughs> well, oh. If I were part of the negotiating team or, you know, whoever puts this together, I would make that a critical condition. There is no way the spokesperson of a party like the Taliban should be able to sit at the same table as the president of Afghanistan or the former president of Afghanistan or Pakistan. Or no, but, but, but Vivian, that but, but that's the point. main point is right now, that's what they're trying to figure out is, will it be a collaboration between the existing government and the Taliban or are they, are they going to fight and the Taliban, if they do fight, who will win? That It's really at this interesting moment right now in Afghan history because they're trying to decide if they're going to collaborate or fight. And if they fight, one side will win, one side will lose. And if they could, that conversation hasn't yeah, happened well, yet. And this is why I'm, this is, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't, wasn't more clear about why I'm kind of think this could be groundbreaking because that conversation, the idea that it could happen here, that's what is blowing my mind is it could be a historical conversation between the, the current leader of Afghanistan and the Taliban about the future of Afghanistan, if they're going to partner or are they going to fight? I agree with you, Tyler, fully. That's the sort of thing that anyway has it's a, it's, it, it, it's, it it's going to be a historical conversation that is going to happen at some point soon in the next few days uh, or, or weeks. And the question is, it'll either happen privately somewhere or it could happen on a social platform somewhere. And if it could, if it, this exactly. is my point. That's what I was also precisely my point. Yeah, it, it's I, I, I just, I just want to note that. I mean, you know, I, I can see 
how this could be an interesting opportunity for Clubhouse or other social media platforms. It's obviously also one that could yes, backfire that. severely. Um, but you know, let's let's think about other consequences, right? So the Taliban sitting down with the president of the country, especially if it's the spokesperson sitting down with the president, right? So that kind of power in inequality. What's oh, you're probably right about that. For their fundraising yeah. around the world, for their recruitment of more people from, you know, in, including countries like Southeast right. Asia, including countries like right. Singapore, right? Go join the Taliban. I mean, it's already happening. And if you see that, hey, they are gaining momentum, they're part of the winning team, you know, so a, a movement like that, uh, not a movement, um, and, you know, that kind of development would be incredibly dangerous to the political stability of various regions around the world. Now, for Afghanistan itself, so one, I'm, I'm obviously not, uh, you know, in, in Afghanistan or, yeah, uh, AFPAP expert, right? Um, but the given that there is a security vacuum, you know, it is, that there's, I mean, they, they have, a, you know, they will seem to have a better future collaborating than fighting because you know no no one side is going to win unless unless uh, another country uses them as a pawn, in which case uh, they will be as screwed as other countries that have served as pawns, right? Um, so so they do need to collaborate. I mean, you know, collaboration is usually the right way forward for most situations anyway. Um, but I think the manner such dialogue happens. Uh, needs to be very carefully engineered. Yeah. It's not there. There are massive ramifications, yep. and I would be, I, I you know, I mean, I, I would love to see what people like you know Ian Bremmer uh, and our political analysts in in Asia what they think yep. of this. Uh, or some of my friends, uh, you know, who who worked in who served as ambassadors in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, the I I would love to hear. I mean, I'm very interested in, you know, understanding what the Taliban is saying or portraying. Um, but the the way this dialogue happens, you know, I think we need to be very, very careful so that it doesn't, you know, <laughs> make things worse for the world. I mean, we, we have our hands full at this point. Unless my memory is completely wrong, I, I, I don't believe this is the first time such power sharing talks would happen in that country. They have been there some years ago, actually. Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and the, you know, then-president and so on. So, I don't think it's like a totally brand new concept or any such thing. Well, there have been discussions in the past about power sharing. So, they ju well, just related to headlines, Taliban took over TV station in Afghanistan in strategic city as U.S. airstrikes pound key positions in Afghanistan, is the headline from CNN at the moment. And let's see, other related headlines. The U.S.-U.K. accused Taliban of war crimes in South Afghanistan. Oh, the... Sorry, that's my CNN has autoplay now all the time. Afghanistan, according to the BBC, Taliban continue attacks on three major cities. And AP says Afghan president seeks defense of cities as Taliban advance. And BBC says mapping the advance of the Taliban in Afghanistan. 
France 24 says uh, Taliban sweeping offensive where they show the timeline of it. Uh, South China Morning Post says China and Taliban move towards wary embrace. New York Post is the one that we read about Clubhouse first. That's now four hours old, actually. And then Al Jazeera says a fog of uncertainty looms over Afghanistan. And so I noticed that Paul has left. The okay. Room. Yeah. Well, no. I think they have more to lose than gain at this point, to be perfectly honest. Um, if platforms are going to be responsible for the content, then Clubhouse is going to need a super AI to, you know, assess conversations uh, and intent in almost real time. Yeah. And, and at this point, they are small enough, relatively, uh, they are small enough to be, you know, easily, relatively easily controlled vs the rest. So it would be a high stakes move. It's wild. What a wild. Uh... Yeah, it's gonna it, it, it's gonna be a historical conversation between those two. But I, I I I understand it's a one in a million that they would happen on Clubhouse. But here's the yeah. the bizarre idea <laughs> that it might happen here without us even knowing it is is an even wilder idea that we read a headline, you know, a week from now that the Taliban and the president of Afghanistan had a conversation in Clubhouse and uh, they're gonna you know <laughs> that would be in a closed yeah. room. Yeah, in a closed room. <laughs> We can all hope. Anyway, um, we'll end it on that one because any other tech headlines are going to seem a little silly at this point. But um, yeah, we'll we'll pick it up tomorrow. Today's uh, so going into Tuesday. So we'll we'll be. I think the room is. Wow. If you click on the title of the room, you'll see the upcoming time for tomorrow. So <laughs> what time? Almost is it? What seven time hours. Is it? That's Where right. Are you? Are I you really serious? got off on a. Tyler, when. Tyler, it's M.A., when are you going to do a 24-hour room at this rate? You know, Cal made <laughs> yeah. a joke today, but I think he's right. that the, uh, we, we meet twice a day. You can see on the title of the room. And if the, the quote-unquote first room today, there was only a four-hour gap between the second room. So we yeah. did five hours yeah. and then a four-hour break. We can just continue. Yeah, we could just do a one long 12-hour yeah. uninterrupted session. Yeah. Tyler, why not just allow the whole tech news to go for the whole day and then schedule the sessions to be different topics? Because then I could come in and talk about NFTs and DeFi. And no. Sort of just... <laughs> no, thanks. Put your, I'm going to start showing girls. You're going to want Hey, Tyler, could we get like Mila Kunis in here, please? Oh, to talk I NFTs? Wanna, I want to have a conversation about yeah. intense. Astrin was in here talking about his other startup called uh, Community on Clubhouse. That was kind of cool. Um, okay. Tyler, yes. Before you end the room, can I ask for clarification on one of the headlines you had? Is it okay or is it too late already? You can, but uh, Faraz, were you, have you been here for a while? I just noticed you're here. Just okay. came back. Faraz, just you came just came back. So did did you hear about the headline that um, the Taliban are here in Clubhouse doing rooms? Uh, no. I didn't. So here's here's my question to you, uh, being of Pakistani origin, um, um, what do you think of this wild potential idea of, you know how the pack uh, the the 
the Taliban is supposed to have a conversation with the president of Afghanistan and to decide if they're going to have a power sharing agreement or if they're going to, if they don't, obviously they're going to fight. And if the, if the Taliban was here in clubhouse and assuming they're not kicked out, which I can understand they might be, but if they're not, then uh, trying to coordinate for that conversation to happen in clubhouse. What, what do you think of that idea? Who's going to be coordinating that? The last thing I know is uh, the Russians were down there talking to these guys, which I thought was absolutely absurd. And yeah, sure, there's some talks going on down there, which I think are absolutely fanatical. Um, but Pakistan's got no, no role in it. It's just Afghanistan. But who's going to be No, between the Taliban and the there? president of Afghanistan, that's who ne- are, need to have a talk about whether or not they're going to share power or fight for the future yeah. of Afghanistan. Should... That conversation is going to happen in the very near future. The question is, should someone try and if the if the Taliban's already in clubhouse, potentially encourage it to potentially happen here? From us? <laughs> no, any from anybody? <laughs> you want you want to host it, Ross? I really. No, hell okay. no. Do that. Um, okay. I think everyone stay away from that from that crap because you're gonna have. A, you, listen, regardless, we already know because we get we get spooks in this room all the time. We get espionage in every other room all the time. You stay away from anything you see on that. Because there's gonna be espionage all over that. Okay, so valuable input, um, and uh, we wish you were hit, were here earlier for when we were <laughs> contemplating this whole wild. Uh, I think Tyler, you should discuss with Justin. I, I yeah I don't I don't think Justin will want to do it but uh, <laughs> I I just, I just like it for the historical context that you know nah. Tyler why not just try and get Trump I think that would be an absolutely hysterical situation and I think you'd probably get so he he must off. have wanted to he must have tried I mean, it, it, for he hell won't... he's got Twitter, oh he does he's banned on Twitter for yeah, crying out no I'm, I know Come in and he's not going to allow to you to mute him. He did. He did. Ladies, if you remember, wait, wait, wait. at the end of his term, he would drop you back to the wait, audience. Wait, Messi, you're, are you saying Trump tried to come in the clubhouse? No, 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 no. I'm saying that the Trump was uh, uh, organizing to have a discussion between the Taliban and oh. um, and uh, okay and. And even to try to come up with a solution and power sharing, uh, it was c- close to the end of his term, and it, it was conducted in secret. Uh, but then his uh, national security advisors had a split, so it came out, and then finally he tweeted about it himself. But yeah, there was a big talk about it, and they negotiated for months and stuff, and they were gonna get down to Camp David and and try to yeah, hammer whatever. it out. But I think the government was was offended because they weren't part of that discussion, and I think that's partly okay. why it fell apart. All right, M- Messi, he would do anything to get a Nobel Prize, you know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Tyler, Tyler, if you want, if you want the, uh, the the consummate diplomat to moderate the conversation, then the obvious choice it can't be anybody Sonali. else. It obviously has to be Greg. It has to be Greg Duffy. And I think I was thinking. I, I thought you were going to say Sonali because Sonali was in the room today for quite a while. 
Well, if if if, if it could be scenario, so well, scenario would be great. If Mo, if Mo could come back, Mo would be a great. A great yeah, that's him. Get a panel. <laughs> Get a back, panel. Mo's back. Mo's back. He's under silk rose. Mo's back. Oh. Room is turning out to be crazy right now. <laughs> All right. You should have a disclaimer it's, time. You know, it's it midnight. I was supposed to be going to okay. bed. Okay, let's go to bed. It it's past yeah, Messi's yeah, bedtime. Yeah, I'm blaming this all on you, Messi. Yeah. We can we can add a crying baby. <laughs> but then yeah, also, okay. Take care. All right, everybody. Bye. Good night. Thank you. Goodbye. See you okay. in the morning. See you. Bye. <laughs>